dedication. This brand new novel is dedicated to Robert A. Heinlein, A. E. Van Vogt, John W. Campbell Jr., and all the merry crew of science fiction and fantasy writers of the 30s and 40s, the golden age, who made science fiction and fantasy the respected and popular literary genres they have become today. Introduction. Recently there came a period when I had little to do. This was novel in a life so crammed with busy years, and I decided to amuse myself by writing a novel that was pure science fiction. In the hard-driven times between 1930 and 1950, I was a professional writer not simply because it was my job, but because I wanted to finance more serious researches. In those days, there were few agencies pouring out large grants to independent workers. Despite what you might hear about Roosevelt relief, those were depression years. One succeeded or one starved. One became a top-liner or a gutter bum. One had to work very hard at his craft or have no craft at all. It was a very challenging time for anyone who lived through it. I have heard it said as an intended slur he was a science fiction writer, and have heard it said of many. It brought me to realize that few people understand the role science fiction has played in the lives of Earth's whole population. I have just read several standard books that attempt to define science fiction and to trace its history. There are many experts in this field, many controversial opinions. Science fiction is favored with the most closely knit reading public that may exist, possibly the most dedicated of any genre. Devotees are called fans, and the word has a special prestigious meaning in science fiction. Few professional writers, even those in science fiction, have written very much on the character of SF. They are usually too busy turning out the work itself to expound on what they have written. But there are many experts on this subject among both critics and fans, and they have a lot of worthwhile things to say. However, many false impressions exist, both of the genre and of its writers. So when one states that he set out to write a work of pure science fiction, he had better state what definition he is using. It will probably be best to return to the day in 1938 when I first entered this field, the day I met John W. Campbell, Jr., a day in the very dawn of what has come to be known as the golden age of science fiction. I was quite ignorant of the field and regarded it, in fact, a bit diffidently. I was not there of my own choice. I had been summoned to the vast old building on 7th Avenue in dusty, dirty old New York by the very top brass of Street and Smith Publishing Company, an executive named Black and another F. Orlin Tremaine. Ordered there with me was another writer, Arthur J. Burks. In those days when the top brass of a publishing company particularly one as old and prestigious as Street and Smith, invited a writer to visit, it was like being commanded to appear before the king or receiving a court summons. You arrived, you sat there obediently, and you spoke when you were spoken to. We were both, Arthur J. Burks and I, top-line professionals in other writing fields. By the actual tabulation of A.B. Dick, which set advertising rates for publishing firms, Either of our names appearing on a magazine cover would send the circulation rate skyrocketing, something like modern TV ratings. The top brass came quickly to the point. 
They had recently started or acquired a magazine called Astounding Science Fiction. Other magazines were published by other houses, but Street and Smith was unhappy because its magazine was mainly publishing stories about machines and machinery. As publishers, its executives knew you had to have people in stories. They had called us in because, aside from our A.B. Dick rating as writers, we could write about real people. They knew we were busy and had other commitments, but would we be so kind as to write science fiction? We indicated we would. They called in John W. Campbell, Jr., the editor of the magazine. He found himself looking at two adventure story writers, and though adventure writers might be the aristocrats of the whole field and might have vast followings of their own, they were not science fiction writers. He resisted. In the first place, calling in top liners would ruin his story budget due to their word rates, and in the second place he had his own ideas of what science fiction was. Campbell, who dominated the whole field of SF as its virtual czar until his death in 1971, was a huge man who had majored in physics at Massachusetts Institute of Technology and graduated from Duke University with a Bachelor of Sciences degree. His idea of getting a story was to have some professor or scientist write it and then doctor it up and publish it. Perhaps that is a bit unkind, but it really was what he was doing. To fill his pages, even he, who had considerable skill as a writer, was writing stories for the magazine. The top brass had to directly order Campbell to buy and to publish what we wrote for him. He was going to get people into his stories and get something going besides machines. I cannot tell you how many other writers were called in. I do not know. In all justice, it may have been Campbell himself who found them later on. But do not get the impression that Campbell was anything less than a master and a genius in his own right. Any of the stable of writers he collected during this golden age will tell you that. Campbell could listen. He could improve things. He could dream up little plot twists that were masterpieces. He well deserved the title that he gained and kept as the top editor and the dominant force that made science fiction as respectable as it became. Star Wars, the all-time box office record movie to date, exceeded only by its sequel, would never have happened if science fiction had not become as respectable as Campbell made it. More than that, Campbell played no small part in driving this society into the space age. You had to actually work with Campbell to know where he was trying to go, what his idea was of this thing called science fiction. I cannot give you any quotations from him. I can just tell you what I felt he was trying to do. In time, we became friends. Over lunches and in his office and at his home on weekends, where his wife, Donya, kept things smooth, talk was always of stories but also of science. To say that Campbell considered science fiction as prophecy is an oversimplification. He had very exact ideas about it. Only about a tenth of my stories were written for the fields of science fiction and fantasy. I was what they called a high-production writer, and these fields were just not big enough to take everything I could write. I gained my original reputation in other writing fields during the eight years before the Street and Smith interview. Campbell, without saying too much about it, considered the bulk of the stories I gave him to be not science fiction but fantasy, an altogether different thing. Some of my stories he eagerly published as science fiction, 
among them final blackout. Many more, actually. I had myself somewhat of a science background, had done some pioneer work in rockets and liquid gases, but I was studying the branches of man's past knowledge at that time to see whether he had ever come up with anything valid. This, and a love of the ancient tales now called the Arabian Nights, led me to write quite a bit of fantasy. To handle this fantasy material, Campbell introduced another magazine, Unknown. As long as I was writing novels for it, it continued. But the war came, and I and others went, and I think Unknown only lasted about forty months. Such novels were a bit hard to come by, and they were not really Campbell's strength. So anyone seeking to say that science fiction is a branch of fantasy, or an extension of it, is unfortunately colliding with a time-honored professional usage of terms. This is an age of mixed genres. I hear different forms of music mixed together like soup. I see so many different styles of dance tangled together into one dance that I wonder whether the choreographers really know the different genres of dance anymore. There is abroad today the concept that only conflict produces new things. Perhaps the philosopher Hegel introduced that, but he also said that war was necessary for the mental health of the people and a lot of other nonsense. If all new ideas have to spring from the conflict between old ones, one must deny that virgin ideas can be conceived. So what would pure science fiction be? It has been surmised that science fiction must come from an age where science exists. At the risk of raising dispute and outcry, which I have risked all my life and received but not been bothered by, and have gone on and done my job anyway, I wish to point out some things. Science fiction does not come after the fact of a scientific discovery or development. It is the herald of possibility. It is the plea that someone should work on the future. Yet it is not prophecy. It is the dream that precedes the dawn when the inventor or scientist awakens and goes to his books or his lab saying, I wonder whether I could make that dream come true in the world of real science. You can go back to Lucian, 2nd century A.D., or to Johannes Kepler, 1571 to 1630, who founded modern dynamical astronomy and who also wrote Somnium, an imaginary space flight to the moon, or to Mary Shelley and her Frankenstein, or to Poe or Verne or Wells, and ponder whether this was really science fiction. Let us take an example. A man invents an egg-beater. A writer later writes a story about an egg-beater. He has not thereby written science fiction. Let us continue the example. A man writes a story about some metal that, when twiddled, beats an egg, but no such tool has ever before existed, in fact. He has now written science fiction. Somebody else, a week or a hundred years later, reads the story and says, well, well, maybe it could be done, and makes an egg-beater. But whether or not it was possible that twiddling two pieces of metal would beat eggs, or whether or not anybody ever did it afterward, the man still has written science fiction. How do you look at this word fiction? It is a sort of homograph. In this case, it means two different things. A professor of literature knows it means a literary work whose content is produced by the imagination and is not necessarily based on fact. 
The category of literature comprising works of this kind, including novels, short stories, and plays. It is derived from the Latin fictio, a making, a fashioning, from fictus, past participle of fingere, to touch, form, mold. But when we join the word to science and get science fiction, the word fiction acquires two meanings in the same use. One, the science used in the story is at least partly fictional, and two, any story is fiction. The American Heritage Dictionary of the English Language defines science fiction as fiction in which scientific developments and discoveries form an element of plot or background, especially a work of fiction based on prediction of future scientific possibilities. So, by dictionary definition, and a lot of discussions with Campbell and fellow writers of that time, science fiction has to do with the material universe and sciences. These can include economics, sociology, medicine, and such like, all of which have a material base. Then, what is fantasy? Well, believe me, if it were simply the application of vivid imagination, then a lot of economists and government people and such would be fully qualified authors. Applying the word imaginative to fantasy would be like calling an entire library some words. Too simplistic, too general a term. In these modern times, many of the ingredients that make up fantasy as a type of fiction have vanished from the stage. You hardly even find them in encyclopedias anymore. These subjects were spiritualism, mythology, magic, divination, the supernatural, and many other fields of that type. None of them had anything really to do with the real universe. This does not necessarily mean that they never had any validity or that they will not again arise. It merely means that man, currently, has sunk into a materialistic binge. The bulk of these subjects consists of false data, but there probably never will come a time when all such phenomena are explained. The primary reason such a vast body of knowledge dropped from view is that material science has been undergoing a long series of successes. But I do notice that every time modern science thinks it is down to the nitty-gritty of it all, it runs into, and sometimes adopts, such things as the Egyptian myths that man came from mud or something like that. But the only point I am trying to make here is that there is a whole body of phenomena that we cannot classify as material. They are the non-material, non-universe subjects. And no matter how false many of the old ideas were, they still existed. Who knows but what there might not be some validity in some bits of them. One would have to study these subjects to have a complete comprehension of all the knowledge and beliefs possible. I am not opening the door to someone's saying, I believe in all these things. I am only saying that there is another realm besides dedicated and even simple-minded materialism. Fantasy, so far as literature is concerned, is defined in the dictionary as literary or dramatic fiction characterized by highly fanciful or supernatural elements. Even that is a bit limited as a definition. So, fantasy could be called any fiction that takes up elements such as spiritualism, mythology, magic, divination, the supernatural, and so on. The Arabian Nights was a gathering together of the tales of many, many countries and civilizations, not just of Arabia, as many believe. 
Its actual title was A Thousand and One Nights of Entertainment. It abounds with examples of fantasy fiction. When you mix science fiction with fantasy, you do not have a pure genre. The two are, to a professional, separate genres. I notice today there is a tendency to mingle them and then excuse the result by calling it imaginative fiction. Actually, they don't mix well. Science fiction, to be credible, has to be based on some degree of plausibility. Fantasy gives you no limits at all. Writing science fiction demands care on the part of the author. Writing fantasy is as easy as strolling in the park. In fantasy, a guy has no sword in his hand. Bang! There's a magic sword in his hand. This doesn't say one is better than the other. They are simply very different genres from a professional viewpoint. But there is more to this. Science fiction, particularly in its golden age, had a mission. I cannot, of course, speak for my friends of that period. But from Campbell and from shooting the breeze with other writers of the time, one got the very solid impression that they were doing a heavy job of beating the drum to get man to the stars. At the beginning of that time, science fiction was regarded as a sort of awful stepchild in the world of literature. But worse than that, science itself was not getting the attention or the grants or the government expenditures it should have received. There has to be a lot of public interest and demand before politicians shell out the financing necessary to get a subject whizzing. Campbell's crew of writers were pretty stellar. They included very top-liner names. They improved the literary quality of the genre, and they began the boom of its broader popularity. A year or so after the Golden Age began, I recall going into a major university science department. I wanted some data on cytology for my own serious researches. I was given a courteous reception and was being given the references when I noticed that the room had been gradually filling up, and not with students, but with professors and deans. It had been whispered around the offices who was in the biology department, and the next thing I knew I was shaking a lot of hands held out below beaming faces. And what did they want to know? What did I think of this story or that? And had I seen this or that writer lately? And how was Campbell? They had a literature. Science fiction. And they were proud of it. For a while, before and after World War II, I was in rather steady association with the new era of scientists, the boys who built the bomb, who were beginning to get the feel of rockets. They were all science fiction buffs, and many of the hottest scientists around were also writing science fiction on the side. In 1945, I attended a meeting of old scientist and science fiction friends. The meeting was at the home of my dear friend, the incomparable Bob Heinlein. And do you know what was their agenda? How to get man into space fast enough so that he would be distracted from further wars on Earth. And they were the lads who had the government ear and authority to do it. We are coming close to doing it. The scientists got man into space, and they even had the Russians cooperating for a while. One can't go on living a naive life, believing that everything happens by accident, that events simply follow events, that there is a natural order of things, and that everything will come out right somehow. That isn't science. That's fate. Kismet. 
and we're back in the world of fantasy. No, things do get planned. The golden age of science fiction that began with Campbell and astounding science fiction gathered enough public interest and readership to help push man into space. Today you hear top scientists talking the way we used to talk in bull sessions so long ago. Campbell did what he set out to do, so long as he had his first wife and others around him to remind him that science was for people, that it was no use to just send machines out for the sake of machines, that there was no point into going into space unless the mission had something to do with people too, he kept winning. For he was a very brilliant man and a great and very patient editor. After he lost his first wife, Donya, in 1949, she married George O. Smith, and after he no longer had a sounding board who made him keep people in stories, and when he no longer had his old original writing crew around, he let his magazine slip back, and when it finally became named Analog, his reign was over. But the Golden Age had kicked it all into high gear, so Campbell won after all. When I started out to write this novel, I wanted to write pure science fiction, and not in the old tradition. Writing forms and styles have changed, so I had to bring myself up to date and modernize the styles and patterns. To show that science fiction is not science fiction because of a particular kind of plot, this novel contains practically every type of story there is. Detective, spy, adventure, western, love, air war, you name it. All except fantasy. There is none of that. The term science also includes economics and sociology and medicine, where these are related to material things. So they're in here, too. In writing for magazines, the editors, because of magazine format, force one to write to exact lengths. I was always able to do that. It is a kind of knack. But this time I decided not to cut everything out and to just roll her as she rolled, so long as the pace kept up. So I may have wound up writing the biggest SF novel ever in terms of length. The experts, and there are lots of them to do so, can verify whether this is so. Some of my readers may wonder that I did not include my own serious subjects in this book. It was with no thought of dismissal of them. It was just that I put on my professional writer's hat. I also did not want to give anybody the idea I was doing a press relations job for my other serious works. There are those who will look at this book and say, See, we told you he is just a science fiction writer. Well, as one of the crew of writers that helped start Man to the Stars, I'm very proud of also being known as a science fiction writer. You have satellites out there. Man has walked on the moon. You have probes going to the planets, don't you? Somebody had to dream the dream, and a lot of somebodies like those great writers of the Golden Age and later had to get an awful lot of people interested in it to make it true. I hope you enjoy this novel. It is the only one I ever wrote just to amuse myself. It also celebrates my golden wedding with the muse. Fifty years of professional, 1930 to 1980. And as an old pro, I assure you that it is pure science fiction. No fantasy. Right on the rails of the genre. Science is for people. And so is science fiction. Ready?
Stand by. Blast off. L. Ron Hubbard, October 1980. Time, distance, and weight have been translated in all cases throughout this book to old earth time, distance, and weight systems for the sake of uniformity and to prevent confusion in the various systems employed by the cyclos. Translator. Galaxy Audio presents Battlefield Earth, a saga of the year 3000 by L. Ron Hubbard. Part One, Chapter One. Man, said Turl, is an endangered species. The hairy paws of the Chamco brothers hung suspended above the broad keys of the laser bash game. The cliffs of Char's eye bones drew down over his yellow orbs as he looked up in mystery. Even the steward, who had been padding quietly about, picking up her saucepans, lumbered to a halt and stared. Turl could not have produced a more profound effect had he thrown a meat girl naked into the middle of the room. The clear dome of the Intergalactic Mining Company Employee Recreation Hall shone black around and above them, silvered at its crossbars by the pale glow of the Earth's single moon, half full on this late summer night. Turl lifted his large, amber eyes from the tome that rested minutely in his massive claws and looked around the room. He was suddenly aware of the effect he had produced, and it amused him. Anything to relieve the humdrum monotony of a ten-year duty tour in this God's abandoned mining camp, way out here on the edge of a minor galaxy. In an even more professorial voice, already deep and roaring enough, Turl repeated his thought. Man is an endangered species. Char glowered at him. What in the name of diseased crap are you reading? Turl did not much care for his tone. After all, Char was simply one of several mine managers, but Turl was chief of mine site security. I didn't read it. I thought it. You must have got it from somewhere, growled Char. What is that book? Turl held it up so Char could see its back. 
It said, General Report of Geological Mine Sites, Volume 250,369. Like all such books, it was huge, but printed on material that made it almost weightless, particularly on a low-gravity planet such as Earth, a triumph of design and manufacture that did not cut heavily into the payloads of freighters. <sighs> Growled Char in disgust. That must be two, three hundred Earth years old. If you want to prowl around in books, I got an up-to-date General Board of Directors report that says we're 35 freighters behind in bauxite deliveries. The Chamco brothers looked at each other, and then at their game, to see where they had gotten to in shooting down the live mayflies in the airbox. But Turl's next words distracted them again. Today, said Turl, brushing Char's push for work aside, I got a sighting report from a recon drone that recorded only 35 men in that valley near that peak. Turl waved his paw westward toward the towering mountain range silhouetted by the moon. So? Said Char. So I dug up the books out of curiosity. There used to be hundreds in that valley. And furthermore... Continued Turl with his professorial ways coming back. There used to be thousands and thousands of them on this planet. You can't believe all you read, said Char heavily. On my last duty tour, it was Arcturus IV. This book, said Turl, lifting it impressively, was compiled by the Culture and Ethnology Department of the Intergalactic Mining Company. The larger Chamco brother batted his eye bones. I didn't know we had one. Char sniffed. It was disbanded more than a century ago. Useless waste of money, yapping around about ecological impacts and junk like that. He shifted his bulk around to Turl. Is this some kind of scheme to explain a non-scheduled vacation? You're going to get your butt in a bind. I can see it. A pile of requisitions this high for breathe gas tanks and scout craft. You won't get any of my workers. Turn off the juice. I only said that man... I know what you said. But you got your appointment because you are clever. That's right. Clever. Not intelligent. Clever. And I can see right through an excuse to go on a hunting expedition. What cyclo in his right skull would bother with the things? The smaller Chamco brother grinned. Yeah. I get tired of just dig, 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 ship, ship, ship. Hunting might be fun. I didn't think anybody did it for... Char turned on him like a tank, zeroing in on its prey. Fun hunting those things? You ever see one? He lurched to his feet and the floor creaked. He put his paw just above his belt. They only come up to here. They got hardly any hair on them except their heads. They're a dirty white color like a slug. They're so brittle, they break up when you try to put them in a pouch. He snarled in disgust and picked up a saucepan of Kerbango. They're so weak they couldn't pick this up without straining their guts. And they're not good eating. He tossed off the Kerbango and made an earthquake shudder. You ever see one? Said the bigger Chamco brother. Char sat down. The dome rumbled, and he handed the empty saucepan to the steward. No, not alive. I've seen some bones in the shafts, and I heard. There were thousands of them once, said Turl, ignoring the mine manager. 
Thousands! All over the place. Char belched. Shouldn't wonder they die off. They breathe this oxygen-nitrogen air. Deadly stuff. I got a crack in my face mask yesterday, said the smaller Chamco brother. For about 30 seconds, I thought I wasn't going to make it. Bright lights bursting inside your skull. Deadly stuff. I really look forward to getting back home, where you can walk around without a suit or mask, where the gravity gives you something to push against, where everything is a beautiful purple, and there's not one bit of this green stuff. My papa used to tell me that if I wasn't a good cyclo, and if I didn't say sir, sir, sir to the right people, I'd wind up at a butt end of nowhere like this. He was right. I did. It's your shot, brother. Char sat back and eyed Turl. You ain't really going hunting for a man, are you? Turl looked at his book. He inserted one of his talons to keep his place and then thumped the volume against his knee. I think you're wrong, he mused. There was something to these creatures. Before we came along, it says here, they had towns on every continent. They had flying machines and boats. They even appear to have fired off stuff into space. How do you know that wasn't some other race, said Char. How do you know it wasn't some lost colony of Cyclos? No, it wasn't that. Cyclos can't breathe this air. It was man, all right, just like the cultural guys researched. And right in our own histories, you know how it says we got here? Huh, said Char. Man apparently sent out some kind of probe that gave full directions to the place, had pictures of man on it and everything. It got picked up by a cyclo-recon. And you know what? Huh, said Char. The probe and the pictures were on a metal that was rare everywhere and worth a clanking fortune. And Intergalactic paid the cyclo-governor 60 trillion galactic credits for the directions and the concession. One gas barrage, and we were in business. Fairy tales, fairy tales, said Char. Every planet I ever helped gut has some button-crap story like that, every one. He yawned his face into a huge <sighs> cavern. All that was hundreds, maybe thousands of years ago. You ever notice that the public relations department always puts their fairy tales so far back, nobody can ever check them? I'm going to go out and catch one of these things. Not with any of my cruiser equipment, you eight. Turl heaved his mammoth bulk off the seat and crossed the creaking floor to the birthing hatch. You're as crazy as a nebula of crap, said Char. The two Chamco brothers got back into their game and intently laser-blasted the entrapped mayflies into smoky puffs, one by one. Char looked at the empty door. The security chief knew no cyclo could go up into those mountains. Turl really was crazy. There was deadly uranium up there. But Turl, rumbling along a hallway to his room, did not consider himself crazy. He was being very clever, as always. 
He had started the rumors so no questions would get out of hand when he began to put into motion the personal plans that would make him wealthy and powerful and almost as important. Dig him out of this accursed planet. The man-things were the perfect answer. All he needed was just one. And then he could get the others. His campaign had begun and begun very well, he thought. He went to sleep gloating over how clever he was. Part 1, Chapter 2 It was a good day for a funeral, only it seemed there wasn't going to be one. Dark, stormy-looking clouds were creeping in from the west, shredded by the snow-speckled peaks, leaving only a few patches of blue sky showing. Johnny Good Boy Tyler stood beside his horse at the upper end of the wide mountain meadow and looked with discontent upon the sprawled and decaying village. His father was dead, and he ought to be properly buried. He hadn't died of the red blotches, and there was no question of somebody else catching it. His bones had just crumbled away, so there was no excuse not to properly bury him. Yet there was no sign of anyone doing so. Johnny had gotten up in the dawn dark, determined to choke down his grief and go about his correct business. He had yelled up Wind Splitter, the fastest of his several horses, put a cowhide rope on his nose, and gone down through the dangerous defiles to the lower plain, and with a lot of hard riding and herding, pushed five wild cattle back up to the mountain meadow. He had then bashed out the brains of the fattest of them, and ordered his Aunt Ellen to push the barbecue fire together and get meat cooking. Aunt Ellen hadn't cared for the orders. She had broken her sharpest rock, she said, and couldn't skin and cut the meat, and certain men hadn't dragged in any firewood lately. Johnny Goodboy had stood very tall and looked at her. Among people who were average height, Johnny Goodboy stood half a head taller, a muscular six feet shining with the bronzed health of his twenty years. He had just stood there, wind tangling his corn-yellow hair and beard, looking at her with his ice-blue eyes. And Aunt Ellen had gone and found some wood and had put a stone to work, even though it was a very dull one. He could see her now, down there below him, wrapped in the smoke of slow-roasting meat. Busy. Hmm. There ought to be more activity in the village, Johnny thought. The last big funeral he had seen was when he was about five years old, when Smith, the mayor, had died. There had been songs and preaching and a feast, and it had ended with a dance by moonlight. Mayor Smith had been put in a hole in the ground, and the dirt filled in over him, and while the two cross sticks of the marker were long since gone, it had been a proper, respectful funeral. More recently, they had just dumped the dead in the Black Rock Gulch below the water pool and let the coyotes clean them up. Well, that wasn't the way you went about it, Johnny told himself. Not with his father, anyway. He spun on his heel, and with one motion went aboard Windsplitter. 
The thump of his hard, bare heels sent the horse down toward the courthouse. He passed by the decayed ruins of cabins on the outskirts. Every year, they caved in further. For a long time, anybody needing a building log hadn't cut any trees. They had just stripped handy existing structures. But the logs in these cabins were so eaten up and rotted now, they hardly even served as firewood. Windsplitter picked his way down the weed-grown track, walking watchfully to avoid stepping on ancient and newly discarded food bones and trash. He twitched his ear toward a distant wolf howl from up in a mountain glen. The smell of new blood and the meat smoke must be pulling the wolves down, thought Johnny, and he hefted his kill club from where it dangled by a thong into his palm. He'd lately seen a wolf right down in the cabins, prowling around for bones, or maybe even a puppy, or a child. Even a decade ago, it wouldn't have happened. But every year, there were fewer and fewer people. Legend said that there had been a thousand in the valley, but Johnny thought that was probably an exaggeration. There was plenty of food. The wide plains below the peaks were overrun with wild cattle, wild pigs, and bands of horses. The ranges above were alive with deer and goats, and even an unskilled hunter had no trouble getting food. There was plenty of water due to the melting snows and streams, and the little patches of vegetables would thrive if anybody planted and tended them. No, it wasn't food. It was something else. Animals reproduced, it seemed, but man didn't. At least not to any extent. The death rate and the birth rate were unbalanced with death, the winner. Even when children were born, they sometimes had only one eye, or one lung, or one hand, and had to be left out in the icy night. Monsters were unwanted things. All life was overpowered by a fear of monsters. Maybe it was this valley. When he was seven, he had asked his father about it. But maybe people can't live in this place. He had said. His father had looked at him wearily. <sighs> there were people in some other valleys, according to the legends. They're all gone, but there are still some of us. He had not been convinced. Johnny had said, there's all those planes down there, and they're full of animals. Why don't we go live there? Johnny had always been a bit of a trial. Too smart, the elders had said. Always stirring things up. Questions, questions. And did he believe what he was told? Even by older men who knew a lot better? No, not Johnny good boy Tyler. But his father had not brought any of this up. He had just said wearily. There's no timber down there to build cabins. This hadn't explained anything, so Johnny had said, I bet I could find something down there to build a cabin with. His father had knelt down, patient for once, and said, You're a good boy, Johnny, and your mother and I love you very much. But nobody could build anything that would keep out the monsters. 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 All his life, Johnny had been hearing about the monsters. He'd never seen one. But he held his peace. 
The oldsters believed in monsters. So, they believed in monsters. But thinking of his father brought an unwelcome wetness to his eyes. And he was almost unseated as his horse reared. A string of foot-long mountain rats had rushed headlong from a cabin and hit Windsplitter's legs. What you get for dreaming? Johnny snapped to himself. He put Windsplitter's four hoofs back down on the path and drummed him forward the last few yards to the courthouse. Part 1, Chapter 3 Chrissy was standing there, her leg being hugged, as always, by her younger sister. Johnny Goodboy ignored her and looked at the courthouse. The old, old building was the only one to have a stone foundation and stone floor. Somebody had said it was a thousand years old, and though Johnny didn't believe it, the place sure looked it. Even its 17th roof was as sway-backed as an overpacked horse. There wasn't a log in the upper structure that wasn't gaping with worm holes. The windows were mainly caved in like eye holes in a rotted skull. The stone walkway close to it was worn half a foot deep by the bare, horny feet of scores of generations of villagers coming here to be tried and punished in the olden days when somebody had cared. In his lifetime, Johnny had never seen a trial. Or a town meeting, for that matter. Parson Staffer is inside, said Chrissy. She was a slight girl, very pretty, about 18. She had large black eyes, in strange contrast to her corn silk hair. She had wrapped around herself a doe skin really tight, and it showed her breasts and a lot of bare leg. Her little sister, Patty, a budding copy of the older girl, looked bright-eyed and interested. Is there going to be a real funeral, Johnny? Johnny didn't answer. He slid off Windsplitter in a graceful, single motion. He handed the lead rope to Patty, who ecstatically uncoiled herself from Chrissy's leg and snatched at it. At seven, Patty had no parents and little enough of a home, and her son rose and sat only on Johnny's proud orders. Is there going to be meat? And a burying in a hole in the ground and everything? Demanded Patty. Johnny started through the courthouse door, paying no heed to the hand Chrissy put out to touch his arm. Parson Staffer lay sprawled on a mound of dirty grass, mouth open in snores, flies buzzing about. Johnny stirred him with his foot. Parson Staffer had seen better days. Once, he had been fat and inclined to pomposity, but that was before he had begun to chew loco weed, to ease his toothaches, he said. He was gaunt now, dried up, nearly toothless, seamed with inlaid grime. Some wads of weed lay on the stones beside his moldy bed. 
As the toe prodded him again, Staffer opened his eyes and rubbed some of the scum out of them in alarm. Then he saw it was Johnny Goodboy Tyler, hey. and he fell back without interest. Get up, said Johnny. No, there's this generation, muttered the parson. No respect for their elders, rushing off to the bushes, fornicating, grabbing the best meat pieces. Get up. You are going to give a funeral. A funeral? Moaned Staffer. With meat and sermons and dancing. Who is dead? You know quite well who's dead. You were there at the end. Oh, yes. Your father. Good man. Yes. Good man. Well, maybe he was your father. Johnny suddenly looked a little dangerous. He was standing there at ease, but he was wearing the skin of a puma that he himself had slain, and he had his kill club on a wrist thong. The club seemed to jump of its own volition into his palm. Parson Staffer abruptly sat up. Uh, now, don't take it wrong, Johnny. It, it's just that things are a little mixed up these days, you know. Your mother had three husbands one time and another. And there being no real ceremonies these days. You better get up. Staffer clawed for the corner of an ancient, scarred bench and pulled himself upright. He began to tie the deerskin he usually wore, and obviously had worn far too long, using a frayed woven grass rope. Uh, my, uh, <clears throat> memory isn't so good these days, Johnny. One time I could remember all kinds of things. Legends, marriage ceremonies, hunt blessings. Even family quarrels. He was looking around for some fresh loco weed. When the sun is straight up, you're going to call the whole village together at the old graveyard, and you're... Who's gonna dig the hole? Has to be a hole, you know, for a proper funeral. I'll dig the hole. Staffer had found some fresh loco weed and began to gum it. He looked relieved. Well, I'm glad the town doesn't have to dig the hole. Horns, but this stuff is green. You said me. Who's gonna kill and cook it? That's all taken care of. Staffer nodded and then abruptly saw more work ahead. Mm. Who's gonna assemble the people? I'll ask Patty to tell them. Staffer looked at him reproachfully. Then there's nothing for me to do until straight up. Why'd you wake me up? He threw himself back down on the dirty grass and sourly watched Johnny walk out of the ancient room. Part 1, Chapter 4 Johnny Goodboy sat with his knees to his chest, his arms wrapped around them, staring into the remains of the dance fire. Chrissy lay on her stomach beside him, idly shredding the seeds from a large sunflower between her very white teeth. <laughs> 
She looked up at Johnny from time to time, a little puzzled, but not unduly so. She had never seen him cry before, even as a little boy. She knew he had loved his father. But Johnny was usually so tall and grand, even cold. Could it be that under that good-looking, almost pretty face, he felt emotions for her, too? It was something to speculate about. She knew very well how she felt about Johnny. If anything happened to Johnny, she would throw herself off the cliff where they sometimes herded wild cattle to their death. An easy way to kill them. Life without Johnny Goodboy would not only not be worth living, it would be completely unbearable. Maybe Johnny did care about her. The tears showed something. Patty had no such troubles. She had not only stuffed herself with roast meat, she had also stuffed herself with the wild strawberries that had been served by the heap. And then, during the dancing, she had run and run and run with two or three little boys, and then come back to eat some more. She was sleeping so heavily, she looked like a mound of rags. Johnny blamed himself. He had tried to tell his father, not just when he was seven, but many times thereafter, that something was wrong with this place. Places were not all the same. Johnny had been... was sure of it. Why did the pigs and horses and cattle in the plains have little pigs and horses and cattle so numerously and so continuously? Yes, and why were there more and more wolves and coyotes and pumas and birds up in the higher ranges and fewer and fewer men? The villagers had been quite happy with the funeral, especially since Johnny and a couple of others had done most of the work. Johnny had not been happy with it at all. It wasn't good enough. They had gathered at Sun straight up on the knoll above the village where some said the graveyard had been. The markers were all gone. Maybe it had been a graveyard. When Johnny had toiled, naked so as not to stain his puma skin cloak and doe breeches, in the morning sun he had dug into something that might have been an old grave. At least there was a bone in it that could have been human. The villagers had come slouching around, and there had been a wait while Patty tore back to the courthouse and awakened Parson Staffer again. Only twenty-five of them had assembled. The others had said they were tired and asked for any food to be brought back to them. Then there had been an argument about the shape of the grave hole. Johnny had dug it oblong so the body could lie level. But when Staffer arrived, he said it should be straight up and down. The graves were dug straight up and down because you could get more bodies into a graveyard that way. When Johnny pointed out that there weren't any burials these days and there was plenty of room, Staffer told him off in front of everybody. You're too smart, Staffer rapped at him. When we had even half a council, they used to remark on it. Every few council meetings, some prank of yours would come up. You'd ridden to the high ridge and killed a goat. You'd gone clear up High Peak and gotten lost in a blizzard, and found your way back, you said, by following the downslope of the ground. Too smart. Who else trained six horses? Everybody knows. Graves should be straight up and down. But they had buried his father lying flat anyway, because nobody else had wanted to do more digging, and the sun was now past straight up, and it was getting hot. 
Johnny hadn't dared suggest what he really wanted to do. There would have been a riot. He had wanted to put his father in the cave of the ancient gods, far up at the top of the dark canyon, a savage cleft in the side of the tallest peak. When he was 12, he had strayed up there, more trying out a pony than going someplace. But the way up the canyon had been very flat and inviting. He had gone for miles and miles and miles, and then he had been abruptly halted by giant, vertical doors. They were of some kind of metal, heavily corroded. One couldn't see them from above or even from the canyon rims. They were absolutely huge. They went up and up. He had gotten off his pony and climbed over the rubble in front of them and simply stared. He had walked all around in circles and then come back and stared some more. After a while, he had gotten brave and had walked up to them, but push as he might, he couldn't open them. Then he had found a latch-like bar, and he had pried it off and it fell, just missing his foot, rusted but very heavy. He had braced his shoulder against one door, sure that it was a door, and pushed and pushed, but his twelve-year-old shoulder and weight hadn't had much effect on it. Then he had taken the fallen bar and begun to pry it into the slight crack, and after a few minutes he had gotten a purchase with it. There had been a horrible groaning sound that almost stood his hair up straight, and he dropped the bar and ran for the pony. Once he was mounted, his fright ebbed a bit. Maybe it was just a sound caused by the rusted hinges. Maybe it wasn't a monster. He had gone back and worked some more with the bar, and sure enough, it was just the door groaning on the pins that held it. An awful smell had come out of the cracked opening. The smell itself had made him afraid. A little light had been let in, and he peeked inside. A long flight of steps led down, remarkably even steps. And they would have been very neat, except the steps were covered by skeletons, tumbled every which way. Skeletons in strips of clothing. Clothing like he had never seen. Bits of metal, some bright, had fallen among the bones. He ran away again, but this time, not as far as the pony. He had suddenly realized he would need proof. Bracing his nerve to a pitch he had seldom before achieved, he went back and gingerly stepped inside and picked up one of the bits of metal. It had a pretty design. A bird with flying wings holding arrows in its claws, quite bright. His heart almost stopped when the skull he had removed it from tipped sideways and went to powder before his very gaze, as though it reproached him with its gaping eyes for his robbery and then expired. The pony had been in a white coat lather when he pulled up in the village. For two whole days, he said nothing, wondering how best to ask his questions. Previous experience in asking questions had made him cautious. Mayor Duncan was still alive at that time. Johnny had sat quietly beside him until the big man was properly stuffed with venison and was quiet except for a few belches. That big tomb, Johnny had said abruptly. Uh, what big what? Mayor Duncan had snorted. The place up the dark canyon where they used to put the dead people. What place? Johnny had taken out the bright bird badge 
and shown it to Mayor Duncan. Duncan had looked at it, twisting his head this way and that, twisting the badge this way and that. Parson Staffer, brighter in those days, had reached across the fire in a sudden swoop and grabbed the badge. The ensuing interrogation had not been pleasant, about young boys who went to places that were forbidden and got everybody in trouble and didn't listen at conferences where they had to learn legends and were too smart anyway. Mayor Duncan, however, had himself been curious and finally pinned Parson Staffer into recounting an applicable legend. A tomb of the old gods, the parson had finally said. Nobody has been there in living memory. Small boys do not count. But it was said to exist by my great-grandfather when he was still alive, and he lived a long time. The gods used to come into these mountains, and they buried the great men in huge caverns. When the lightning flashed on High Peak, it was because the gods had come to bury a great man from over the water. Once, there were thousands and thousands living in big villages a hundred times the size of this one. These villages were to the east, and it is said there is the remains of one straight east where thousands lived. And the place was flat, except for some hills. And when a great man died there, the gods brought him to the tomb of the gods. Parson Staffer had shaken the badge. This was placed on the foreheads of the great when they were laid to rest in the great tomb of the gods. And that's what it is. And ancient law says that nobody is supposed to go there. And everybody had better stay away from there forever. Especially little boys. And he had put the badge in his pouch. And that was the last Johnny ever saw of it. After all, Staffer was a holy man and in charge of holy things. Nevertheless, Johnny thought his father should have been buried in the tomb of the gods. Johnny had never been back there again and thought of it only when he saw lightning hit High Peak. But he wished he had buried his father there. Are you worried? Asked Chrissy. Johnny looked down at her, his reverie broken. The dying fire wove a reddish sheen into her hair and sparked in her dark eyes. It's my fault, said Johnny. Chrissy smiled and shook her head. Nothing could be Johnny's fault. Yes, it is. There's something wrong with this place. My father's bones. In the last year, they just crumbled like that skeleton's in the Tomb of the Gods. The Tomb of the what? Said Chrissy, idly. If Johnny wanted to talk nonsense, it was all right with her. At least he was talking to her. I should have buried him there. He was a great man. He taught me a lot of things. How to braid grass rope. How to wait for a puma to crouch before you stepped aside and hit him as he sprang. They can't turn in midair, you know. How to cut hide into strips. Johnny, you aren't guilty of anything. <sighs> it was a bad funeral. Johnny, it's the only funeral I remember. No, it was not a good funeral. 
Stafford didn't preach a funeral sermon. He talked. I didn't listen because I was helping gather strawberries. But I know he talked. Did he say something bad? No, only it didn't apply. Well, what did he say, Johnny? Oh, you know, all that stuff about God being angry with the people. Everybody knows that legend. I can quote it myself. Quote it. Johnny sniffed a little impatiently. But she was interested, and it made him feel a little better. And then there came a day when God was wroth, and wearied he was of the fornicating and pleasure dallying of the people. And he did cause a wondrous cloud to come, and everywhere it struck. The anger of God snuffed out the breath and breathing of ninety-nine out of a hundred men. And disaster lay upon the land, and plagues and epidemics rolled and smote the unholy. And when it was done, the wicked were gone, and only the holy and righteous, the true children of the Lord, remained upon the stark and bloodied field. But God even then was not sure, and so he tested them. He sent monsters upon them to drive them to the hills and secret places. And lo, the monsters hunted them and made them less and less, until at last all men remaining were the only holy, the only blessed, the only sure righteous upon earth. Amen! Oh, that one. You say it very nicely, Johnny. <sighs> it's my fault, said Johnny morosely. I should have made my father listen. There is something wrong with this place. I am certain that if he had listened, and we moved elsewhere, he would be alive today. I feel it. Where else is there? There's that whole great plain out there. Weeks of riding on it, I am sure. And they say man once lived in a big village out there. Oh no, Johnny. The monsters. I've never seen a monster. You've seen the shiny flashing things that sail overhead every few days. Ah, oh, those. The sun and moon sail overhead, too. So do the stars, and even shooting stars. Chrissy was frightened suddenly. Johnny, you're not going to do something. I am. With first light, I am going to ride out and see if there really was a big village in the plains. <sighs> Chrissy felt her heart contract. She looked up at his determined profile. It was as though she was sinking down, down into the earth. As though she lay in today's grave. Oh, please, Johnny. No, I'm going. Johnny, I'll go with you. No, you stay here. He thought fast, something to deter her. I may be gone for a whole year. Water got into her sight. What will I do if you don't come back? I'll come back. Johnny, if you don't come back in a year, I'll come looking for you. Johnny frowned. He scented blackmail. Johnny, if you're leaving, you see those stars up there? When they come back to the same place next year and you haven't returned, I will come looking. You'd be killed out in the plains. The pigs, the wild cattle. Johnny. That is what I will do. I swear it, Johnny. You think I'd just wander off and never return? That's what I will do, Johnny. You can go. But that's what I will do.
Part 1, Chapter 5 The first dawn light was painting High Peak Rose. It was going to be a beautiful day. Johnny Goodboy was completing the packing of a lead horse. Windsplitter was sidling about, biting at the grass, but not really eating. He had his eye on Johnny. They were obviously going somewhere, and Windsplitter was not going to be left out. Some wisps of smoke were coming from the breakfast fire of the Jimson family nearby. They were roasting a dog. Yesterday at the funeral feast, nearly a score of dogs had gotten into an idiot fight. There had been plenty of bones and meat as well, but the pack had gotten into a fight and a big brindle had been killed. Looked like the Jimson family would have meat all day. Johnny was trying to keep his mind on petty details and off Chrissy and Patty, who were standing there watching him quietly. Brown Limper Staffer was also there, idling about in the background. He had a club foot and should have been killed at birth. But he was the only child the Staffers had ever had. And Staffer was parson after all. Maybe mayor, too, since there wasn't any now. There was no affection whatever between Johnny and Brown Limper. During the funeral dancing, Brown had sat on the sidelines making sneering remarks about the dancing, about the funeral, about the meat, about the strawberries. But when he had made a remark about Johnny's father, Maybe never had a bone in the right place. Johnny had hit him a backhand cuff. Made Johnny ashamed of himself, hitting a cripple. Brown Limper stood crookedly, a faint blue bruise on his cheek, watching Johnny get ready. Wishes of bad luck written all over him. Two other boys of similar age, there were only five in the whole village who were in their late teens, wandered up and asked Brown what was going on. Brown shrugged. Johnny kept his mind carefully on his business. He was probably taking too much, but he didn't know what he'd run into. Nobody knew. In the two buckskin sacks he was roping on either side of the lead horse, he had flintstones for fire, rat's nests for tinder, bundles of cut thongs, some sharp-edged rocks that were sometimes hard to find and cut indifferently well, three spare kill clubs, one heavy enough to crush a bear's skull, just in case. Some warm robes that didn't stink very much. A couple of buckskins for spare clothes. He gave a start. He hadn't realized Chrissy had come within a foot of him. He hoped he wouldn't have to talk. Blackmail. That's what it was. Plain as possible and all bad. If she'd said she would kill herself if he didn't come back, well, one could have put that down to girl vaporings. But threatening to follow him in a year put another shadow on it entirely. It meant he would have to be cautious. He'd have to be careful not to get himself killed. It was one thing to worry about his own life. He didn't care a snap for risk or danger. But the thought of Chrissy going down on the plains if he didn't come back made him snow cold at the pit of his stomach. She'd be gored, or mauled, or eaten alive. And every agonizing second of it would be Johnny's fault. She had effectively committed him to caution and care. Just what she intended. She was holding something out to him. Two somethings. One was a large bone needle with a thong hole in it. 
and the other was a skin awl. Both were worn and polished and valuable. They were Mama's, said Chrissy. I don't need anything. No, you have them. I won't need them. If you lose your clothes, she wailed. How are you going to sew? The crowd had thickened. Johnny didn't need any outbursts. He snatched the needle and awl out of her hand and unlatched the neck of a sack and dropped them in, <clears throat> made sure they hadn't missed and dropped out, and then relashed the sack. Chrissy stood more quietly. Johnny turned and faced her. He was a little bit shocked. There wasn't even a smudge of color in her face. She looked like she hadn't slept and had tick fever as well. Johnny's resolution wavered. Then beyond Chrissy, he saw Brown Limper tittering and talking behind his hand to Petey Tomso. Johnny's face went tight. He grabbed Chrissy and kissed her hard. It was as though he had taken a board from an irrigation trough. The tears went down her cheeks. Now look, don't you follow me. She made a careful effort to control her voice. If you don't come back in a year, I will. By all the gods on High Peak, Johnny. He looked at her. Then he beckoned to Windsplitter, who sidled over. With one smooth spring, he mounted. The lead rope of the other horse gripped in his hand. You can have my other four horses, said Johnny to Chrissy. Don't eat them. They're trained. He paused. Unless you get awful hungry, of course, like in the winter. Chrissy hung on to his leg for a moment, and then she stepped back and sagged. Johnny thumped Windsplitter with a heel, and they moved off. This was going to be no wild free ride to adventure. This was going to be a tiptoe scout with care. Chrissy had seen to that. At the entrance to the defile, he looked back. About 15 people were still standing there watching him go. They all looked dejected. He used a heel signal to make Windsplitter rear and waved his hand. They all waved back with sudden animation. Then Johnny was gone down the dark canyon trail to the wide and unknown plains. The rest of the people drifted off. Chrissy still stood there, hoping with a wild, crazy hope that he would ride into sight, returning. Patty tugged at her leg. Chrissy! Chrissy, will he come back? Chrissy's voice was very low, her eyes like ashes in a dead fire. Goodbye, she whispered. Part 1, Chapter 6. Turl belched. It was a polite way to attract attention, but the belch didn't make much impression through the whine and howl of machines in the transport department maintenance dome. Zit's concentration on his work became more marked. Mindsight 16's transport chief had little use for the security head. 
Every time a tool or a car or fuel turned up missing, or something was broken, it got attention from security. Three crashed cars were strewn about in various stages of reassembly, one of them very messy with splotches of green cyclo blood in the interior upholstery. The big drills that dangled from the ceiling rails pointed sharp beaks this way and that, idling in their programming. Lathes with nothing in their jaws spun waiting for something to twist and shave. Belts snarled and slapped at each other. Turl watched the surprisingly nimble talons of Zit disassemble the small concentric shells of a high-speed jet engine. Turl had hoped to detect a small tremble or two in Zit's paws. If the transport chief's conscience was bothering him, it would be much easier to do business. There was no tremble. Zit finished the disassembly and threw the last ring on the bench. His yellow orbs contracted as he looked at Turl. Well, what have I done now? Turl lumbered closer and looked around. Where are your maintenance men? We're 15 mechanics under compliment. They were transferred to operations over the last month. I know it and you know it. So why are you here? As chief of security, Turl had learned through experience not to be very straightforward. If he simply asked for a manual reconnaissance plane, the transport chief would demand the emergency voucher, not get it, and say, no transport. And there were no emergencies for security on this dull planet. Not real ones. In hundreds of years of operation, there had not been the slightest security threat to intergalactic mining operations here. A dull security scene, and consequently the chief of that department was not considered very important. Apparent threats had to be manufactured with guile as their sole ingredient. I've been investigating a suspicion of conspiracy to sabotage transport, said Turl. Kept me busy for the last three weeks. He eased his bulk back against a wrecked car. Don't lean on that recon. You'll dent its wing. Turl decided it was better to be friendly and rumbled over to a stool at the bench where Zit was working. Confidentially, Zit. I've had an idea that could get us some outside personnel. I'm working on it, and that's why I need a manual recon. Zit batted his eye bones and sat down on another stool, which creaked despairingly under his thousand-pound bulk. This planet, said Turl confidingly, used to have a sentient race on it. What race was that? asked Zit suspiciously. Man! Zit looked at him searchingly. A security officer was never noted for his sense of humor. Some had been known to bait and entrap, and then file charges. But Zit couldn't help himself. His mouth bones started to stretch, and even though he sought to control them, they spread, and suddenly his laugh exploded in Turl's face. Zit hastily got it under control and turned back to his bench to resume work. <laughs> Anything else on your mind? Asked Zit, as an afterthought. This was not going well, thought Turl. Well, that's what happened when you were frank. It just didn't mix with security. This suspicion of conspiracy to sabotage transport? Said Turl, as he looked around at the wrecked cars with half-lowered eye bones. Could reach. 
to high places. <gasps> Zit threw down a wrench with a clang. A low snarl rumbled in him. He sat there, staring in front of him. He was thinking. What do you really want? He asked at last. A recon plane. For five or six days. Zit got up and yanked a transport schedule clipboard off the wall and studied it. He could hear Turl almost purring. You see this schedule? Said Zit, pushing it under Turl's nose. Well, yes. Do you see where it has six drone recons assigned to security? Of course. And do you see where this has been going on for? Zit peeled back sheet after sheet. Blast for centuries, I suppose. Have to keep a mindsight planet under surveillance, said Turl complacently. Under surveillance for what? Every scrap of ore was spotted and estimated long before your and my living memory. There's nothing out there but mammals, air organisms. There might be a hostile landing. Here? Sneered Zit. Company probes in outer space were detected ages before it ever arrived here. Pearl, transport has to fuel and maintain and recondition those drones two and three times a year. You know and I know the company is on an economy wave. Tell you what. Pearl waited sourly to be told. If you will let us cancel those recon drones, I'll put a tri-wheel ground cycle at your disposal for a limited time. Turl let out a small, shrill scream. Zit amended his bargain. A ground car at your disposal, when ordered. Turl lumbered over to the crashed vehicle that had blood on its seats. Wonder if this was caused by faulty maintenance. Zit stood there, unrelenting. The crash had been caused by too much Kerbango on duty. One recon drone programmed to cover the whole planet. Once a month. One ground car at your permanent disposal. Turl looked at the other wrecks, but couldn't think of anything. These investigations were done and dead. Teach him to close investigations. He wandered back to Zit. One drone recon programmed to cover the whole planet once a month. One armored and firepower ground car at permanent disposal, with no questions on ammunition, breathe gas, or fuel requisitions. Zit took the forms from the bench drawer and made them out. Hmm. He shoved the papers and clipboard at Turl. As he signed, Turl thought to himself that this transport chief really ought to be looked into. Maybe for ore robbery. Zit took the papers back and removed from the switchboard the combination keycard of the oldest and rattiest ground car that was gathering dust in the garage dome. He coupled it with a coupon book for ammo, another for breathe gas, and another for fuel. The deal would never actually become part of recorded history as a deal, for the dates of the orders were carefully not coincident. Neither suspected that they had just materially altered the future of the planet and not for the better of Intergalactic. But that is sometimes the way with large commercial companies. When Turl had left to get his Mark II, armored, firepower, ground car, Zit thought to himself that it was wonderful what lies executives told just to be able to go hunting. Kill mad, they all were. 
machine kill mad too from the jam ups he had to repair. What a story. Man, a sentient race indeed. <laughs> he laughed and got back to work. Part 1, Chapter 7. Johnny Goodboy Tyler galloped free across the vast ocean of grass, Windsplitter exuberantly stretching his legs, the lead horse rollicking along behind. What a day. Blue sky and the wind a cooling freshness on his face. Now two days out, he had come down from the mountains, through the foothills and into the vastest plain he had ever imagined. He could still see the tiniest tip of High Peak behind him, and with the sun, it kept him true on course and reassured him that he could find his way home whenever he wanted. Total security. The herds of wild cattle were many, but he had been living with those all his life. A few wolves, but what were wolves? No bear, no puma so far. Why, in all reverence to the gods, did anybody ever stay cooped up in the mountains? And monsters. What monsters? Huh. <laughs> Crazy tales. Even that shiny, floating cylinder that had gone overhead every few days the whole of his life was overdue down here. It had come from west to east with the regularity of every other heavenly body. But even it seemed to have stopped. On his present course, he would have seen it. In short, Johnny Goodboy Tyler was suffering from a bad case of overconfidence. And the first disaster that hit him had to do with pigs. Pigs were usually easy to kill, if you were a bit nimble and watched out for charges of the boars. And a small suckling pig was exactly what one could use for supper. Right there ahead of him, clear in the late afternoon light, was a compact herd of pigs out in the open. There were big ones and small ones, but they were all fat. Johnny pulled Windsplitter to a halt and slid off. The wind was not quite right, a bit too downwind to the pigs. They'd smell him if he approached directly. With a bent knee run, he brought himself silently around them until the wind was at right angles. He stopped and hefted his club. The tall grass was nearly to his waist. The pigs were rooting around a shallow depression in the plain, where water stood in the wet months making a temporary marsh. There must be roots to be had there, Johnny supposed. There were dozens of pigs, every one with his snout down. With a crouching gait, staying below the grass tops, Johnny went forward, closing the distance, yard by yard. Only a few feet separated him now from the outermost fringe of pigs. Silently he rose until his eyes were just above the level of the grass. A small porker was only three arm spans from him. An easy throw. Here's for supper. Breathed Johnny. And heaved his kill club straight and true at the head of the pig. Dead on. A direct hit. The pig let out an ear splitter and dropped. But that wasn't all that happened. 
Instant confusion roared. Hidden from Johnny by the tall grass and slightly behind him and to his right, a 500-pound boar who had become tired of eating had lain down for a nap. The squeal of the hit pig acted like a whip on the whole herd, and away they went in an instant charge, straight upwind at Johnny's horses. For the big boar, to see was to charge. Johnny felt like he had been struck by a mountain avalanche. He was knocked flat and squashed in instants so close together they felt like one. He rolled, but the whole sky over him was filled with boar belly. He didn't see, but he sensed the teeth and tusks trying to find him. He rolled again, the savage squeals mixing with the roaring pound of the blood in his ears. Once more he rolled, and this time he saw daylight and a back. In the blink of an eye, he was on the boar's back. He reached an arm across the throat. The boar spun around and around like a bucking horse. Johnny's arm tightened until he could feel his sinews crack. And then the boar, strangled, dropped into a limp, jerking pile. Johnny unloaded quickly and backed up. The boar was gasping its breath back. It lurched to unsteady feet and seeing no opponent, staggered off. Johnny went over and picked up the small pig, keeping an eye on the departing boar. But the boar, although it cast about and made small convulsive charges, still couldn't see anybody. And after a bit, it trotted in the direction the herd had taken, following the trampled grass. There was no herd in sight. And there were no horses. No horses. Johnny stood there with the dead pig. He had no sharp rock to cut it. He had no flints to start a fire and roast it. And he had no horses. It might be worse. He looked at his legs, expecting to see tusk gashes, but he found none. His back and face ached a bit from the collision of the charge and his own collision with the ground, but that was all. Mentally kicking himself, more ashamed than scared, he made off in the direction of the trail of crushed grass. After a while, his depression wore off a bit, to be replaced by optimism. He began to whistle a call. Horses would not have just gone on running in front of the pigs. They would have veered off somewhere. Just as darkness was falling, he spotted Windsplitter, calmly cropping grass. The horse looked up with a, where have you been? And then, with a plainly mischievous grin, as though he had intended to all the time, came over and bumped Johnny with his muzzle. It took another 10 minutes of anxious casting about to locate the lead horse and the packs. Johnny went back a short way to a little spring they'd passed and made camp. There he made himself a belt and a pouch, and into the latter he put tinder and a flint and some small sharp-edged stones. He put a stronger thong on the big kill club and fastened it to the belt. He wasn't going to be caught empty-handed a second time in this vast prairie. No, indeed. That night he dreamed of Chrissy being strangled by pigs. Chrissy mauled by bears. Chrissy crushed to a pulp under stampeding hoofs while he stood helpless in the sky where the spirits go, unable to do a damned thing.
Part 1, Chapter 8 The great village where thousands had lived was obviously another one of those myths, like monsters. But he would look for it nonetheless. By the half-light of the yellowing dawn, Johnny was again trotting eastward. The plain was changing. There were some features about it that didn't seem usual, such as those mounds. Johnny detoured from his way into the sun to look at one of them. He stopped, leaning forward with a hand braced on Windsplitter's shoulder to study the place. It was a little sort of hill, but it had a hole in the side. A rectangular hole. Otherwise, the mound was all covered with dirt and grass. Some freak of nature? A window opening? He slid off his horse and approached it. He walked around it. Then he paced it out. It was about thirty-five paces long and ten paces wide. Ha! Maybe the mound was rectangular, too. An old, splintered stump stood to one side, and Johnny appropriated a jagged piece of it. <clears throat> he approached the window and, using the scrap of wood, began to push away the grass edges. It surprised him that he seemed to be digging not in earth, but in loose sand. When he got the lower part of the rectangle cleared, he could get right up to it and look into it. The mound was hollow. He backed up and looked at his horses and then around at the countryside. There wasn't anything menacing there. He bent over and started to crawl into the mound. And the window bit him. He straightened right up and looked at his wrist. It was bleeding. It wasn't a bad cut. It was that he was cut at all that startled him. Very carefully, he looked at the window. It had teeth. Well, maybe they weren't teeth. They were dull, bright, and had a lot of colors in them, and they stood all around the outside edges of the frame. He pulled one of them out. They were very loose. He took a bit of thong from his belt and tried it. Wonder of wonders. The tooth readily cut the thong, far better than the best rock edge. <laughs> hey, he thought, delighted. Look what I got. And with the greatest care, for the things did bite unless you were careful, he removed the splinters, big and small, from the frame and stacked them neatly. He went to his pack and got a piece of buckskin and wrapped them up. Valuable. You could cut and skin and scrape something wonderful with these things. Some kind of rock. Or this mound was the skull of some strange beast, and these were the remains of its teeth. Wonderful. When he had them all, and they were carefully stowed in his pack, except one nice bit he put in his belt pouch, he returned to the task of entering the mound. There was nothing to bite him now, and he climbed through the rectangle. There wasn't any pit. The level of the inside seemed to be a bit higher than the outside ground. A sudden flurry startled him half out of his wits. But it was just a bird that had a nest in here, and it left through the window with a rustle of wings. Once outside, it found a place to sit and began to scold and scold. Johnny fumbled his way through the dimness. There wasn't much there, mainly rust. But there had been things there. He could tell from the rust piles and wall marks. Walls? Yes, the place had walls. 
They were of some sort of rough stone or something, very evenly fitted together in big square blocks. Yes, these were walls. No animal made anything like this. And no animal made anything like this tray. It must have been part of something else, now turned to reddish powder. At the bottom of the powder were some circular disks, about as big as three thumbnails. And at the bottom of the pile of disks was one that was almost bright. Johnny picked it up and turned it over. He caught his breath. He moved over to the window where there was better light. There could be no mistake. It was the big bird with spread wings and arrows gripped in its claws. The same sign he had found in the tomb. He stood in quivering excitement for a bit, and then calmed down. He had it now. The mystery was solved. And he went back out the window and showed Windsplitter. Godhouse, said Johnny. This is where they stayed while waiting to take great men up to the tomb. <laughs> Pretty, isn't it? Windsplitter finished <laughs> chewing a mouthful of grass and gave Johnny a shove in the chest. It was time they were going. Johnny put the disc in his belt pouch. Well, it was no great village, but it proved definitely that there were things to find out here in the plains. Walls. Imagine that. Those gods could build walls. The bird stopped scolding in some relief as Johnny mounted up and moved away. It looked after the little cavalcade and then, with a couple more criticisms, went back inside the ancient ruin. Part 1, Chapter 9 Turl was as happy as a baby cyclo on a diet of straight kerbango. Although it was late in the day, he was on his way. He steered the Mark II ground car down the ramp, through the atmosphere port, and into the open air. There was a warning plaque on the ledge in front of the driver's seat. Battle readiness must be observed at all times. Although this tank is compression contained, Personal face masks and independent breathing systems must be kept in place. Personal and unauthorized battle use prohibited. Signed, Political Department, Intergalactic Mining Company, Vice Director Zot. <laughs> Turl grinned at the sign. In the absence of political officers, on a planet where there was no indigenous politics, and in the absence of a war department, on a planet that had nothing to war against, the chief of security covered both those functions. That this old battle car existed on the planet at all meant that it must be very, very old. And in addition, must have gotten there as a result of fixed allocations of vehicles to company stations. Clerks in Planet One, Galaxy One offices were not always well advised when they wrote their endless directives and orders to the far-flung outposts of the commercial empire. Turl threw his personal face mask and tank onto the gunner's seat beside him and rubbed a thankful paw over his craggy face. 
What a lark. The old car ran like a well-greased digger. Small, not more than 30 feet long and 10 feet high, it skimmed above the ground like a low-flying wingless bird. Cunning mathematics had contoured it so that every exterior surface would make a hostile projectile glance off at an angle. Missile-proof glass slots gave a fine view of the terrain. Even the blast muzzles of its artillery were cleverly recessed. The interior upholstery, though worn and cracked in places, was a beautiful, soothing shade of purple. Turl felt good. He had five days of jet fuel and breathe gas and five days of rations in their ten-pound packs. He had cleaned up every scrap of paper in his baskets and had started no new emergencies. He had a borrowed shaft analysis picto-recorder that would take great pictures when put to other uses. And he was on his way. A break in the dull life of a security chief on a planet without insecurities. A planet that wasn't likely to produce many opportunities for an ambitious security chief to get promotion and advancement. It had been a gut blow when they ordered him to Earth. He wondered at once what he had done, whom he had accidentally insulted, whose bad side he had gotten on. But they assured him that none of these was the case. He was young. A cyclo had a lifespan of about 190 years, and Turl had been only 39 when he had been appointed. It was pointed out to him that few ever became security chiefs at such a tender age. It would show in his record that he had been one. And when he came back from the duty tour, they would see. Plums, like planets you could breathe on, went to older cyclos. He had not been fooled, really. Nobody in security personnel pool Planet One, Galaxy One, had wanted anything at all to do with this post. He could hear the future assignment interview now. Hmm. Last post? Earth. Where? Earth, Rimstar, third planet, secondary galaxy 16. Oh. What did you accomplish on that post? It's all in the record. Yes, but there's nothing in the record. There must be something. Let me see it. No, no. Confidential company record. And then the final horror. Employee tell. It just happens that we have an opening in another Rimstar system. Galaxy 32. It's a quiet place. No indigenous life and no atmosphere at all. Or even worse. Employee tell. Intergalactic has been dropping for some time on the exchange. And we have orders to economize. I'm afraid your record doesn't recommend continued employment. Don't call us. We'll call you. He already had a bit of scribble on the wall. A month ago, he'd received word that his tour of duty had been extended, and there was no mention of his relief. A little bit of horror had touched him. A vision of a 190-year-old Turl tottering around on this same planet, long forgotten by friends and family, ending his days in a dome-crazy stupor. 
lowered into a slit-trench grave, and ticked off the roster by a clerk who kept the records neat, but didn't know a single face on them. Such questionable fates required action. Big action. There were better daydreams. Waiting in a big entrance hall, uniformed ushers at attention bud, one of them whispering to another, Who's that? And the other, Don't you know? That's Turl. And the big doors opening. The president of the company is waiting to thank you, sir. Please, come this way. According to the mine surveys, there was an ancient highway to the north of here. Turl flipped the ground car onto auto and spread out a big map. There it was, running east and west. And west was where he wanted to go. It would be busted up and overgrown, maybe even hard to spot, but it would have no steep grades, and it would run squarely up into the mountains. Turl had drawn a big circle around the target meadow. There was the highway ahead. He threw the controls to manual and fumbled a bit. He hadn't driven one of these things since security school years ago, and his uncertain control made the car yaw. He zoomed up the side embankment of the road and yanked back the throttles and pawed the brakes. The car slammed to earth in a geysering puff of dust, square in the center of the highway. It was a pretty jolting stop, but not bad. Not bad. He'd get better at it. He picked up his face mask and tank and donned them. Then he hit the decompression button so the tanks would recontain the breathe gas without waste. There was a momentary vacuum a trifle uncomfortable on the hearing bones, and then with a sigh, the outside air entered the cab. Turl swung open the top hatch and stood up on the seat, the tank creaking and shuddering under his repositioned weight. The wind felt cool outside the borders of his face mask. He gazed around with some distaste. This sure was wide country, and empty. The only sound was the whisper of wind in the grass, and the sound of silence, vast silence. Even a far-off bird call made the silence heavier. The earth was tan and brown. The grass and occasional shrubs were green. The sky was an expansive blue, specked with white puffs of clouds. A strange country. People on home planet wouldn't believe it, no purple anywhere. With a sudden inspiration, Turl reached down into the car and grabbed the picto recorder. He aimed it in a sweeping circle, letting it grind away. He'd send his folks a spool of this. Then they'd believe him when he said it was one horn's awful of a planet, and maybe sympathize with him. My daily view, he said into the recorder as he finished the sweep. The words rumbled through his mask, sounding sad. There was something purple. Straight west, there were some mountains, and they looked purple. He put the picto recorder down and grinned at the mountains so far away. This was better than he thought. No wonder men lived up in the mountains. They were purple. Maybe the men were a bit sentient after all. He hoped so, but not with any great confidence. 
he was probably optimistic. But it gave some substance to his nebulous plans. Still looking westward, he suddenly caught sight of a landscape feature between himself and the mountains. A distant skyline, silhouetted against the declining sun. He shifted a lever on his face mask glass to get magnification. The skyline leaped closer. Yes, he was right. There was a ruined city. Fuzzy and broken, but the buildings still very tall and quite extensive. The wind fluttered his mind map as he looked at it. The ancient highway ran straight west into it. Reaching down, he took a massive tome off the pile he had on the rear crew seat and opened it to a marked place. There was an insert drawing on the page. Some cultural artist had sketched it a few centuries ago. The company had used air-breathing chinkos for cultural posts on planets where there was air. The chinkos had come from Galaxy 2, beings as tall as cyclos, but thread-thin and delicate. They were an old race, and the cyclos didn't like to admit they had learned what they knew of cultural arts from them. But they had been easy to transport, despite breathing air and being feather-light, and they were cheap. Alas, they were no more, not even in Galaxy 2, having initiated a strike of all things. Intergalactic had wiped them out. But that was long after the culture and ethnology department had been terminated on Earth. Turl had never seen a Chinko. Remarkable beings, drawing pictures like this. Colorful, too. Why would anybody draw something? He compared the distant skyline to the sketch. Aside from a bit of blunting and crumbling in the ensuing years, they were the same. The text said, To eastward of the mountains lies the ruin of a man's city, remarkably well-preserved. It was man-called Denver. It is not as aesthetically advanced as those in the middle or eastern part of the continent. The usual miniature doors have little or no ornamentation. The interiors are no more than slightly oversized dollhouses. Utility rather than artistry seems to have been the overall architectural purpose. There are three cathedrals, which were apparently devoted to the worship of different heathen gods, showing that the culture was not monosectarian, even though it may have been dominated by priesthoods. One god, Bank, seems to have been more general in worship. There was a man library remarkably well stocked with books. The department sealed some of the library rooms after removing to archives the only important volumes, those on mining. As no ore bodies were evident under the foundations, and no valuable ore materials were employed by the indigenous population in its construction, the man city remains in a remarkable state of preservation, aided in part by the dry climate. The cost of further restoration is being requisitioned. <laughs> Turl laughed to himself. No wonder the culture and ethnology department had been phased out on this planet if it was applying for credits to reconstruct man's cities. He could hear the counterblast from the directors now. They'd fair put a shaft through the heads of such arty types. Well, it was data he might use in his plans. Who knew? He got back to the business at hand. 
There was the highway, stretching out. He was right in the middle of it. He was a couple of hundred feet wide at this point, and it could be clearly discerned. It probably had two or three feet of sand on top of it, but the growing grass was uniform, and the shrubs to either side, not being able to put down roots directly on it, defined between their two edge rows a straight course. Turl took another look around. There were some cattle, a small herd of horses in the distance. Nothing worth shooting, since no cyclo could eat meat of that metabolism. Nothing dangerous enough to offer sport. It was luxurious to have time to think about hunting, and even to be equipped for it, and even more luxurious not to do it. He had a bigger game going anyway. He dropped down into the driver's seat and punched the buttons to close the top. The unbreathable air exhausted from the cab and was replaced by proper gas. He took off his face mask, contrary to regulations, and dropped it on the gunner's seat. The purple interior was a relief to his nerves. This confounded planet. It even looked bad through the purple tint of the windscreens. He glanced again at the map. Now was the time for some luck. He knew he couldn't go up into the mountains themselves, due to the uranium the recon drones always indicated in that area. But the recon drones also reported that these man-things sometimes came down to the mountain foothills, which were safe enough. Turl thought over his plans again. They were beautiful plans. Personal wealth. Personal power. The recon drones had told him more than others knew. The scans had pointed out a vein of almost solid gold, uncovered by a landslide after intergalactic surveys were finalized. A delicious, fabulously rich vein of gold in plain sight. A vein about which the company was ignorant, since the landslide was recent and Turl had destroyed the records. A joke on Zit to propose no more recon drones over the area. The uranium count in that area of the mountains was formidable, and so no cyclo could mine it. Even a few bits of uranium dust could explode cyclo-breathe gas. <laughs> Turl smiled at his own genius. All he needed was a man-thing, and then a few more man-things. They could mine it, and to blast with uranium. Somehow he would get the gold off the planet and home, and he had ideas about how he could do that too. Then wealth and power, and no more of this place. All the security chief had to do was keep others from suspecting what he was really doing, to advertise quite other reasons. But Turl was an expert at that. If he were truly lucky, he could catch a man-thing this side of the meadow, he did not have too much time to lie in wait. He felt lucky. The sun was very low, thanks to his late start. He'd lie up in that man's city for the night, sleeping in the car. He sent the Mark II skimming along the ancient highway.
Part 1, Chapter 10. A skyline! Johnny Goodboy Tyler pulled up with a yank, so sudden he startled Windsplitter into a rear. There it was, straight east. It wasn't hills or mountains. It wasn't some trick of the eye. It was sharp and rectangular. He had been so unconvinced. When he had left the ancient ruin, he found a very easy way to travel. It was almost as if the ruin with the window had once had a broad path leading to it. There were shrubs on the right and shrubs on the left, two rows about 200 feet apart that dwindled eastward into the distance. Underfoot, there was fairly even grass. You had to watch it a bit because there were shallow gullies in places. When you looked down between these little gullies, there was something gray-white. Johnny had inspected it with care. He had gotten down and dug at the edges of such a crack, and it seemed that the gray-white stuff was continuous, just like the inner walls of the ruin. Maybe it was a wall of the ancients, fallen over sideways. But no, it would have cracked as it fell. Outside the courthouse at home, level stones had been laid as pavement, but who wanted a pavement 200 feet wide and an hour's journey long? For what? This big path had not been used for a long time, if it was a path. It went between hillocks that had been sliced into and it went across water courses, although it was pretty irregular and broken in these. He had been excited for a while, but then he got used to it and devoted his attention mainly to keeping Windsplitter from tripping in the little gullies. When he was a little boy, one of the families had had a wheeled cart they hauled firewood in, and he had been told that once there had been a lot of carts, even one that was pulled by a mare. Well, you could sure roll a cart on this wide turf and roll it fast and far. But as to the great village, he was coming to believe as the afternoon wore on that somebody had probably seen that godhouse back there and multiplied it in his imagination. And then suddenly, there it was. But was it? He put Windsplitter up to a trot, regardless of the little gullies. In the clear air, the skyline wasn't coming his way very fast. It even appeared to be receding. He stopped. Maybe it was a trick of the eye after all. But no, the lines it made were up and down and flat on top, and there was an awful lot of it. It wasn't hills or mountains. Only building sides could be that regular. He started up again, more sedately, remembering now to be careful. And after a while, he could see that he was getting closer. The sun was coming down, and he wasn't there yet. The prospect of entering that place in the dark was definitely not cheering. Who knew what it might be full of? Ghosts? Gods? People? Monsters? Ah, no. Not monsters. They were just the stuff mamas frightened their kids to sleep with. He pulled off the path where it crossed a stream and made camp. He warmed up some of his roasted pork and then cut it with one of the sharp, shiny things he had taken out of the window. My, he marveled. Imagine anything cutting like that. It would make life a real pleasure. You had to watch it not to cut your own fingers, as he had already done twice, slightly. Maybe you could bed the cutting edge in wood or something for a handle. 
Then you would really have something. After supper, he built up his fire to keep the wolves off. A couple were sitting over there now, amber-eyed in the reflected firelight and looking hungry. Run away! shouted Johnny. Or I'll be wearing your hides! But the wolves just sat there. Windsplitter and the lead horse didn't want to go away from the fire. The wolves made them nervous. So Johnny picked up a couple of rocks, fist-sized, from the nearby stream bed. He wasn't interested in hunting wolves, but his horses had to find grass. <clears throat> he threw a pork bone about ten feet beyond the fire and in the direction of the wolves. Big, rangy things they were. One slunk forward, belly low, snarling to reach the pork bone. In a moment, the wolf's attention would be fixed on the bone. Johnny's arm blurred. The far wolf caught the rock squarely between his eyes. Johnny's arm blurred again. The near wolf didn't jump in time, and he too was a dead wolf. Johnny said to Windsplitter, I gotta do all the work, is that it? And he walked over to the far wolf and hauled the carcass to the fire. <coughs> then he dragged the closer one in. Nope, neither one had a pelt worth taking at this time of the year. And they had ticks, too. Go on and eat, he told the horses. He built up the fire again, just in case the wolves had friends, and rolled up in his robes. Tomorrow was going to be the day. Part 1, Chapter 11 Johnny approached the great village cautiously. He was up before first light, and the yellow dawn found him in the outskirts of the place, peering, halting, looking closer at the strange sights, nervous. Sand lay over everything, and grass and even scrub grew in the wide paths between the buildings. He gave a start every time a rabbit or a rat came tearing out of the ancient structures, disturbed by his footfalls. Even though the hoofs were muffled by the grass and sand, the silence of the place was so intense that any disturbance of it seemed overloud. He had never heard an echo before to notice it. The return of sound caused him a great deal of worry. For a little while he thought there must be another horse walking in the distance. But at last, he worked it out. He hit his wrist kill club against the one in his belt and promptly heard the same sound repeated softly, like a mockery. He waited, but no further mock occurred. Then he hit the clubs together again and the same sound returned. He decided it didn't happen unless he did it first. He looked about him. To both his left and his right were the tall remains of buildings, very tall indeed pitted by wind erosion, discolored by endless centuries of weather, they still stood flat and even and imposing. Astonishing. Whoever could build such things? Gods, perhaps? He eyed the massive size of the building blocks. No man could lift one by himself. 
Johnny sat his horse in the middle of what must have been the main path of the great village. He frowned, straining to comprehend the building of such a place. Many men? But how could they reach so high? He concentrated laboriously. Gradually, he could conceive that if one built up steps of logs, and if many, many men put ropes around a block, and if they carried it up the steps, and then took the steps away, they might have done it. Marvelous, dizzy, and dangerous. But it was possible. Satisfied that it didn't need gods or monsters to have made this place, and therefore very relieved, he continued his exploration. He wondered whether some odd kind of tree had grown along this path. He got down and looked at the stump of one. It was hard and jagged. It had been hollow, and it was deep in the strange rock. It wasn't wood. It was a reddish metal, and when you scraped away the red powder, underneath was black. He looked up and down both sides of the wide path. The placing of these things was very precise. Although he couldn't figure out what they were for, it was obvious that, like buildings, they were placed objects. The innumerable windows surrounded him, seeming to stare back at him. The morning sun had come now, and it shone into those that faced it. Here and there were vast surfaces of the shiny stuff he had collected from the mound on the plain. It was not clear. It was whitish and bluish, like the cataracts on an old man's eyes. But there were whole sheets of it in some places. He began to realize it was some kind of covering, perhaps to keep out the cold and heat and yet let in light. People at home sometimes did that, using the tissue of animal stomachs. But those who had built the great village had access to some kind of rock or hard substance that came in sheets. They must have been very clever people. He saw a great yawning doorway ahead of him. The doors had fallen away and lay there half buried in the sand. The inside of the building gaped darkly. Johnny walked his horse through the door and looked about in the dimness. Debris was scattered all about, rotted and decayed beyond identification. But a waist-high series of platforms stood. They were of a remarkably white stone that had bluish veins in it. He leaned down from his horse and stared at the walls behind them. There were heavy, heavy doors set into it. Two of them ajar, one of them wide open. Big wheels of still bright metal were inset into them. Johnny stepped to the platforms of white stone and dropped to the other side. Cautiously, he approached the open niche. There were shelves, and on the shelves, tangled with rotted remains of some kind of sacking, were mounds and mounds and mounds of disks. Some were a dull gray, almost tarnished away, but one pile was bright yellow. Johnny picked up a disk. It was as wide across as two fingernails and remarkably heavy. He turned it over and his eyes bugged. Here was that bird again. Talons gripping a bundle of arrows. Hastily, he pawed into the other mounds, looking at disc after disc. Most of them had a bird on one side. The face of a man, the faces of different men, were on the other. 
face of a man. And some of them had women on them. This was not a god symbol. This was a man symbol. The bird with the arrows belonged to man. The shock of it sent him reeling. He supported himself against the wall of the niche for minutes. He felt his head buzzing with the readjustment of ideas. These doors to the niches were man-made. The great village was man-made. The doors of the tomb in the mountains were of similar material, even if larger. The tomb was not a god tomb. The mound out on the plain was also man-made. Man had once built things. He was certain of it. And it would take many men to make this great village. Therefore, there must have been many men at one time. He rode his horse out of the place in a deep daze. His most basic ideas and values had suffered severe shifts, and it took a lot of getting used to. What legends were true? Which ones were false? There was the legend of the Great Village, and here it was. Man had obviously made it and had lived here in forgotten times. Maybe the legend of God getting angry with man and wiping him out was true, and maybe it wasn't. Maybe it had just been a big storm. He looked around the paths and buildings. There was no evidence of a storm. The buildings were still standing. Many even had that strange thin sheeting in the windows. There were no bodies about, but from a time so long ago, bones wouldn't last. And then he saw a structure that had its doors firmly closed and sheets of metal fastened where the windows should be. And looking closer, he saw that a huge metal clamp sealed the place. He got down and inspected the clamp. It was of a different age than the village. There was no tarnish on it at all. It was old, but not that old. Something or someone at some time had pushed aside the sand in front of the doors. It was grass-grown sand, but it had been disturbed. Johnny frowned. This building was not like the rest. It was in a fair state of preservation. Somebody had put metal sheets on the windows, and the metal was quite different from any in the rest of the town. It showed no signs of corrosion. Somebody had given this building special treatment. He backed up to get a better overall view. It was indeed a different kind of building. Fewer windows, block solid. As an experienced tracker, Johnny studied the time differences here. Long, long after the village had been abandoned, somebody had made access to this place, made a path, even dug a path in and out of the doors, and then fastened the doors thoroughly. But even that had been a long time ago. Curious, he scanned the front facade. One of the metal window covers was loose. It was higher than his head, so he stood on his horse and pried at it. It gave a little bit. Encouraged, he shoved the handle of his kill club into the crack, and with a protesting whine, the cover suddenly sprang loose, startling Windsplitter, who moved off. Johnny held onto the ledge, his feet dangling. He pulled himself up. The transparent sheeting under the cover was still in place. He took his kill club and managed to hit it. The crash and tinkle of the stuff as it fell was shockingly loud in this quiet place. Experienced now with the cutting quality of this stuff, Johnny hung on to the ledge with one arm 
and cleaned up the jagged bits from one side of the frame and dusted off the ledge. He pulled himself through. The place was so dark that it took quite a while to see anything. Light was coming through in thin cracks where other windows remained covered. At length his eyes adjusted and he dropped cautiously down into the huge room. Now that he was not blocking the window's light, he could see quite well. Dust and sand were only a filmy cover over things. There were tables and tables and tables, and chairs and chairs and chairs, all marshaled in orderly rows. But they were not the interesting things. Almost every wall was covered with shelving. The stacks of shelves even protruded out into the room. Somebody had covered them with a sheeting you could see through. Something lay under the sheeting on every shelf. Johnny approached cautiously. He carefully removed the fastenings to the sheeting and looked behind it. Queer, thick rectangles stood on these shelves, rows of them. At first he thought it was all one piece, and then he found that one could remove a single rectangle. He took one off the shelf. It almost fell to pieces in his hands. Awkwardly, he juggled to hold it together, and then succeeded. What a strange object. It was a box that wasn't a box. The covers slid sideways away from each other, enclosing a packet of thin, remarkably thin, slices that had black marks on them. Lots of little, tiny black marks, all in orderly rows. What a strange object. How complicated. He put the first one back on the shelf and took a second, smaller one. It, too, fell open. Johnny found himself staring at a picture. It didn't have depth. At first, it seemed to, but his finger told him it was just a flat plane. The object there was a big red circle, much bigger than a strawberry, much smoother. It had a stem, and alongside it there was a black tent with a crossbar in the middle of it. He turned the sheet. There was a picture of a bee. No bee was ever that big, but this was certainly a bee. It too looked three-dimensional until his finger told him it wasn't, and a black thing beside it had two bulges on it. Johnny turned another sheet. There was a cat, a small cat to be sure, but it was definitely a cat, and it had a curved black thing beside it like a new moon. A few pages later, there was a picture of a fox, and beside it was a black pole with two flags coming off it. Suddenly, a quiver went through Johnny. He held his breath. He grabbed the first object he had taken and pried it open again. There was the tent. There was the bee's black mark. Yes, and there was the pole with two flags. He held the two rectangles, his head in a whirl. He stared at them. There was a meaning here. Foxes? Bees? Cats? Tents? Bulges? New moons? These things had meanings in them. But about what? Animals? Weather? He could sort all that out later. He crowded the two rectangles into his belt pouch. Anything that was connected to weather and animals had value. Rectangles with meaning in them. The idea made bright lights pop in your skull. He replaced the protective sheet, went back out the window, replaced the metal covering as well as he could, and whistled Windsplitter over, dropping down to the horse's back. Johnny looked around him expansively. 
Who knew what things of enormous value were in the great village? He felt rich, excited. There was no reason at all for his people to stay cooped up there in the mountains. Here was shelter and to spare. Here was firewood growing in the streets. Here were rooms and rooms and rooms. And come to think of it, he felt better since he'd been away from the mountain meadow. Better physically. And it hadn't taken a year, actually just a few days. He gathered up the lead rope of his pack horse, and they trotted briskly along the wide paths toward the eastern part of the great village. Although his eyes were busy taking it all in, his mind was engrossed in organizing a migration from the mountains down to this place. What he would have to pick up for evidence to convince them. What he was going to say to Staffer. How they could transport their goods. Maybe build a cart? Maybe there were carts right here in the great village? He could round up some horses? These piles of red dust he saw along either side of the wide paths from time to time might once have been carts of a sort. It was hard to figure out what shape they had really had. They were so caved in. The impression of a wheel, sheets of translucent rock. No, they hadn't been horse carts, or had they? He began to look at such objects more closely. And then he saw the insect. Part 1, Chapter 12. It was very bright daylight now, and there it sat. There could be no mistaking it. Alien. Surely it must be an insect. Only cockroaches looked like that. Or beetles. No, cockroaches. But there were no cockroaches that big. Not 30 feet long, and 10 feet high, and maybe 12 feet side to side. A horrible brown color. And smooth. Johnny had stopped, the lead horse bunched up behind. The thing was sitting squarely in the middle of the wide path. It seemed to have two eyes in front, slitted. There was nothing like this on the plains or in the mountains, and he had seen nothing like it in the great village center. It looked new, with very little dust on it, and shiny. He felt it was alive. There was something about it. Yes, alive. Not inanimate metal, but a living thing. Then he saw what made him think so. There had been a slight rocking motion. Something moved behind the slitted eyes. Johnny, making no sudden movements, turned wind splitter and pulling the lead horse began to move away in the direction from which he had approached. He had already noted that these paths were mostly rectangular and that you could go all the way around a group of buildings and come back to the same place. There was open country to the east, not very far. He would go down a side path and then circle back and get out into the plains. Hopefully, he could outrun it, if it moved. There was an ear-splitting roar. Johnny glanced back in terror. The thing rose up three feet above the ground. Dust flew from below it, 
It began to inch forward. It was alive. He put Windsplitter into a gallop, straight down the street. He passed one corner path, two. The thing was falling behind. It was now two corners back. He swerved Windsplitter up a side path, yanking the lead horse with him. They reached another corner, and again he turned. Up ahead were two tall buildings. He'd keep going and reach the open country. He'd make it. And then suddenly there was a sheet of flame. Ahead of him, the right-hand building exploded apart. Its top slid slowly down and into the street ahead, blocking it. Spattered with whoa, dust, whoa, whoa. Johnny hauled up short. He could hear the roaring of the thing somewhere beyond the rubble. He listened, holding his breath. The position of the roar was changing. It was shifting to the right. He traced it with his ears. He was going on down the other street. Now it was level with him. Now it was getting behind him. The thing had somehow blocked the street ahead of him and then gone on, planning to come up behind him. He was trapped. Johnny looked at the smoking mound of fresh rubble ahead of him. It rose 20 feet above the pavement, a steep barricade. There was no panic in him now. He slowed the hard pounding of his heart. The thing to do was wait until the monster was right in the street behind him, then go over that barricade. He sidled Windsplitter back to get a good run. The thing was roaring down the side path behind him. Now it was turning. He glanced back. There it was, wisps of smoke coming out of its nostrils. Johnny put the heel to Windsplitter. He yanked on the lead rope. Yeah! Shouted Johnny. The horses sprinted at the barricade, rough and full of loose stones, dangerous. Up they scrambled, rubble slid. Pray the gods no broken legs. Up they went. They hit the top. One glance back showed the thing rolling up to the very bottom of the barricade. Johnny sent the horses down in a turmoil of tumbling debris. They hit the street before them at a run and kept running. The walls racketed with the thunder of their run. Johnny swerved through a checkerboard of paths, edging to the open country. He could not hear the roaring thing now over the powerful thud of the running hoofs. Further and further, the buildings were thinning. He saw open country between two structures to his right and skidded down off the embankment and raced for freedom. As soon as he had free running space everywhere but toward the town, he slowed. Windsplitter and the lead horse were blowing and puffing. It's okay. He walked them until they caught their breath, casting his eyes restlessly up and down the edges of the town behind them. Then he caught the roaring again. He strained his eyes, watching. There it was. It slid out from among the buildings and started straight toward him. He put the horses up to a trot. The thing was closing Come the on. distance. Yeah. He put the yeah. horses up to a run. The thing not only closed the distance, but started to pass him. Johnny swerved at right angles. The thing banked into a turn and flashed by him, went well ahead, turned, and blocked his way. Johnny pulled up. There it was, ugly, roaring, gleaming. He turned around and began to run away from it. It let out a blasting roar, scorched by him and again stopped, blocking his way. Johnny's face tightened into determination. He took his biggest kill club from his belt. 
He put the thong solidly on his wrist. He cast off the lead horse. Walking Windsplitter, he went up ahead of the thing. It didn't move. He went about a hundred feet in front of the thing. It didn't move. He carefully spotted the position of a slitted eye. He began to whirl the kill club. It swooshed in the air. He put a heel to Windsplitter, and they raced straight at the thing. The kill club, carried with the full speed of the running horse, whooshed down straight at the slitted eye. The crash of impact was deafening. Johnny slowed beyond the thing. It had not moved. He trotted Windsplitter back to the original position, a hundred feet in front of the thing. He turned and made ready for a second run. The lead horse came up behind him to its habitual place. Johnny glanced at it and then, back at the thing, he calculated the distance and the run to strike at the other slitted eye. He touched a heel. Windsplitter plunged forward. And then, a great gout of yellow bloomed out from between the eyes. Johnny was struck a blow like all the winds of High Peak rolled into one. Windsplitter caught the full force of it. Up into the air went horse and rider. Down they came with a shuddering crash against the earth. Part 1, Chapter 13 Turl didn't know what he was looking at. He had bunked down in the car in the outskirts. He had the old Chinko map of the ancient city, but he had no curiosity about it. With a few shots of Kerbango, he had eased himself off into sleep, intending to be gone with the dawn, through the city and into the mountains. Senseless, even risky to go on in the dark. The car, however, had grown hot with the morning sun before he awoke. And now he stared out at an odd thing in the street before him. Maybe it had been the footfalls that had awakened him. He didn't know what it was. He had seen horses. They were always falling down mine shafts. But he had never before seen a horse with two heads. That's right. Two heads. One in front and one in the middle and a second animal of similar sort behind. Only this one only had a second body in the middle, as if the second head was bent down out of sight. He batted his eye bones. He shifted over into the driver's seat and stared more intently through the armored windshield. The two beasts had now turned around and were walking the other way. So Tull started up and began to follow. It became apparent to him at once that the beasts knew he was after them. He took a hasty look at his ancient street map, thinking he could flash around a couple of blocks and head them off. But instead, it was the beasts who turned. Turl saw they would dead end and knew they would circle a block. It was elementary indeed to handle that. He glanced again at his map and spotted the right buildings to make a barricade. The firepower of the old Mark II was not very heavy, but it was surely enough for that. 
He adjusted the force lever with a fumbling and inexperienced paw and steered the tank into position. He hit the fire button. The resulting explosion was extremely satisfactory. A whole building tipped over to make a barricade. He jockeyed his throttle and wheeled around and went down the street, turned, and sure enough, there they were. He had his quarry trapped. Then he sat with slack jawbones to see the beasts go straight up over the smoking rubble and vanish from view. Turl sat there for a minute or two. Was this any part of what he was trying to accomplish? He was puzzled by the beasts, but they didn't have anything to do with the business he was in. Oh well. He had lots of time, and hunting was hunting, after all. He pushed a button and fired off an antenna capsule, set to hover 300 feet up, and then turned on his picture screen. Sure enough, there were the beasts, tearing along, zigzagging around blocks. He watched their progress while he ate some breakfast. That done, he took a small shot at Kerbango, engaged the drivetrain and following the picture was soon out in open country with his quarry in plain sight. He raced around in front and blocked them. They turned. He did it again. What were they? The second beast still had his head down, but the one in the lead definitely had two heads. Turl decided he had better not talk about this in the recreation room. They'd roast him. He watched with curiosity when the beast in the front stopped took a stick out of his belt and began a run at him. His curiosity turned to amazement. The thing was going to attack him. Incredible. The crash of the club against the windshield was deafening. His ear bones rang with the assault. And that wasn't all. There was an immediate atmosphere sizzle. A wave of dizziness hit Turl. Bright lights popped in his skull. Air! Air was getting into the cab! This old Mark II had seen better days. The supposedly armored windscreen had come loose in its mounts. Turl gaped at it in disbelief. The side gasket had given way. He panicked. Then his eye caught the sign about face masks, and he hastily snatched the mask and flask of breathe gas off the gunner's seat and snapped it over his face, opening the valve. He inhaled deeply and the dizziness lessened. He took three deep breaths to clean the damned air out of his lungs. Turl stared anew at the strange beast. It was lining up for another run. His paws fumbled with the firepower. He wanted no recoil of the blast blowing back through the opened windscreen, and he pulled the force lever low to stun. He hoped it was enough. The beast started the run. Turl hit the fire button. It was enough, all right. The ions sizzled and glared. The beasts were slammed back, lifted clean off the ground. They fell. Turl watched intently to make sure they kept on lying where they had fallen. Good. They did. He let out a shuddering sigh into his mask, winding down. And then he sat up straight in new amazement. He had thought when they were hit that he was dealing with two four-legged beasts, but lying on the ground, they had come apart. Turl swung a side door wide and crawled out. He checked his belt gun and then rumbled over to the game he had hit. Three beasts, maybe four. 
The two four-legged beasts were two. On the one behind, a bundle of something had fallen apart. That maybe made three. The nearer one definitely was two different beasts. What a confusion! He shook his head, trying to clear it. The effects of air were not wearing off fast enough. Little bright sparks were still popping in front of his eyes. He lumbered over to the more distant one, pushing the tall grass away. It was a horse. He had seen plenty of horses. The plains were full of them. But this horse had had a bundle tied on its back. Simple as that. The bundle had come loose. He kicked it. It wasn't anything alive. Just some skins, some animal hides, and nonsense bits of other things. He walked back toward the tank through the high grass. The other thing was also a horse, and over to the right where it had fallen clear, Turl pushed back the grass. Well, luck of the gold nebula. It was a man. The cyclo turned the man over. What a small, puny body. Hair on the face and head, but nowhere else. Two arms, two legs, white brown skin. Turl was unwilling to admit that Char's description fitted. In fact, he resented the fact that it did come close and promptly rejected it. The chest was moving, only slightly, true, but it was still alive. Turl felt fortunate indeed. His excursion was successful without his even going up into the mountains. He picked the man up with one paw and went back to the tank, throwing the man into the gunner's seat, which engulfed it. Then he set to work repairing the windscreen gasket with some permastick. The whole side of the glass had been dislodged, and although the glass itself was not even scratched, that had been quite a blow. He looked down at the small body swallowed in the seat. A fluke. It was the age of this tank, the brittleness of its gaskets. Sure was a ratty car. He'd find something wrong and put it in Zitz records. Misplaced parts or something. He went over the other gaskets, the doors, and the other screen. They seemed all right, if brittle. Well, he wasn't going underwater, and there would surely be no more attacks from things like that. Turl stood up on the driver's seat and looked all around the horizon. All clear. No more of these beasts. He banged down the top and settled himself. His paw hit the compression change and the hiss of air exhausting from the cab and the gurgle of breathe gas entering was welcome. His face mask was sweaty in the growing heat of the day and he hated the thing. Oh, for a proper atmosphere planet. A planet with right gravity, with purple trees. The man thing went into a sudden convulsion. Turl drew back, alarmed. It was turning blue and jerking about. The last thing he wanted was a raving mad animal inside the cab. Hastily, he adjusted his face mask, reversed the compression, and kicked open the side door. With one bat of his paw, he knocked the thing back out onto the grass. Turl sat there, watching it. He was afraid his plans were going up in a puff. The thing must have been more heavily affected by the stun blast than he knew. Crap, they were weak. He opened the cab top and looked over at one of the horses. He could see its sides moving. It was breathing and wasn't in any convulsion. It was even recovering. Well, a horse was a horse, and a man might be... 
He suddenly got it. The man-thing couldn't breathe, breathe gas. The bluish color was fading. The convulsions had stopped. The chest was panting as the thing gulped in air. That gave Turl a problem. Blast if he was going to ride back to the mine site in a face mask. He got out of the car and went to the farther horse. It was recovering, too. The sacks were lying near it. Turl rummaged through one and came up with some thongs. He went back and picked up the man-thing and slammed it up on top of the car. He arranged it so its arms stuck out to each side. Tying piece after piece of thong together, he made a long rope. He tied one end to one wrist of the thing, passed the rope under the car, grunting a bit as he lifted it up to do so, and tied the other wrist. He yanked it good and tight. Then he pushed at the man-thing experimentally to see whether it would fall off. Very good. He threw the sacks onto the gunner's seat and got in, closed up, and restarted the atmosphere change. The nearest horse was lifting its head, struggling to get up. Aside from surface blood boils caused by the stun gun, it seemed to be all right, which meant that the man-thing would probably recover. Turl stretched his jawbones in a grin. Well, it was coming out all right after all. He started up the car, turned it, and headed back toward the mine site. Part 2, Chapter 1. Turl was all efficiency. Great plans bubbling in his cavernous skull. The old Chinkos had had a sort of zoo outside the compound. And despite the years that had intervened since the Chinkos were terminated here, the cages were still there. There was one in particular that was just right. It had a dirt floor and a cement pool and netting of heavy mesh strung all around it. They had had some bears there that they said they were studying, and although the bears had died after a while, they had never escaped. Turl dumped the new beast into the cage. The thing was still only semi-conscious, getting over the shock of breathe gas, most likely. Turl looked at it lying there and then looked around. This had to be just right, all precautions taken. The cage door had a lock on it. It was open to the sky, and there was no netting over the top. What bear could climb a 30-foot set of bars? But there was a possibility that this new beast might tamper with the cage door. It wasn't probable, but the door didn't have a good lock on it. Turl had dumped the bags in the cage, having no place else to put them, and the long thong rope he had used was lying on the bags. He decided it would be wise to tie the beast up. He passed the thong around the neck of the thing and tied it there with a simple rigger knot and tied the other end to a bar. He stood back and checked things again. It was fine. He went out and closed the cage door. He'd have to put a better lock on it, but it would do just now.
Satisfied with himself, Turl ran the car into the garage and went to his office. There was not much to do. A few dispatches, just forms, no emergencies. Turl finished up and sat back. What a dull place. Ah, well, he had started wheels rolling to get off it, to get back home. He decided he had better go out and see how the man thing was getting along. He picked up his breathe mask, put a new cartridge into it, and went out through the offices. There were a lot of empty desks these days. There were only three secretarial-type cyclos there, and they didn't pay much attention to him. Outside the compound, he reached the gate of the cage. He stopped, his eye bones rattling. The thing was clear over to the gate. He went in with a growl, picked the thing up, and put it into its original place. It had untied the knot. Turl looked at it. Plainly, it was terrified of him. And why not? It only came up to his belt buckle and was about a tenth of his weight. Turl put the thong back around its neck. Being a mining company worker, accustomed to rigs and slings, Turl knew his knots. So this time he tied a double rigger knot. That would hold it. Cheerful once more, Turl went to the garage and got a water hose and began to wash down the Mark II. As he worked, he turned over various plans and approaches in his head. They all depended on that man thing out there. On a sudden hunch, he went back outside to look into the cage. The thing was standing inside the door. Turl crossly barged in, carried it back to its original position, and stared at the rope. It had untied a double-rigger knot. With fast-working paws, Turl fixed that. He put the rope around its neck and tied it with a bucket-hoist knot. The thing looked at him. It was making some funny noises as if it could talk. Turl walked out, fastened the door, and got out of sight. He wasn't a security chief for nothing. From a vantage point behind a building, he levered his face mask glass to telephoto and observed. The thing, in no time at all, untied the complex bucket hoist knot. Turl rumbled back before it could get to the door. He went in, plucked the thing up, and put it back on the far side of the cage. He wound the rope around and around its neck, and then tied it with a double bucket knot so complex that only a veteran rigger could loosen it. Once more, he went off to an unseen distance. Again believing itself unobserved, what was the thing doing now? It reached into a pouch it was wearing, took out something bright, and cut the rope. Turl rumbled off to the garage and rummaged about through centuries of cast-offs and debris until he found a piece of flexi-rope, a welding torch, a welding power cartridge, and a short strip of metal. When he got back, the thing was over by the door again, trying to climb the 30-foot bars. Turl did a very thorough job. He made a collar out of the metal and welded it hotly around the neck. He welded the flexi-rope to the collar and welded the other end into a ring, hooking the ring over a bar 30 feet above the dirt floor of the cage. He stood back. The thing was grimacing and trying to hold the collar away from its neck, for it was still hot. That'll hold it, Turl told himself. 
but he hadn't finished. He wasn't a security chief for nothing. He went back to his office storeroom and broke out two button cameras, checked them, and switched them to the wavelength of his office viewer. Then he went back to the cage and put one button camera way up in the bars, pointing down, and put the other one out at a distance where it could view the exterior. The thing was pointing at its mouth and making sounds. Who knew what that meant? Only now did Turl feel relaxed. That night, he sat smugly in the employee recreation room, responding to no questions, quietly drinking his kerbango in a very self-satisfied way. Part 2, Chapter 2. Johnny Goodboy Tyler stared in despair at his packs across the yard. The sun was hot. The collar on his burned neck hurt. His throat was parched with thirst, and he felt hungry. In those packs, just inside the cage door, there was a pig bladder of water. There was some cooked pork, if it hadn't spoiled. And there were hides he could rig for shade. At first, he had just been trying to get out. The very idea of being caged made him feel ill. Sicker even than the lack of water and food. It was all so unknown. The last he really remembered was starting to charge the insect and being blown into the air. Then this. No, wait. There was something after he was first stunned. He had started to come to, lying on something soft and smooth. He had seemed to be inside the insect. He had seen a huge something next to him. And then there was a sensation like breathing fire straight into his lungs that pulled every nerve short and threw him into a convulsion. There was another glimpse of an occurrence. He had flickeringly regained consciousness for a few moments. He seemed to be tied to the top of the insect speeding across the plain. And then the back of his head bumped, and the next he knew, he was in here, in this cage. He put it together. He had hurt the insect, but not fatally. It had eaten him, but then spit him up. It had carried him on its back to its lair. But the real shock was the monster. It was true, he knew now that he had always been too smart. He had doubted his elders. He had doubted the great village, and there it had been. He had doubted the monsters, and here one was. When he had come to and found himself looking up at that thing, his head had reeled. He felt himself literally bending the bars behind him to get away. A monster! Eight or nine feet tall, maybe more. About three and a half feet wide. Two arms, two legs, a shiny substance for a face, and a long tube from the chin down to the chest. Glowing amber eyes behind the shiny front plate. 
The ground shook as it approached. A thousand pounds, maybe more. Huge booted feet dented the earth, and it had furry paws and long talons. He had been certain it was going to eat him right then, but it hadn't. It had tied him up like a dog. There was something strange about this monster's perceptions. Every time he'd tried to get untied and out of the cage, the monster had shown up again, as though it could see when it wasn't around to see. Possibly those little spheres had had something to do with it. The monster held them in its paws like small, detachable eyes. One was up there now, glittering way up in the corner of the cage, like a little eye. The other one was out there stuck onto a nearby building side. But the monster had caught him trying to get out before it planted those eyes. What was this place? There was a constant rumble from somewhere, a muted roar similar to the one the insect had made. The thought of more of those insects chilled him. There was a big stone basin in the middle of the cage, a few feet deep, with steps up one side. Lots of sand was in the bottom of it. A grave? A place to roast meat? No, there were no charred sticks or ashes in it. So there were monsters. When he stood in front of it, his face was just above the level of its belt buckle. Belt buckle? Yes, a shiny thing that held a belt together. It suddenly dawned on Johnny that the monster was wearing a covering that wasn't its own skin. A slippery, shiny, purple substance. It wasn't its own hide. Like clothes you'd cut out of a hide. Pants, a coat, a collar. It wore clothes. Ornaments on the collar. And a device of some sort on the belt buckle. That device was stamped on his mind's eye right now. It was a picture of ground on which stood small square blocks. Vertical shafts were going up from the square blocks. Out of the shafts seemed to be coming clouds of smoke. And smoke in curls lay all over the top of the picture. The idea of clouds of smoke stirred some memory in him. But he was too hungry and too thirsty and too hot to wrestle with it. The ground under him began to shake in measured tread. He knew what this was. The monster came to the door. It was carrying something. It came in and loomed over him. It threw down into the dirt some soft, gooey sticks of something. Then it just stood there. Johnny looked at the sticks. They weren't like anything he had ever seen. The monster made motions, pointing from the sticks to his face. That failing, the monster took up a stick and squashed it against Johnny's mouth, saying something in a rumbling, roaring voice. A command. Johnny got it. This was supposed to be food. He worked a bit of it around in his mouth, and then swallowed it. Abruptly and immediately, he was violently ill. He felt like his whole stomach was going to rush back out of his mouth. Before he could control them, his limbs went into the beginning of a convulsion. He spat. Too thirsty to have much saliva, he tried to get rid of the stuff. All of it, every bit of it, every tiny piece of the acid taste of it. The monster just backed up and stood there staring at him. Water! 
pleaded Johnny, getting control of his shaking limbs and voice. Please, water. Anything to wash this horrible stuff out. He pointed to his mouth. Water. The monster just went on standing there. The eyes back of the faceplate were slitted, glowing with an eerie fire. Johnny composed himself stoically. It was wrong to look weak and beg. There was such a thing as pride. He drew his face into stillness. The monster leaned over and checked the collar and the flexi-rope, turned around and went back out, closed the gate with a firm clang, wired it shut, and left. The evening shadows were growing long. Johnny looked at his packs by the gate. They might as well be on the top of High Peak. A cloak of misery settled over him. He had to assume Windsplitter was gravely injured or dead. And he had to assume that in a few days, he himself probably would die of thirst or hunger. Twilight came. And then, with a shock, he realized Chrissy's promise to find him would wind up in her certain death. He caved in. The little bright eye, up in the corner of the cage, stared down unwinkingly. Part 2, Chapter 3. The following day, Turl probed around the disused quarters of the old Chinkos. It was unpleasant work. The quarters were outside the pressurized cyclodomes of the mine site, and he had to wear a breathe mask. The Chinkos were air breathers. And while the quarters had been sealed off, a few hundred years of neglect and weather leaks had left their marks. There were rows and rows of bookcases, lines and lines of filing cabinets full of notes, old scarred desks, rickety and frail to begin with, collapsing into themselves, piles of junk in lockers, and everything filmed over with white dust. Good thing he didn't have to breathe it. What funny beings the Chinkos had been. They were the Intergalactic Mining Company's answer to some protests by more warlike and able worlds that mining was wrecking planetary ecologies. And the company being plush and profitable at that time, some knothead of a director in Intergalactic's main office had created the Culture and Ethnology Department, or C&E. Maybe it was originally named the Ecological Department, but Chinkos could paint and some intergalactic directors, where the Claw's wife, had begun to make a private fortune selling Chinko work on other planets and got the name changed. There was very little that didn't show up in the secret files of the security department. It was the strike the Chinkos had invented, not the corruption that caused the final wipeout. Corruption at director level was very paws off for security. A strike was not. But the Chinkos here had been gone long before that, and this place looked it. 
What, after all, was worth culturing on this planet? There weren't enough indigenous populations left to bother with. And who had cared, anyway? But like any bureaucracy, the Chinkos had been busy. Look at those hundreds of yards of cabinets and books. <laughs> Turl was looking for a manual on the feeding habits of man. Surely these busy Chinkos had studied that. He pawed and pawed. He opened and flipped hundreds of indexes. He got down and poked into lockers. And while he got a very good idea of what there was in these rambling offices and lockers, he couldn't find one single thing about what man ate. He found what bears ate. He found what mountain goats ate. He even found a treatise, scholarly composed, printed and reeking with wasted expense, on what some beast known as a whale ate. A treatise that ended up, laughably enough, with the fact that the beast was totally extinct. Turl stood in the middle of the place, disgusted. No wonder the company had phased out C and E on Earth. Imagine roaring around, burning up fuel, keeping a whole book manufacturing plant steaming like a digger shovel, wearing out eyesight. It wasn't all in vain, though. He had learned from the aged and yellowed map he now gripped in his hand that there were a few other groups of men left on this planet. At least there had been a few hundred years ago. Some were in a place the Chinkos called Alps. Several dozen, in fact. There had been about 15 up in the ice belt the Chinkos called North Pole and Canada. There had been an unestimated number at a place called Scotland, and there had been some in Scandinavia, and also in a place called Colorado. This was the first time he had seen the Chinko name for this central mine site area, Colorado. He looked at the map with some amusement. Rocky Mountains, Pikes Peak. Funny Chinko names. The Chinkos always did their work in painfully severe cyclo, faithful to their ore. But they had had funny imaginations. This was getting him no place, however. Although it was good to know, for the sake of his planning, that there had been a few more men around. He would have to rely on what he should have relied on in the first place. Security. The techniques of security. He would put them to work. He walked out and closed the door behind him and stared around at this non-cyclo-alien world. The old Chinko offices, barracks, and zoo were up on the high hill back of the mine site. Close by, but higher. The arrogant bastards. One could see all around from this place. One could see the ore transshipment platform as well as the freighter assembly field. The place didn't look very busy down there. Intergalactic would be sending some sizzlers down the line unless quotas were met. He hoped he wouldn't have too many investigations ordered by the home office. Blue sky, yellow sun, green trees, and the wind that tugged at him full of air. How he hated this place. The thought of staying made him grit his fangs. Well, what do you expect in an alien world? He'd finished that investigation ordered about a lost tractor and then put his tried-and-true security technology to work on that man-thing. That was the only way out 
of this hellhole. Chapter 4 Johnny watched the monster. Thirsty, hungry, and with no hope, he felt adrift in a sea of unknowns. The thing had come into the cage, its footsteps shaking the earth, and had stood there for some time just looking at him. Small glints of light in its amber eyes. Then it had begun to putter around. Right now it was testing the bars, shaking them, apparently verifying that they were firm. Satisfied, it rumbled all around the perimeter, inspecting the dirt. It stood for a while, looking at the sticks it had tried to make Johnny eat. Johnny had pushed them as far away as possible since they had a bad, pungent smell. The monster counted them. Aha, it could count. It spent some time examining the collar and rope, and then it did a very strange thing. It unhooked the rope's far end from the bar top. Johnny held his breath. Maybe he could get to his packs. But the monster now hooked the rope on a nearby bar. He dropped a loop over the bar indifferently, and then moved off to the door. It spent some time at the door, rewinding the wires that kept it closed, and did not seem to notice that when it turned its back on the door, one of the wires sprang free. The monster rumbled off toward the compound and disappeared. Lightheaded with thirst and hunger, Johnny felt he was having delusions. He was afraid to hope. But there it was. The rope could be removed. And the gate fastening might be loose enough to open. He made very sure the monster was really gone. Then he acted. With a flip of the rope, he got the far end off the bar. Hastily, he wrapped the length around his body to get it out of his way, and tucked the end into his belt. He dove for his packs. With shaking hands, he ripped them open. Some of his hope died. The water bladder had burst, probably from the earlier impact, and there was only dampness there. The pork, wrapped in hide that retained the sun's heat, was very spoiled, and he knew better than to eat it. He looked at the door. He would try. Grabbing a kill club and rope from the pack and checking his belt pouch for flints, Johnny crept to the door. No sign of the monster. The wires of the fastening were awfully big, but age had weakened them. Even so, they tore and bruised his hands as he feverishly sought to open them. Then they were opened. He pushed against the door. In seconds, he was sprinting through the shrubs and gullies to the northwest. Keeping low, taking advantage of every bit of cover so as to remain hidden from the compound, he nevertheless went fast. He had to find water. His tongue was swollen. His lips cracked. He had to find food. He felt the light-headed unreality that came with the beginnings of starvation. Then, he had to get back to the mountains. He had to stop Chrissy. Johnny went a mile. He examined his back trail. Nothing. He listened. No sound of the insect, 
No feel of monster feet shaking the earth. He ran two miles. He stopped and listened again. Still nothing. Hope flared within him. Ahead, he could see greenery, a patch jutting out of a gully, a sign of water. His breath hoarse and rattling in his chest, he made the edge of the gully. No scene could be more heartwarming. A speck of blue and white. The cheerful burble of a small brook running through the trees. Johnny lunged forward, and a moment later plunged his head into the incalculably precious water. He knew better than to drink too much. He just kept rinsing his mouth. For minutes, he plunged his head and chest in and out of the stream, letting the water soak in. Gone was the taste of that terrible, gooey stick. The freshness and cleanness of the brook were almost as joyful as its wetness. He drank a few cautious swallows, and then sank back, catching his breath. The day looked brighter. The back trail was still quiet. The monster might not discover he was gone for hours. Hope surged again. Far off to the northwest, just a little bit above the curve of the plain, were the mountains. Home. Johnny looked around him. There was an old rickety shack on the other side of the stream bed. The roof sunk down to its foundation. Food was his concern now. He took more swallows of water and stood up. He hefted his kill club and walked through the stream toward the ancient shack. While running, he had seen no game. Perhaps it was cleared out in the vicinity of the compound. But he didn't need big game. A rabbit would do. He had better take care of this fast and keep going. Something moved in the shack. He crept forward, silent. In a scurry, several big rats raced out of the shack. Johnny had started his throw and then stopped. Only in the dreariest of a starving winter would one eat rats. But he had no time and he saw no rabbits. He picked up a rock and threw it against the shack. Two more rats streamed out and he threw his kill club straight and true. A moment later, he was holding a dead rat in his hand, a big one. Did he dare light a fire? No. No time for that. Raw rat? Ugh. He took a piece of the sharp, clear stuff from his pouch and stepped back to the stream. He cleaned and washed the rat. Hunger or no hunger, it took some doing to bite into the raw rat meat. Almost gagging, he chewed and swallowed. Well, it was food. He ate very slowly so that he wouldn't get any sicker than he felt at eating raw rat. Then he drank some more water. He wrapped a last piece of the rat in a scrap of hide and put it in his pouch. He kicked some sand over the debris he had left. He stood up straight and looked at the distant mountains. He took a deep breath, bracing himself to start again on his run. There was a low whistle in the air, and something fell over him. He rolled. It was a net. He couldn't get free. The more he tried to get out of it, the more tangled up he became. He stared wildly around. Through an opening, he saw the truth. The monster, without haste, was moving forward out of the trees, taking in the slack of the rope to which the net was attached. The thing exhibited no emotion, 
It moved as though it had all the time in the world. It wrapped Johnny up in the net and tucked the whole bundle under its arm and then began to rumble along back toward the compound. Part 2, Chapter 5 Turl, fiddling with forms at his desk, felt very cheerful. Things were working out fine, just fine. Security techniques were always best, always. He now knew exactly what he had wanted to know. The thing drank water, and drank it by plunging its head and shoulders into a stream or pond. And more importantly, it ate raw rat. This made things very easy. If there was any animal available near the compound, it was Rat. He guessed he could teach the old Chinkos a thing or two. It was elementary to let the man-thing loose, and elementary to keep him under surveillance with a flying scope. It was, of course, a little trying to be out in the open wearing a breathe mask and yet make speed over the ground. That man-thing didn't run very fast compared to a cyclo, but it had been a bit of an exertion. It was hard to exert oneself while wearing a breathe mask. But he hadn't lost his skill in casting nets, old-fashioned though it might be. He hadn't wanted to use a stun gun again. The thing seemed frail and went into convulsions. Well, he was learning. He began to wonder how many raw rats a day the thing had to consume, but he could find that out easily. He looked with boredom at the report before him. The lost tractor had been found along with its cyclo driver at the bottom of a two-mile-deep mine shaft. They ate up a lot of personnel these days. There'd be a yowl from the main office about replacement costs. Then he cheered up. This fitted very well into his plans. He checked around to make sure he had no more work to do and put his desk in order for the end of day. Turl went over to a cabinet and took out the smallest blast gun he could find. He put a charge cartridge in it and set it to minimum power. He took some rags and cleaned up his face mask and put a new cartridge in it. Then he went outside. Not a hundred yards north of the compound, he saw his first rat. With the accuracy that had won him an honored place on his school shoot team, even though the thing was in streaking motion, he blew its head off. Fifty feet farther, another rat leaped out of a culvert and he decapitated it in midair. He paced off the distance. Forty-two cyclo paces. No, he hadn't lost his touch. Silly things to be hunting, but it still took a master's touch. Two. That would be good enough to start with. Turl looked around at the hateful day. Yellow, blue, and green. Well, he'd get quit of this. Feeling very cheerful, he rumbled up the hill to the old zoo. 
his mouth bones stretched in a grin. There was the man-thing crouched down at the far side of the cage, glaring at him. Glaring at him? Yes, it was true. It was the first time Turl had noticed it had emotions. And what else had it been doing? It had gotten to the packs. He remembered the thing clutching at them when he had returned it to the cage yesterday. And it was now sitting on them. It had been doing something else. It had been looking down at a couple of books. Books? Now where the crap nebula had it gotten books? Didn't seem possible it could have gotten into the old Chinko quarters. The collar, the rope were all secure. He'd investigate that in due course. The thing was still here, which was what was important. Turl advanced, smiling behind his mask. He held up the two dead rats and then tossed them to the man-thing. It didn't jump hungrily at them. It seemed to withdraw. Well, gratitude wasn't something you found in animals. No matter. Turl wasn't after gratitude from this thing. Turl went over to the old cement bear pool. It didn't seem to be cracked. He traced the piping. The piping seemed to be all right. He went outside the cage and fumbled around in the undergrowth, looking for the valves, and finally found one. He turned it. Hard to do with a valve that old. He was afraid his great strength would just twist the top off. From the nearby garage, he got some penetrating oil and went back and worked the valve over. Finally, he got it open. Nothing happened. Turl traced the old water system to a tank the Chinkos had built. He shook his head over the crudity of it. It had a pump, but the charge cartridge was long expended. He freed up the pump and put a new cartridge in it. Intergalactic was never one for innovations, thank the stars. The cartridges the pump needed were the same ones still in use. He got the pump whirring, but no water came. Finally, he found the pond. The old pipe was simply not in the water. So with one stamp of his boot, he put it back in. Up at the tank, the water began to run in. And down in the cage, the pool began to fill swiftly. Turl grinned to himself. A mining man could always handle fluids. And here, too, he hadn't lost his touch. He went back into the cage. The big center pool was filling rapidly. It was muddy and swirling since it had been full of sand, but it was wet water. The pool filled up to the top and slopped over, spilling across the floor of the cage. The man-thing was hastily picking up its things and jamming them into the bars to escape the inundation. Turl went back outside and shut off the valve. He let the tank on the hill fill and then shut that off. The cage was practically awash, but the water was draining off through the bars. Good enough. Turl slopped over to the man-thing. It was clinging to the bars to keep out of the water. It had the hides way up, jammed over the cross braces. To keep them dry? It was holding on to the books with one hand. Turl looked around. Everything was in order now. So he had better look into these books. He started to take them out of its hand, but it held on. With some impatience, Turl smashed at its wrist and caught the two books as they fell. They were man books. Puzzled, 
Arcturo leafed through them. Now where could this thing have picked up man books? He drew his eye bones together, thinking. Ah, the Chinko guidebook. There had been a library in that town. Well, maybe this animal had lived in that town. But books? This was better and better. Maybe, like the Chinkos had said, these animals could grasp meaning. Turl could not read the man characters, but they obviously were readable. The first one here must be a child's primer. The other one was some kind of child's story. Beginner books. The animal was looking stoically away in another direction. It was useless, of course, to try to talk to it. Turl halted his thought in mid-blink. Better and better for his plans. It had been talking. He remembered now. What he had thought were growls and squawks like you get from any animal had been reminiscent of words. And here were books. He made the thing look at him by turning its head. Mm. Turl pointed to the book and then at the thing's head. Mm. It gave no sign of understanding. Turl pushed the book up close to its face and pointed at mm. its mouth. No sign of recognition occurred in the eyes. It either wasn't going to read or it couldn't read. He experimented some more. If these things could actually talk and read, then his plans were sure winners. He turned the pages in front of its face. No. No sign of recognition. But it had books in its possession. It had books, but it couldn't read. Maybe it had them for the pictures. Ah, success. Turl showed it a picture of a bee, and there was a flicker of interest and recognition. He showed it the picture of the fox, and again, that flick of recognition. He took the other book with pages of solid print. No sign of recognition. Got it. He put the small books in his breast pocket. Turl knew what to do. He knew every piece of everything in the old Chinko quarters, and that included man-language discs. They had never written up what man ate, but they had gone to enormous trouble with man-language. Typically, Chinko. Missed the essentials and soar off into the stratosphere. He knew tomorrow's program. Better and better. Turl checked the collar, checked the rope, securely locked up the cage, and left. Part 2, Chapter 6 It had been a damp, cold, thoroughly miserable night. Johnny had clung to the bars for hours, loath to sit down or even step down. Mud was everywhere. The gush of water had taken the sand and dirt in the pool and spread it all over the cage, and the dirt of the floor had avidly soaked it up. The mud became ankle-deep. <sighs> But at last, exhausted, he had given in and slept lying in the mud. 
mid-morning sun was drying it somewhat. The two dead rats had floated away out of reach, and Johnny didn't care. Already dehydrated from his previous experience, he felt the hot sun increase his thirst. He looked at the muddy pool, contaminated with slime from the cage. He could not bring himself to drink it. He was sitting miserably against the bars when the monster appeared. It stopped outside the door and looked in. It was carrying some metallic object in its paws. It looked at the mud, and for the moment, Johnny thought it might realize he couldn't go on sitting and sleeping in the mud. It went away. Just as Johnny believed it would not come back, it reappeared. This time, it was still carrying the metal object, but it was also carrying a huge rickety table and an enormous chair. The thing made tricky work getting through the door with all that load. A door too small for it in the first place. But it came on in and put the table down. Then it put the metal object on the table. Johnny had at first believed that the huge chair was for him. But he was quickly disabused. The monster put the chair down at the side of the table and sat down on it. The legs of it sunk perilously into the mud. It indicated the mysterious object. Then it took the two books out of its pocket and threw them on the table. Johnny reached for them. He had not thought he would ever see them again, and he had begun to make out of them a kind of sense. The monster cuffed his hand and pointed at the object. It waved a paw across the top of the books in a kind of negative motion and pointed again at the object. There was a sack on the back of the object, and it had discs in it about the diameter of two hands. The monster took out one of the discs and looked at it. It had a hole in the middle with squiggles around it. The monster put the disc on top of the machine. There was a rod there that fitted into the middle of the disc. Johnny was extremely suspicious. His hand bruised from the cuff. Anything this monster was up to would be devious treacherous and dangerous. That had been adequately proved. The game was to bide one's time, watch and learn, and out of that possibly rest freedom. The monster now pointed to two windows on the front of the object. Then it pointed to a single lever that stuck out from the front of it. The monster pushed the lever down. Johnny's eyes went round. He backed up. The object talked. Clear as a bell, it had said, Excuse me. The monster pulled the lever up, and it stopped talking. Johnny drew back further. The monster clouded him between the shoulder blades and drove him up to the table so hard the edge hit his throat. The monster raised a cautionary finger at him. It shoved the lever up, and by standing on tiptoe, Johnny could see that the disc went backward from the way it had gone. The monster pulled the lever down again. The object said, Excuse me, but I am... The monster centered the lever, and the machine stopped. Then it pushed the lever up, and the machine went backward again. Johnny tried to look under the machine and back of it. The thing wasn't alive, surely. It didn't have ears or a nose or a mouth. Yes, it did have a mouth. A circle low down in front of it, 
But the mouth didn't move. Sound just came out of it. And it was talking Johnny's language. The monster pushed the lever down again, and the object said, Excuse me, but I am your... This time, Johnny saw that some odd squiggles had been showing up in the top window, and a strange face in the lower window. Once more, the monster pushed the lever up, and the disc on top went backward. Then the monster centered the lever. It pointed a talon at Johnny's head, and then at the object. Johnny noticed then that the monster had been moving the lever off-center all positions to the left. The monster now moved the lever all the way over to the right and down, and different squiggles appeared, but the same picture showed, and the machine said something in some strange tongue. The monster backed it up and put the lever in the left-right-center and down. Different squiggles, same lower picture, but an entirely different set of sounds. Behind the face mask, the monster seemed to smile. It repeated the last maneuver again and pointed to itself. Johnny suddenly understood that that was the monster's language. Johnny's interest was immediate, intense, and flaming. He reached up and pushed the monster's paw away. It was hard to reach because the table was so high and big, but Johnny made nothing of that. He moved the lever up and to the left. Then he moved it down. The machine said, Excuse me, but I am your instructor. Then Johnny did the same operation in the right-hand position, and it said something that was language but strange. Then he did it in the center position, and it spoke again in the language of the cyclos. The monster was looking at him closely, even suspiciously. It bent way over and peered back into Johnny's face. The flickering, amber eyes slitted. Then it made a doubtful motion toward the machine as though it would pick it up and carry it off. Johnny slapped the huge hands away and fastened again on the lever. He put it in the left track and let it roll. Excuse me, the machine said. But I am your instructor, if you will forgive such arrogance. I do not have the honor to be a cyclo. I am but a lowly chinko. The face in the bottom window bowed twice and put a hand over its eyes. I am Joga Stenko, junior assistant language slave in the language division of the Department of Culture and Ethnology, Planet Earth. Squiggles were running rapidly in the upper window. Forgive my presumption, but this is a course of study in reading and speaking the man languages of English and Swedish. On the left-hand track of the record, I hope you will have no trouble in finding English. On the right-hand track, you will find the same text in Swedish. On the center track, the same text is in Cyclo, the noble language of conquerors. The written equivalent in each case appears in the upper window, and suitable pictures appear in the lower window. You will pardon my humble pretensions of learnedness. All wisdom abides in the governors of Cyclo, and one of their major companies, the great and mighty intergalactic mining company, on which let there be profit. Johnny centered the lever. He was breathing hard. The language was stilted, oddly pronounced, and many of the words he did not know, but he grasped it. He looked more closely at the object. He frowned, concentrating heavily. And then he grasped that it was a machine. 
a not live thing. That meant that the insect had been not live either. Johnny looked at the monster. Why was this thing doing this? What fresh dangers and privations did it have in mind? There was no kindness in those amber eyes. They were like a wolf's eyes seen in firelight. The monster pointed toward the machine and Johnny pulled the lever down to the left. Excuse me, it said. But we will begin with the necessary alphabet. The first letter is A. Look at the upper window. Johnny did and saw the marks. A. Pronounced A. Its sound is also A as in pad. A as in pay. E as in care. A as in father. Look at it well. Excuse me, please. So you can always recognize it. The next letter of the alphabet is B. Look at the window. It always has the sound of B as in bath. The monster batted his hand up and opened the primer to the first page. It tapped a talon on A. Johnny had already made the connection. Language could be written and read. And this machine was going to teach him how to do it. He centered the lever and pulled it down, and there it was evidently spouting an alphabet in cyclo. The little face in the lower window was showing mouth formations to say the sounds. He swung the lever over to the right, and it was saying an alphabet in... Swedish? The monster stood up, looking the four feet down to Johnny. It took two dead rats from its pocket and dangled them in front of Johnny. What was this? A reward? It made Johnny feel like a dog being trained. He didn't take them. The monster made a sort of shrugging motion and said something. Johnny couldn't understand the words. But when the monster reached over to pick up the machine, he knew what they must have been. Something like, lessons over for the day. Johnny instantly pushed the arms away from the machine. He moved over defiantly and stood there, blocking the reach. He wasn't sure what would happen if he'd be batted halfway across the cage, but he stood there. So did the monster. Head on one side, then the other. The monster roared. Johnny did not flinch. The monster roared some more, and Johnny divined, with relief, that it was laughing. The monster's belt buckle, showing the clouds of smoke in the sky, was a few inches below Johnny's eyes. It connected with the ancient legend that told of the end of Johnny's race. The laughter beat at Johnny's ears, a growling thunder of mockery. The monster turned around and went out, still laughing as it locked the gate. There was bitterness and determination on Johnny's face. He had to know more, much more. Then he could act. The machine was still on the table. Johnny reached for the lever.
Part 2, Chapter 7. The summer heat dried out the mud. White clouds spotted the skies above the cage. But Johnny had no time for them. His whole concentration was on the teaching machine. He had gotten the huge chair shifted around, and by lifting the seat height with folded skins, he could hunch over the table, close facing the old Chinko who, in the picture, fawned in an agony of politeness as he taught. Mastering the alphabet in English was quite a trick, but mastering it in Cyclo was even worse. Far, far easier to trail game by its signs and know, almost to the minute, how long ago it had passed and what it was doing. These signs and symbols were fixed, deathless on a screen, and the meanings that they gave were unbelievably complex. In a week, he thought he had it. He had begun to hope. He had even commenced to believe that it was easy. B is for bat. C is for zoo. H is for hat. And Y is for you. And by going over the same text in Cyclo, the bats, zoos, hats, and yous became, a little incomprehensibly, pens, shovels, kerbango, and females. But when he finally grasped, under the Chinko's groveling tutelage, that cyclo words for hats, zoos, and bats would start with different letters, he knew he had it. He at length could lie back and rattle off the alphabet in English. Then he could, with a bit of squinting, sit up and rattle off the cyclo alphabet in cyclo, and with all the different nuances of how they sounded. Johnny knew he mustn't take too long at this. The diet of raw meat would eventually do him in. He was close to semi-starvation, since he could barely bring himself to eat it. The monster would come and watch him a little while each day. While he was there, Johnny was silent. He knew he must sound funny while he drilled, and the monster's laughter made the back of his hair stand up. So he would be very quiet under that scrutiny from outside the cage. It was a mistake. The monster's eye bones behind the breathe mask plate were coming closer and closer together with a growing frown. The triumph of the alphabet was short-lived. At the end of it, the monster, one beautiful bright day, yanked open the door of the cage and came roaring in like a storm. It yelled at Johnny for minutes on end, the cage bars shaking. Johnny expected a cuff, but he didn't cringe when the monster's paw snaked out. But it was reaching for the machine, not Johnny. It yanked the lever down into a second stage that Johnny had never suspected. A whole new set of pictures and sounds leaped out. The old Chinko said in English, I am sorry, honored student, and forgive my arrogance, but we will now begin the drill of progressive cross-association of objects, symbols, and words. And there was a new sequence of pictures. H. The sound the for H, the, sound of the picture of H, began to follow one another at a slow interval. Then the cyclo letter that had an H-like sound began to repeat in sound and picture. And then they went faster and faster until they were an almost indistinguishable blur. Johnny was so astonished he did not realize the monster had left. Here was a new thing. The lever was so big and resistive, he had not realized that all this lurked just beyond another thrust of pressure. 
Well, if a little push down would do that, what happened with a little push up? He tried it. He almost blew his head off. It took him quite a space of travel of the sun-made bar shadows to get brave enough to try it again. Same thing. It almost knocked him off the chair. Holding back, he stared at the thing suspiciously. What was it that came out of it? Sunlight? He tried it again and let it hit his hand. Warm. Tingling. Carefully staying off to the side, he saw that pictures were appearing in the frames, and he heard in the weirdest way, sort of with his head, not his ears. Beneath the level of your consciousness, the alphabet will now go in A, B, C. What was B, this? Was he hearing through his hand? No, that couldn't be. He wasn't hearing at all except for that meadowlark. Soundless somethings were coming from the machine. He moved a little further back. The impression was less. He moved closer. He felt that his brains were frying. Now we will do the same sounds in Cyclo. Johnny went over to the furthest extension of his chain and sat down against the wall. He thought and thought about it. He grasped at last that the cross-association drill of symbols, sounds, and words was to get him very fast and then faster and faster so he did not have to grope for what he had been taught, but would be able to use it without hesitation. But this shaft of sunlight coming out of the machine? He got braver. He went back and found a disc that must be very advanced and put it on. Bracing himself. He grimly pushed the lever all the way up. Suddenly, he knew that if all three sides of a triangle were equal, all its enclosed three angles were also equal. He backed up. Never mind what a triangle was or an angle, he now knew. He went back and sat down against the wall. Suddenly, he reached out with his finger and drew in the dust a three-pointed shape. He poked a finger at each inside bend. He said, wonderingly, They're equal. Equal what? Equal each other. So what? Maybe it was valuable. Johnny gazed at the machine. It could teach him in the ordinary way. It could teach him by speeding the lesson up. And it could teach him very smoothly and instantly with a beam of sunlight. Abruptly, an unholy joy began to light his face. <sighs> Alphabet? He had to learn the whole civilization of the Cyclos. Did that monster realize why he wanted it? Life became a long parade of discs, stacks of discs. Every hour not needed for sleep was spent at the table, with straight picture learning, with progressively speeding cross-association, with the piercing beams of sunlight. Half-starved, his sleep was restless. Nightmares of dead cyclos were intertwined with raw rats chasing mechanical horses that flew. And the discs went round and round. But Johnny kept on, kept on cramming years of education into weeks and months. There was so much to know. He had to grasp it all. 
and with only one goal in mind, vengeance for the destruction of his race. Could he learn enough, fast enough, to accomplish his purpose? Part 2, Chapter 8. Turl had felt smug right up to the moment he received the summons from the planetary director. He was nervous now, waiting for the appointment to occur. The weeks had fled on, the summer fading into the chill of autumn. The man-animal was doing well. Its every waking moment seemed to be spent crowded up against the Chinko language and technical instruction machine. It hadn't begun to talk yet, but of course it was just an animal and stupid. It hadn't even grasped the principle of progressive speed cross-association until it had been shown. And it didn't even have enough sense to stand squarely in front of the instantaneous conceptual knowledge transmitter. Didn't it realize you had to get the full wave impulse to get it through your skull bones? Stupid. It would take months at this rate to get an education. But what could you expect of an animal that lived on raw rat? Still, sometimes when he went in the cage, Turl had looked into those strange blue eyes and had seen danger. No matter. Turl had decided that if the animal proved dangerous, he could simply use it to get things started, and then at the first sign it was getting out of hand, it could be vaporized fast enough. One button push on a hand blaster. Zip-bang! No man-animal. Very easily handled. Yes, things had been going very well. Until this summons. Such things made one nervous. There was no telling what the planetary director might have found out. No telling what tales some employee might have carried to him. A security chief was ordinarily not much consulted. In fact, by a devious chain of command, a security chief was not directly under the planetary director on all points. This made Turl feel better. In fact, there had been cases where a security chief had removed a planetary director. Cases involving corruption. But still, the planetary director remained the administrative head and was the one who filed reports. Reports that could transfer one, or continue one on post. The summons had come late the night before, and Turl had not slept very well. He had tumbled around in his bed, imagining conversations. At one time, he had actually gotten up and combed through his office files, wondering what he had on the planetary director, just in case. That he couldn't recall or find anything depressed him. Turl only felt operational when he had big leverage in terms of potential blackmail. It was almost with relief that he saw the appointment time arrive, and he rumbled into the office of the top cyclo. Numph, planetary director of Earth, was old. Rumor had it that he was a discard from the central company directorate. Not for corruption, 
but just for bumbling incompetence. And he had been sent as far away as they could send him. An unimportant post, a rim star in a remote galaxy. A perfect place to send someone and forget him. Numph was sitting at his upholstered desk, looking out through the pressure dome at the distant transshipment center. He was gnawing absently on a corner of a file folder. Turl approached watchfully. Numph's executive uniform was neat. His fur, turning blue, was impeccably combed and in place. He didn't look particularly upset, though his amber eyes were introverted. Numph didn't look up. Sit down. He said absently. I come in response to your summons, your planetship. The old cyclo turned to his desk. He looked wearily at Turl. Uh, that's obvious. He didn't much care for Turl, but he didn't dislike him either. It was the same with all these executives. Definitely not first team. Not like the old days. Other planets, other posts, better staffs. We're not showing a profit, said Numph. He threw the folder down on his desk. Two Kerbango saucepans rattled, but he did not offer any. I should imagine this planet is getting mined out. That's not it. There's plenty of deep down ore to keep us going for centuries. Besides, that's the concern of the engineers, not security. Turl didn't care to feel rebuked. I've heard that there's an economic depression in a lot of the company's markets. That prices are down. That could be. But that's the concern of the economics department at the home office, not security. This second rebuke made Turl a bit restless. His chair groaned alarmingly under his bulk. Numph pulled the folder to him and fiddled with it. Then he looked wearily at Turl. It's costs, said Numph. Costs, said Turl getting his own back a bit. Has to do with accounting, not security. Numph looked at him for several seconds. He couldn't make up his mind whether Turl was being insolent. He decided to ignore it. He threw the folder back down. Mutiny is. Turl stiffened. Where's the mutiny? Not the slightest rumor of it had reached him. What was going on here? Did Numph have his own intelligence system that bypassed Turl? It hasn't occurred. Yet. But when I announce the pay cuts and drop all bonuses, there's liable to be one. Turl shuddered and leaned forward. This affected him in more ways than one. Huh. Numph tossed the folder at him. Personnel costs. We have 3,719 employees on this planet, scattered over five active mine sites and three exploratory sites. That includes landing field personnel, freighter crews, and the transshipment force. At an average pay of 30,000 galactic credits a year, that's 111,570,000 credits. Food, quarters, and breathe gas is averaged at 15,000 credits each. Comes to 
55,785,000 credits. The total is 167,355,000 credits. Add to that the bonuses and transport, and we have nearly exceeded the value of our output. That doesn't count wear and tear. And it doesn't count expansion. Turl had been dimly aware of this, and in fact had used it as an argument, a false one, in furthering his own personal plan. He did not think the time was ripe to spring his project, but he had not anticipated that the powerful and rich intergalactic company would go so far as to cut pay and wipe out bonuses. While this affected him directly, he was far more interested in his own plan of personal wealth and power. Was it time to open up a new phase in his own scheme? The animal was actually doing pretty well. It probably could be trained for the elementary digging venture. It could be used to recruit other animals. He was pretty well convinced it could do the necessary mining, dangerous though it was. Stripping that vein out of the blizzard-torn sheer cliff would be quite a trick and might be fatal to some of the animals involved. But who cared about that? Besides, the moment the stuff was gotten out, the animals would have to be vaporized so the secret could never leak. We could increase our output, said Turl, fencing in toward his target. No, 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 said Numph. That's pretty impossible, he sighed. <sighs> We're limited on personnel. That was cream to Turl's earbones. You're right, said Turl, heading Numph further into the trap. Unless we solve it, it will lead straight into mutiny. Numph nodded glumly. <laughs> In a mutiny, the first ones the workers vaporize are the executives. Again, Numph nodded, but this time there was a flicker of fear in the depths of his amber eyes. I'm working on it, said Turl. It was premature, and he hadn't intended to spring it, but the time was now. If we could give them hope that the cuts weren't permanent, and if we imported no new personnel, the threat of mutiny would be reduced. True, true. We're already not bringing in any additional or new personnel. But at the same time, our installations are working very hard, and there's already some grumbling. Agreed, said Turl. He plunged. But what would you say if I told you that right this minute, I was working on a project to have our workforce within two years? I'd say it would be a miracle. That was what Turl liked to hear. Plaudits from one and all in the home office would be his yet. Numph was looking almost eager. No Cyclo likes this planet. We can't go outside without wearing masks. Which increases costs and breathe gas. And what we need is a workforce of air breathers that can do elementary machine operation. Numph sank back, doubt hitting him. Um, if you're thinking of... What was their name? Chinkos? They were all wiped out ages back! Not Chinkos. And I congratulate your planet ship on his knowledge of company history. Not Jinkos. There is a potential local supply. 
Where? I am not going to say any more about it right now. But I want to report that I am making progress, and that it is very hopeful. Who are these people? Well, actually, they are not people, as you would say. But there are sentient beings on this planet. They think? They talk? They are very manually adept. Numph pondered this. They talk? You can communicate with them? Yes, said Turl, biting off a bit more than he really knew. They talk. Well, there's a bird down on the lower continent can talk. A mine director there sent one. He could swear and cyclo. Somebody didn't replace the air cartridge in its dome and it died. He frowned. But a bird isn't manually... No, no, no. Said Turl, cutting off the bumbling. These are little short things. Two arms, two legs. Monkeys! Turl, you can't be serious. No, not monkeys. Monkeys could never operate a machine. I am talking about man. Numph looked at him for several seconds. Then he said, But there are only a very few of them left. Even if they could do what you say. True, true. They have been listed as an endangered species. A what? A species that is about to become extinct. But a few like that would not resolve our... Your planetship. I will be frank. I have not counted how many there are left. But nobody has even seen one for ages. Turl. The recon drones have noted them. There were 34 right up in those mountains you see there. And they exist on other continents in greater numbers. I have reason to believe that if I were given facilities, I could round up several thousand. Oh, well, facilities. Expense. No, no, no real expense. I have been engaged on an economy program. I have even reduced the number of recon drones. They breed fast if given a chance. But if nobody has even seen one, what functions could they replace? Exterior machine operators. Over 75% of our personnel is tied up in just that. Tractors, loading rigs, it's not skilled operation. Oh, I don't know, Turl. If nobody has even seen one... I have one. What? Right here. In the zoo cages near the compound. I went out and captured one. Took a bit of doing, but I made it. I was rated high in marksmanship at the school, you know. Nymph puzzled over it. Uh, yes, I, I did hear some rumor there was a strange animal out in the zoo, as you call it. Somebody, uh, one of the mine directors, I think. Yes, Char it was, laughing about it. It's no laughing matter if it affects pay and profits, glowered Turl. True, very true. Char always was a fool. So you have an animal under testing that could replace personnel. Well, well, remarkable. Now, if you will give me a blanket requisition on transport... Oh, well, uh, is there any chance of seeing this animal? 
You know, to see what it could do. The death benefits we have to pay on equipment accidents would themselves tip the profit loss scale if they didn't exist or were minimized. There's also machine damage potential. Yes, the home office doesn't like machine damage. I've only had it a few weeks, and it will take a little time to train it on a machine. But yes, I think I could arrange for you to see what it could do. Fine. Just get it ready and let me know. You say you're training it? You know it is illegal to teach an inferior race metallurgy or battle tactics. You aren't doing that, are you? No, no, no. Just machine operation. The push-pull of buttons and levers is all. Have to teach it to talk to be able to give it orders. I'll arrange for a demonstration when it's ready. Now, if you could just give me a blanket requisition. When I've seen the test, there will be time enough. Turl had risen out of his chair, the prepared sheets of requisitions half out of his pocket. He put them back. He'd have to think of some other way, but he was good at that. The meeting had come off pretty well. He was not feeling too bad. And then Numph dropped the mine bucket on him. Turl, I certainly appreciate this backup. But just the other day, there was a dispatch from home office about your continued tour of duty here. They plan in advance, you know. But in this case, they needed a security chief with field experience on home planet. I'm thankful I turned it down. I recommended you for another 10-year tour of duty. I had only two years left to run. Gagged, Turl. I know, I know. But good security chiefs are valuable. It will do your record no harm to show you are in demand. Turl made it to the door. Standing in the passageway, he felt horribly ill. He had trapped himself, trapped himself right here on this cursed planet. The glittering vein of gold lay in the mountains. His plans were going well in all other ways. It would take perhaps two years to get those forbidden riches and the end of this duty tour would have been a personal triumph. Even the man-thing was shaping up. Everything had been running so well. And now, ten years more. Diseased crap! He couldn't stand that! Leverage. He had to have leverage on Numph. Big leverage. Part 2, Chapter 9 The explosion had been sharp and loud, completely unlike the dull roar that every five days regularly shook the cage and compound. With some skill and agility, Johnny had found that he could go up the bars, using a cage corner, and bracing himself there, look far and wide across the plains to the mountains and down on the domed compound of the Cyclos. Feet braced against the crossbars, 
He could almost relax in this precarious position. Winter had come. The mountains for some time now had been white, but today they were invisible under white-gray skies. To the east of the compound there lay a curious huge platform. It was surrounded by widely spaced poles and wires. It had a flooring that was bright and shiny, some sort of metal. At its southern edge there was a domed structure from which cyclos came and went. At the northern side of it was a different kind of field, a field where strange cylindrical craft arrived and departed. The craft would land with a cloud of dust. Their sides would open and rock and chunks of things would spill out and the vessel would rise again into the air and fly away, dwindling to nothingness beyond the horizon. The dumped material would be pushed onto a belt that ran between towers, carrying the load over to the huge area of bright and shiny flooring. Through the days, craft after craft would come, and by the fifth day there would be an enormous pile of material mounded up on the platform. It was then that the most mysterious thing would occur. At exactly the same time of the day, exactly every fifth day, there would be a humming. The material on the platform would glow briefly. Then there would be a roar like a low thunderclap, and the material would vanish. It was this one feature of all the mysteries that surrounded him on his post at the top of the bars that riveted his attention. Where did it go? There it would be, a small mountain of material, and then, hum, roar, bang, it would be gone. Nothing ever reappeared on that shiny platform. The material was brought in by those flying objects, taken over by the belt, and there it vanished. Johnny had seen it happen often enough now that he could predict the minute, hour, and day. He knew the dome to the south would light up, the wires around the platform would vibrate and hum, and then roar bang, the piled material would be gone. But that wasn't what had happened down there today. One of the machines that pushed the material onto the belt had blown up. A swarm of cyclos were down there around it now. They were doing something with the driver, and a couple more were putting out a fire on the machine itself. The machines had big blades in front and were covered with a transparent dome where the driver sat. But the dome was off that one now, apparently blown off. A squat vehicle came up. The driver had been stretched out on the ground. They now put the body in a basket and put it into the squat vehicle, which was driven away. Another machine with a blade came over and pushed the damaged vehicle off to one side out of the way, and then went back to pushing material onto the belt. The cyclos went back to their machines and the dome. An accident of some sort, thought Johnny. He hung there for a while, but nothing else was going on. Yes, there was. His cage bars were trembling. But this was near to hand and ordinary. It was footsteps of the cyclo who kept him caged. Johnny slid down to the floor. The monster came to the door and unfastened it and entered. He glared at Johnny. The monster was quite unpredictable of late. He seemed calm one time and ruffled and impatient the next. Right now, he was very impatient. He made a savage gesture at Johnny and then at the language machine. 
Johnny took a deep breath. Every waking hour for months, he had been at that machine, working, working, working. But he had never spoken a word to the monster. He did so now. In Cyclo, Johnny said, Broke. The monster looked at him curiously. Then it went over to the machine and pushed down the lever. It didn't work. The monster shot a glare at Johnny as though Johnny had broken it, and then picked the machine up and looked under it. That was quite a feat in Johnny's eyes, for he himself couldn't budget an inch on the table. The machine had just quit that morning, shortly before the explosion. Johnny moved closer to see what the monster was doing. It removed a small plate in the bottom, and a little button dropped out. The monster read some numbers on the button, and then laid the machine on its side, and left the cage. He came back shortly with another button, put it in the same place, and put the plate back on. He righted the machine, and touched the lever. The disc turned, and the machine said, Forgive me, but addition and subtraction. And the monster put it in neutral. The monster pointed a talon at Johnny, and then urgently back at the machine. Johnny plunged again. In Cyclo, he said, No, all those. Need new records. The monster looked at the thick original sheaf of recordings, hundreds of hours of them. It looked at Johnny. Its face was grim, back of its face mask. Johnny was not sure he wasn't going to get knocked halfway across the cage. Then the monster seemed to make up its mind. It yanked the pack of discs out of the back of the machine and left. Shortly, it returned with a new, thicker stack of discs and shoved them into the storage compartment of the machine. It took the old disc off and put the next sequentially numbered one on. Then it pointed at Johnny and back at the machine. Plainly, Johnny was supposed to get to work and get to work now. Johnny took a deep breath. In Cyclo, he said, Man does not live on raw rat meat and dirty water. The monster just stood there, staring at him. Then it sat down in the chair and looked at him some more. Part 2, Chapter 10 Turl knew leverage when he saw it. As a veteran security officer, he depended on leverage at every turn, and advantage, and blackmail, a method of forcing compliance. And now it was turned around. This man-thing had sensed that it had leverage. He sat there studying the man-thing, did it have any inkling of the plans? No, of course not. Possibly he had been too insistent day after day so that this thing sensed he wanted something of it. Possibly he had been too indulgent. He had gone to the trouble every day or two to go out and shoot rats for it. And earlier, hadn't he gotten it water? And look at all the cunning and difficulty of establishing what it ate. Here it stood, brave and strong, 
telling him it didn't eat that. Turl looked at it more closely. Well, not brave and strong. It looked pretty sickly, really. It had a worn robe around it, and yet it was almost blue with the coldness of the day. He glanced over at the pond. It was frozen over, dirt and all. He looked around further. The cage wasn't as dirty as it might have been. The thing evidently buried its jobs. Animal, said Turl. You had better get to work if you know what is good for you. Bluster sometimes made it, even when one didn't have leverage. The winter weather, said Johnny in Cyclo, is bad for the machine. At night and in rain or snow, I keep it covered with a deer hide from my pack. But the dampness is not good for it. It is becoming tarnished. Turl almost laughed. It was so funny to hear this animal actually speaking Cyclo. True, there was some accent. Probably Chinko. No, maybe not Chinko, since all the polite phrases, the forgive me's and pardon me's Turl had heard when he checked the records, were not there. Turl had never met a Chinko since they were all dead, but he had met a lot of subject races on other planets and they were carefully servile in their speech, as they should be. Animal! You may know the words, but you do not understand a proper attitude. Shall I demonstrate? Johnny could have been launched on a flight to the bars with one sweep of those huge paws. He drew himself up. My name is not Animal. It is Johnny Goodboy Tyler. <sighs> Turl absolutely gaped at him. The effrontery, the bald gall of this thing. He hit him. The collar almost broke Johnny's neck as the rope brought him up short. Turl stalked out of the cage and slammed the door. The ground shook like an earthquake as he stamped away. He had almost reached the outer door of the compound when he stopped. He stood there, thinking. Turl looked at the gray-white world, felt the cold glass of his face mask cutting his gaze. Blast this stinking planet. He turned around and walked back to the cage. He opened the door and went over to the man-thing. He picked it up, wiped the blood off its neck with a handful of snow, and then put it standing in front of the table. My name is Turl. Now, what were we talking about? He knew leverage when he saw it. But never in their association thereafter did he ever address Johnny as anything other than animal. A cyclo, after all, could not ignore the fact that his was the dominant race. The greatest race in all universes. And this man thing. Ugh. Part 3, Chapter 1. Zit was banging around in the transport repair shop, throwing down tools, discarding parts, and generally making an agitated din. He caught sight of Turl standing nearby 
and he turned on him in an instant attack. Are you at the bottom of this pay cut? Demanded Zit. Mildly, Turl said. That would be the accounting department, wouldn't it? Why is my pay been cut? It's not just your pay. It's also mine and everybody else's. I've got three times the work, no help, and now half the pay. The planet is running at a loss, I'm told. And no bonuses. Hmm. Turl frowned. This was not the time or place for a favor. Leverage. He had no leverage at all these days. Been a lot of machines blowing up lately. Zit stood and looked at him. There was more than a hint of threat in that. One never knew about this, Turl. What do you want? I'm working on a project that could solve all this. That could get our pay and bonuses back. <laughs> Zit ignored that. When a security chief sounded like he was doing favors, watch it. What do you want? If it's successful, we'd even get more pay and bonuses. Look, I'm busy. See these wrecks? I want the loan of a small minecar puller. Zit barked a sharp, sarcastic laugh. Ha! There's one! Blew up yesterday down at the transshipment area. Take that. The small, bladed vehicle had its whole canopy blown off, and the green bloodstains had dried on its panel. Its interior wiring was charred. What I want is a small pulling truck. A simple one. <coughs> Zit went back to throwing tools and parts around. A couple narrowly missed Turl. Well? You got a requisition? Well... Began Turl. I thought so said Zit. He stopped and looked at Turl. You sure you haven't got anything to do with this pay cut? Why? Rumor around you were talking to the planet head. Routine security. Ha! Zit attacked the wrecked, bladed vehicle with a hammer to remove the remains of its pressure canopy. Turl walked away. Leverage. He had no leverage. In deep gloom, he stood in a hallway between domes, lost in thought. He did have a solution of sorts, and there were signs of unrest. He made a sudden decision. A compound intercom was near to hand. He took hold of it and called Numph. Turl here, your planet ship. Could I have an appointment in about an hour? I have something to show you. Thank you, your planet ship. One hour. He hung up, pulled his face mask off a belt hook, donned it, and went outside. Soft snowflakes were drifting down. At the cage, he went straight over to the far end of the flexi-rope and untied it. Johnny had been working at the instruction machine, and he watched Turl warily. Turl, coiling up the rope, did not fail to notice that the man-thing was now using the chair to sit in. A bit arrogant, but it was good news, really. The thing had one of its hides rigged to the bars to keep snow off a sleeping place. There was another one tented over the machine and workplace. 
Turl yanked at the rope. Come along. You promised I could build a fire. Are we going out to get firewood? Asked Johnny. Turl yanked on the rope and forced Johnny to follow him. He went straight to the old Chinko offices and booted open the door. Johnny looked around the place with interest. They were not inside the domes. This was an air-filled place. Dust lay in a blanket and stirred as they walked through the interior. There were papers scattered about, even books. There were charts on the walls. Johnny saw that this was where the desk and chair had come from, for many just like them stood about. Turl opened a locker and brought out a face mask and bottle. He hauled Johnny close to him and slammed the mask over his face. Johnny batted it off. It was quite large. It was also full of dust. Johnny found a rag in the locker and wiped the mask out. He examined the fastenings and discovered they were adjustable. Turl was rummaging around and finally came up with a small pump. He put a fresh power cartridge in the pump, connected it to the bottle, and began filling it with air. What is this? Asked Johnny. Huh? Shut up, animal. If it is supposed to work like yours, why do you have different bottles? Turl kept on pumping up the air bottle. Johnny threw down the mask and sat down against the locker door, looking the other way. The amber eyes slitted. More mutiny, thought Turl. Leverage. Leverage. He didn't have any. All right. Said Turl, disgusted. That is a Chinko air mask. Chinkos breathe air. You breathe air. You have to have it to go in the compound or you'll die. My bottles contain proper breathe gas. And the compound domes are filled with breathe gas, not air. Now, satisfied? You can't breathe air, said Johnny. Turl controlled himself. You can't breathe breathe gas. Cyclos come from a proper planet that has proper breathe gas. You, animal, would die there. Put on that Chinko mask. Did the Chinkos have to wear these in the compound? I thought I told you. Where are the Chinkos? Where? Where? Said Turl, thinking he was correcting the thing's grammar. It already spoke with an accent. High and squeaky, too. Not a proper bass. Irritating. They're not here anymore? Turl was about to tell him to shut up when a streak of sadism took over. No. They're not here anymore. The Chinkos are dead. The whole race of them. And you know why? Because they tried to strike. They refused to work and do as they were told. Ah, said Johnny. It came together for him. One more piece of evidence that added up to the smoke on the belt buckle design. The Chinkos had been another race. They had worked long and hard for the Cyclos. Their reward had been extermination. It bore out his estimate of the Cyclo character. Johnny looked around at the shambles. The Chinkos must have been killed a long time ago. See this gauge? Said Turl, pointing to the air bottle he had now filled. It registers one zero zero when the bottle is full. As it is used up, this needle goes down. 
When it gets as low as five, you're in trouble and will run out of air. There's an hour of air in the bottle. Watch the gauge. Seems like there should be two bottles and one should carry the pump, said Johnny. Turl looked at the air bottle and saw it had clamps on it for a mate, and there was a pocket for the pump. He had not bothered to look at the labels and directions on the bottle. Shut up, animal, Turl said. But he filled a second bottle, joined it to the first, and put the pump in the slot between them. Roughly, he put the mask and rig on Johnny. Now hear me, animal. We are going inside the compound, and I am going to talk to a very important executive. His planet ship himself. You are to speak not one word. And you are going to do exactly what you are told to do. Understand, animal? Johnny looked at him through the Chinko faceplate. If you don't obey, all I have to do is pull your face mask loose and you'll go into convulsions. Turl didn't like the look he always got from those ice blue eyes. He yanked the lead rope. Let's go, animal. Part 3, Chapter 2 <sighs> Numph was nervous. He looked at Turl uncertainly as the security chief entered. Mutiny, said Numph. Not so far, said Turl. What do you have there? Turl yanked on the lead rope to pull Johnny from behind him. <sighs> I wanted to show you the man thing. Numph sat forward at his desk and stared. A nearly naked, unfurred animal. Two arms, two legs. Yes, there was fur. On its head and lower face. Strange, ice-blue eyes. Don't let it pee on the floor. Look at its hands. Manually adept. You sure there's no mutiny? Said Numph. The news was released this morning. I haven't heard any response from two continents yet. The mine site's there. They probably aren't very pleased, but no mutiny yet. If you look at these hands... I'll watch the ore output carefully. They might try to cut that down. Won't mean anything. We're pretty short of personnel. There are no maintenance mechanics left in transport. They've all been transferred to operations to up production. Told there's widespread unemployment on the home planet. Maybe I should pull in more personnel. <sighs> Turl sighed. Bumbling fool. With reduced pay and no bonuses, and this planet being as awful as it is, I shouldn't think you'd get many takers. Now this animal here. Yes, that's so. I should have brought in more personnel before we cut the pay. You sure there's no mutiny? Turl plunged. Well, the best way to halt a mutiny is to promise upped production. And within a year, 
I think we can replace 50% of our outside machine and vehicle operators with these. Damn, he wasn't getting through. It hasn't peed on the floor, has it? Said Numph, leaning forward to look. Really? That thing smells bad. It's these untanned hides it wears. It doesn't have any proper clothes. Clothes? Would it wear clothes? Yes, I believe it would, your planet ship. All it has right now is hides. As a matter of fact, I have a couple of requisitions here. He advanced to the desk and laid them there for signature. Leverage. Leverage. He didn't have any leverage on this fool. I just had this place cleaned. Now it will have to be ventilated thoroughly. What are these things? He added, looking at the requisitions. You wanted a demonstration that this man-thing could operate machines. One of those is for general supplies, and the other is for a vehicle. They're marked urgent. Well, we have to raise hope fast if we want to avoid a mutiny. Eh, uh, that's so... Numph was reading the whole requisition form, even though he had seen thousands of them. Johnny stood patiently. Every detail of this interior was being taken in. The breathe gas ports, the material of the dome, the strips that held it together. These cyclos didn't wear masks inside, and for the first time he was seeing their faces. They were almost human faces, except they had bones for eyebrows and eyelids and lips. They had amber orb eyes, like those of wolves. He was beginning to be able to read their emotions as they related to their expressions. When they had come down the compound halls, they had passed several cyclos, and these had looked at him with curiosity, but they had looked at Turl with outright hostility. Apparently, he had some special job or rank that wasn't popular. But then, all the relationships among these people were hostile, one to another. Numph eventually looked up. You really think one of those things could run a machine? You said you wanted a demonstration. I have to have a vehicle to train it. Oh, then it isn't trained yet. So how do you know? Damn, thought Turl. This fool was worse than he had thought. But wait, there was something bothering Numph. There was something Numph was not talking about. The intuition of a security chief always sensed it. Leverage. Leverage. If he could know this, maybe he'd have leverage. He'd have to keep his eyes and ears open. It learned to operate an instruction machine very quickly, your planet ship. Instruction? Yes. It can read and write its own language now, and can speak, read, and write Cyclo. No! Turl turned to Johnny. Greet his planet ship. Johnny fastened his eyes on Turl. He said nothing. Speak, said Turl loudly, and in an undertone added, You want that face mask ripped off? Johnny said, I think Turl wants you to sign the requisitions so that I can be trained to operate a machine. If you ordered it, you should sign it. It was as though he had said nothing at all. Numph was looking out the window, thinking about something. Then his nostrils flared. <sighs> that thing certainly stinks. 
It will be gone just as soon as I get the requisitions signed. Yes, yes, said Numph. He dashed initials on the forms. Turl took them quickly and started to leave. Numph leaned uh -huh. forward and looked. It didn't pee on the floor, did it? Part 3, Chapter 3. Turl had had no sleep and two fights already today, and he was in no mood for a third. The snow was drifting down on a gray-white day, covering the half-wrecked, small, bladed vehicle, deepening on the broad expanse beyond the zoo. The man-thing looked utterly ridiculous in the huge cyclo seat. Turl snorted. The first fight had been over the uniform requisition. The clothing shop foreman, a mangy half-wit named Druck, had maintained that the requisition was forged. He had even said that, knowing Turl, he did not doubt it. And he had had the effrontery to verify it with an administrator. Then Druck had said he didn't have any uniforms that size, and he wasn't in the habit of outfitting midgets, and neither was the company. Cloth, yes, he had cloth but it was executive cloth. Then the animal had spoken up and said that under no circumstances would it wear purple. Turl had batted it, but it got up and said the same thing again. Leverage, leverage, damn not having leverage on this animal. But Turl had had an inspiration and had gone out to the old Chinko quarters and found a bale of the blue stuff the Chinkos had once worn. The tailor said it was trash, but he could think of no more arguments. It had taken an hour to hack out and fuse together two uniforms for the man-thing. And then, it had refused to wear a regulation company buckle on the belt. Almost had a fit, in fact. Turl had had to go back to the Chinko quarters and dig around until he found what must have been an artifact. A small gold military buckle with an eagle and arrows on it. At least that made an impression on the man-thing. Its eyes had just about popped out. The second fight had been with Zit. First, Zit wouldn't talk at all. Then he finally condescended to look at the requisition. He pointed out that there were no registration numbers in the blanks provided, and maintained that this authorized him to provide anything he cared to, at his own discretion. He said Turl could have the wrecked-bladed vehicle. It was a write-off, but it still ran. That was what had brought on the actual blows. Turl had hit Zit hard, and they had gone around and around for almost five minutes, blow and counterblow. Turl had finally tripped over a tool dolly and gotten himself kicked. He had taken the wrecked-bladed vehicle. He had to walk beside it, running it, to get it out through the garage atmosphere port. He now had the animal on it, and it looked like another fight. <sighs> What's this... Green stuff all over the seat and floor, said Johnny. The gently falling snow was covering it, but it turned patches of the snow pale green as it dissolved. At first, Turl wasn't going to answer. Then his sadistic streak got the better of him. 
That's blood. It isn't red. Cyclo blood isn't red. It's real blood, and it's a proper color. Green. Now shut up, animal. I'm going to tell you how. What's all this charred stuff around the edges of this big circle? And Johnny pointed to the edges where the canopy had once been. Turl hit him. Johnny almost flew off the huge high seat where he had been standing. But with some agility, he caught hold of a roll bar and didn't fall. I have to know, said Johnny when he caught his breath. How can I be sure somebody didn't press the wrong button and blow this thing up? <sighs> Turl sighed. The arms of the man-thing weren't long enough to reach the controls, and he'd have to stand up on the floor plates to run it. They didn't push any wrong button, it just blew up. But how? Something must have made it blow up. Then he realized that this was the vehicle that had killed a cyclo down on the landing field. He himself had heard it explode. Johnny pushed away some snow and sat down on the seat and looked the other way. All right! Snarled Turl. When these vehicles are run by cyclo-operators, they have a transparent hood over them. That is needed for breathe gas. You won't be using any canopy or breathe gas, animal, so it won't blow up. Yes, but why did it blow up? I have to know if I'm going to run the thing. Turl sighed long and shudderingly. Exasperation made his fangs great. The animal was sitting there looking the other way. Breathe gas was under the canopy. They were loading gold ore, and it must have had a trace of uranium in it. There must have been a leak in the canopy, or a crack, and the breathe gas touched the uranium and exploded. Uranium? Uranium? You're pronouncing it wrong. It's uranium. How do you say it in English? That was enough. How the crap nebula would I know? Snapped Turl. Johnny carefully didn't smile. Uranium, uranium, he said to himself. It blew up breathe gas. And he had incidentally learned that Turl could not speak English. Which controls are which? Turl was mollified a trifle. At least the animal wasn't looking the other way. This button stops it. Learn that button good, and if anything else goes wrong, push it. This bar turns it to the left, that one to the right. This lever lifts the front blade, that one tilts it, the next one angles it. The red button backs it up. Johnny stood on the floor plates. He made the front blade lift, tilt, and angle peering over the hood each time to see what was happening. Then he made the blade lift well up. See that grove of trees over there? Start it toward them. Dead slow. Turl walked beside the vehicle. Now stop it. Johnny did. Now back it up. Johnny did. Now go forward in a circle. Johnny did. Although Turl seemed to think this was a small vehicle, the seat was 15 feet off the ground. The blade was 20 feet wide. And when it started up, it shook not only itself, but the ground. Such was its heavy power. Now, start pushing snow. Just a couple of inches off the top. 
It was very difficult at first, getting the blade to bite in varying degrees while the machine rolled forward. Turl watched. It was cold. He had had no sleep. His fangs ached where Zit had landed a good one. He clambered up on the vehicle and took Johnny's rope and wrapped it around a roll bar, tying it at a distance where Johnny wouldn't be able to get to it. Johnny stopped the vehicle, ready for a breather. Why didn't Numph hear me speaking? Asked Johnny. Shut up, animal. But I have to know. Maybe my accent is too bad. Your accent is awful. But that isn't the reason. You had a face mask on and Numph is a bit deaf. This was a plain, outright security chief lie. Numph had been able to hear all right, and the animal's face mask had not muffled his speech a bit. Numph had been distracted by something else. Something Turl didn't know. And the reason Turl had had no sleep was that he had spent the entire night rummaging through dispatches, records, and Numph's files trying to get to the bottom of it. Leverage. Leverage. That's what Turl needed. He had found nothing of importance, nothing at all. But there was something. Turl felt dead on his feet. He was going in to take a nap. I have some reports to write. You just keep this thing going round and practice with it. I'll be out soon. Turl took a button camera out of his pocket and stuck it on the after roll bar, out of the animal's reach. Don't get any ideas. This vehicle only goes at a walk. And he left. But the nap, aided by a heavy shot of Kerbango, was a bit longer than he intended, and it was nearly dark when he came lumbering hurriedly back. He stopped and stared. The practice field was all chewed up, but that wasn't the amazing thing. The animal had neatly knocked down half a dozen trees and pushed them all the way up the hill to the cage where they were now stacked. More. He had used the blade drop to slice up the trees into sections a few feet long and slit them. The animal was sitting on the seat now, hunkered down out of the keening wind that had sprung up. Turl untied the rope, and Johnny stood up. What's that all about? said Turl, pointing at the chopped up trees. Firewood, said Johnny. Now that I'm untied, I will carry some into the cage. Firewood? Let's say I'm tired of a diet of raw rat, my friend. That night, having eaten his first cooked food in months, and thawing the winter chill from his bones before the pleasant fire on the cage floor, Johnny heaved a sigh of relief. The new clothes were hung up on sticks to dry. He sat cross-legged, digging into his pouch. He drew out the gold metal disc, and then he reached for the gold belt buckle he had just acquired. He studied them. The bird with the arrows was essentially the same on each one. And now he could read the squiggles. The disc said, the United States of America. The belt buckle said, the United States Air Force. So his people long ago had been a nation, and it had had a force of some sort devoted to the air. The Cyclos wore belt buckles that said they were members of the Intergalactic Mining Company. With a smile that would have frightened Turl had he seen it, Johnny supposed that he was, as of this minute, a member, the only member, of the United States Air Force. 
He put the buckle carefully under a piece of robe he used for a pillow and lay for a long time looking at the dancing flames. Part 3, Chapter 4 The mighty planet Cyclo, king of the galaxies, basked beneath the forceful rays of triple suns. The courier stood to the side of Intergalactic's transshipment receipt area, waiting. Above him, the mauve skies domed the purple hillsides of the horizon. All about him spread the smoke-spewing factories, the power lines, the tense and crackling might of the company. Machines and vehicles boiled in purposeful turmoil throughout the multi-layered roads and plains of the vast compound. In the distance lay the pyramidal shapes of the Imperial City. Spotted among the outlying hills were the compounds of many other companies, factories that spewed out their products to whole galaxies. Who would be elsewhere, thought the courier, he sat astride his small ground-go, momentarily idle in his daily rounds, waiting. Who would want to live and toil on some forgotten light-gravity planet, wearing a mask, working under domes, driving pressurized vehicles, digging in alien soil? Or drafted, fighting some war on territory nobody cared about anyway? Not this, Cyclo. That was for sure. A shrieking whistle pierced the day. The warning signal to get clear of the transshipment receipt platform, chasing away a fleet of blade, brush, and vacuum vehicles that had been clearing it. The courier automatically checked his own proximity. Good. He was outside the danger area. The network of lines and cables about the platform hummed. Then they shrieked into a crescendo that ended with a roaring explosion. Tons of ore materialized on the platform surface, teleported in an instant across the galaxies. The courier gazed through the momentarily ionized air. Look at that. The incoming ore had a crust of whitish substance overlying it. The courier had seen it before from time to time. Somebody said it was called snow. Trickles of water took the place of the flakes. Imagine having to work and live on a crazy planet like that. The all-clear signal sounded, and the courier gunned his ground-go forward to the new ore heap. The receipt foreman rumbled out to the new pile of ore. Look at that, said the courier. Snow. The receipt foreman had seen it all, knew it all, and held junior couriers in contempt. It's bauxite, not snow. It had some snow on it when it landed. The receipt foreman scrambled over to the right side of the pile and fished around. He brought up a small dispatch box. Standing on the ore, he noted the box number on his clipboard and then brought it over to the courier. Blade vehicles were charging in on the new pile. The receipt foreman impatiently handed the clipboard to the courier, who signed. 
The box was thrown at him. He threw back the clipboard and it caught the receipt foreman on his massive chest. The courier gunned his ground go and swiftly threaded his way through the incoming machines, speeding toward the Intergalactic Central Administration compound. A few minutes later, a clerk, carrying the box, walked into the office of Zafin, junior assistant to the deputy director for secondary uninhabited planets. The office was little more than a cubicle, for space at Intergalactic Central housed 300,000 administrative personnel. Zafin was a young, ambitious executive. What's that box doing wet? He said. The clerk, who was about to set it down among papers, hastily withdrew it, got out a cloth, and dried it. He looked at the label. It's from Earth. Must be raining there. Typical, said Zafin. Where's that? The clerk tactfully hit a projector button, and a chart flared on the wall. The clerk shifted the focus, peered, and then put a claw on a small dot. Zaffin wasn't bothering to look. He had opened the dispatch box and was sorting the dispatches to different departments under him, zipping an initial on those that required it. He was almost finished when he held up a dispatch that required some work and couldn't just be initialed. He looked at it with distaste. Oh, green flashed urgent, said Zaffin. The clerk took it apologetically and read it. It's just a request for information. Huh, too high a priority, said Zaffin. He took it back. Here we have three wars in progress and somebody from... Where? Earth, said the clerk. Oh, who sent it? The clerk took the dispatch back and looked. A security chief named... named Turl. Uh, what's his record? The clerk put his talons on a button console, and a wall slot clattered and then spat out a folder. The clerk handed it over. Turl, said Zaffin. He frowned, thinking. Haven't I heard that name before? The clerk took back the folder and looked at it. He requested a transfer about five months ago, our time. Steel trap brain, that's me. And he meant it. He took the folder back. Never forget a name. He leafed through the papers. Must be a dead, dull place, Earth. And now a dispatch with wrong priority. The clerk took the folder back. Zaffin frowned. Well, where's the dispatch? On your desk, Your Honor. Zaffin looked at it. He wants to know what connections. Numph? Numph? The clerk worked the console and a screen flashed. Intergalactic Director, Earth. This turtle wants to know what connections he has in the main office, said Zaffin. The clerk pushed some more buttons. The screen flashed. The clerk said, He's the uncle of Nipe, Assistant Director of Accounting for Secondary Planets. <laughs> well, write it on the dispatch and send it back. It's also marked confidential. Well, mark it confidential, said Zaffin. He sat back, thinking. He turned his chair and looked out the window at the distant city. The breeze was cool and pleasant. It dissipated some of his irritation. Zaffin turned back to his desk. Well, we won't discipline this... what's his name? Turl. Turl. Just put it in his record that he assigns two high priorities to nonsense. 
He's simply young and ambitious and doesn't know much about being an executive. We don't need a lot of excess and incorrect administration around here. You understand that? The clerk said that he did, and backed out with the box and its contents. He wrote into Turl's record, Assigns too high priorities to nonsense. Young, ambitious, and unskilled as an executive. Ignore further communications. The clerk grinned wickedly in his own little cubicle as he realized the description also fit Zaffin. He put the answer to Turl's dispatch on it in a precise, clerkly calligraphy, and didn't even bother to file a copy. In a few days, it would be teleported back to Earth. The mighty, imperious, and arrogant world of Cyclo hummed on. Part 3, Chapter 5. The day for the demonstration had arrived, and Turl went into a flurry of activity. Up early, he had again put the animal through its paces. He had made it drive the blade machine up and down and up and down and around and around. Turl had pushed it so hard that the machine had finally run out of fuel. Well, he could fix that. He went to see Zit. You don't have a requisition, said Zit. But it's just a fuel cartridge. I know, I know, but I have to account for them. Turl grated his fangs. Leverage, leverage, all was leverage. And he didn't have anything at all on Zit. Suddenly Zit halted what he was doing. There was a flicker of a smile on his mouth bones. It made Turl suspicious. Tell you what I will do, said Zit. After all, you did give up five recon drones. I'll just check out that blade machine. Zit put on a face mask and Turl followed him outside. The animal was sitting on the machine, collared, the lead rope firmly fastened to a roll bar. It was kind of bluish and shivering in the bitter wind of late winter. Turl ignored it. The hood popped up as Zit released the catches. I'll just make sure it's all functional, he said, his voice muffled by his face mask, and further muffled because his head was in the motor mounts. Old machine. It's a wreck machine, said Turl. Yes, 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 said Zit, busily pulling and pushing connections. <clears throat> but you got it, didn't you? The animal was watching everything Zit did. It was standing there on the top edge of the instrument panel, looking down. You left a wire loose, said the animal. Ah, so I did. You talk? I think you heard me. Yes, I did hear you. And I also heard no proper polite phrases. Turl snorted. <clears throat> it's just an animal. What do you mean, polite phrases? To a mechanic? Well, there, said Zit, ignoring Turl. 
I think that will be fine in there. He pulled out a power cartridge and shoved it into the casing and screwed on the cap. Start it up! Turl reached over and pushed a button, and the machine seemed to run all right. Zit turned it off for him. I understand you're giving some kind of a demonstration today. I never seen no animal drive. Mind if I come out and watch? Turl eyed him. He didn't have any leverage on Zit, and all this cooperation and interest was out of character. But he couldn't put a talon on anything wrong. Come ahead. He grunted. It'll take place here in an hour. He would kick himself later. But right now, he had a lot on his mind. C could I get warmed up? Said Johnny. Shut up, animal! Said Turl, and he rushed off into the compound. Nervously, Turl waited in the outer office of Numph. One of the clerks had announced him, but there had been no invitation to enter. Finally, after 45 minutes, he scowled another clerk into announcing him again, and this time, he was signaled to enter. Numph had nothing on his desk but a saucepan of Kerbango. He was looking at the mountain view through the canopy wall. Turl scratched his belt to make a small noise. Numph eventually turned around and gave him an absent look. The demonstration you ordered can take place right away. Everything is already your planet ship. Does this have a project number? Said Numph. Turl hastily made up a number. Project 39A. Your planet ship. I thought that had to do with new site recruitment. Turl had saved himself by adding an A, which no projects had. That was probably 39. This is 39A. Substitution of personnel... Oh, yes. Uh, transferring more personnel from home. No, your planet ship. You remember the animal, of course. Recollection cut into Numph's fog. Ah, yes. The animal. And he just sat there. Leverage, leverage, thought Turl. He had no leverage on this old fool. He had combed the offices inside and out, and could find none. The home office had merely said he was the uncle of Nipe, assistant director of accounting for secondary planets. All this meant, apparently, was that he had his job by influence and was a known incompetent. At least, that was all Turl could make out of it. Obviously, Numph was not going to stir. Turl could see his plans crumbling. He would wind up just vaporizing that damned animal and forgetting it. And all for lack of leverage. Behind his impassive face, Turl was thinking so hard sparks were flashing internally. I'm afraid, said Numph. That, uh... Hastily, Turl interrupted. Don't let him say it. Don't let him condemn me to this planet. The inspiration was on his lips in a miraculous bypass of his thinking. Have you heard from your nephew lately? He said. He meant it socially. He was about to add a lie that he had known Nipe in school. But the effect was out of proportion. Numph jerked forward and looked at him closely. It was not much of a jerk, but it was enough. There was something there. Turl said nothing. Numph kept looking at him, seeming to wait. Was Numph afraid? He had started to say so, 
but that was a figure of speech. There's no reason to be afraid of the animal, said Turl, smoothly, easily, deliberately misinterpreting things. It doesn't bite or scratch. Numph just kept on sitting there, but what was that in his eyes? You ordered the demonstration, and it's already your plenership. Ah, yes, the demonstration. If you'll just get a mask and come outside. Ah, yes, of course. The intergalactic head of the planet drank off the carbango in steady gulps, got up, and took his face mask off the wall. He went into the hall and signaled some of his staff to put on their breathe masks and follow. And then, with many slit-eyed, darting glances at Turl, he walked with him to the outside air. A mystified Turl was jubilant, nevertheless. The old fellow positively reeked with fear. The plan was going to come off. Part 3, Chapter 6 Johnny sat high on the blade machine. The aching cold wind blew puffs of snow, momentarily obscuring the compound. Johnny's attention was caught by the approaching crowd. Their combined footfalls made the earth shake. The place chosen for the demonstration was a small plateau jutting out from the compound. It was a few thousand square feet in extent, but ended in a sharp-edged cliff that dropped more than 200 feet into a ravine. There was room to maneuver, but one had to stay away from that edge. Turl came stomping toward him through the light snow. He stepped up on a lower frame of the blade machine to put his huge face near Johnny's. See that crowd, said Turl. Johnny looked at them. They were gathered by the compound. Zit was over to their left. See this speaker? He jostled a speaking horn thing in his hand. He had used it before in the drilling. See this blaster? Said Turl. And he patted a belt handgun he had buckled on. A huge thing. If you do one thing wrong, or foul up in any way, I will gun you right off that rig. You'll be very dead. Splattered dead. Turl reached up and made sure the leash was secure. He had wrapped it around the roll bar and welded the end to the rear bumper. It didn't leave much room for Johnny to move. His instructions had gone unheard by the small crowd. Now, Turl approached them and turned, stood with his huge feet apart, seemed to swell, and yelled, Start it up! Johnny started it up. He felt uneasy. A sixth sense was biting him, like when you had a puma behind you that you hadn't seen. It wasn't Turl's threats, it was something else. He looked over the crowd. Raise the blade! Roared Turl through the horn. Johnny did. Lower the blade! Johnny did. Roll it ahead! Johnny did. Back it up! Johnny did. Put it in a circle! Johnny did. 
Now build a mound of snow from all anger! Johnny started maneuvering, handling the controls, taking light scrapes of snow, pushing them to a center. He was doing better than just making a mound. He was building a square-sided pile and leveling off its top. He worked rapidly, backing up, pushing in more snow. The precisely geometric mound took shape. He had just one more run to make inward, a run that would carry him toward the cliff a few hundred feet away. Suddenly, the controls did not respond. There had been a prolonged whirring whine in the guts of the control box, and every knob and lever on the control panel went slack. The blade machine yawed to the right, yawed to the left. Johnny hammered at the slack controls. Nothing bit. The blade abruptly rose high in the air. The machine rumbled relentlessly forward and rose up to the top of the pile, almost somersaulted over backward. At the top, it slammed down flat. Then it almost did a forward flip as it went down the other side. It was rolling straight toward the cliff edge. Johnny punched the kill button time after time, but it had no effect on the roaring engine. He fought the controls. They stayed slack. Wildly, he looked back at the crowd. He got a fleeting impression of Zit off to the side. The brute had something in its paw. Johnny strained at the collar and held him to this deadly machine. He tugged at the flexi-rope. It was as unyielding as ever. The cliff edge was coming nearer. There was a manual blade control to his left, held by a hook. Johnny fought to get the hook loose. If he could drop the blade, it might stick and hold. The hook wouldn't let go. Johnny grabbed in his pocket for a fire flint and banged the flint against the hook. The hook let go. By its own weight, the scraper blade came down in a swooping arc and gouged into the rocky earth. The machine rocked and slowed. There was a small explosion under the hood. An instant later, smoke shot up in the air. And a split second after that, a roaring tongue of flame rose. The cliff edge was only a few feet away. Johnny stared at it for an instant through the growing sheets of flame. The machine edged forward, buckling its scraper blade. Johnny whirled to the roll bar behind him. The flexi-rope was wrapped around and around it. Pressing the rope against the metal, he attacked it with the flint. He had tried it before, with no success, but on the verge of being yanked in flames 200 feet down, hope was all he had left. His back was getting scorched. He turned to face front. The instrument panel was beginning to glow red hot. The machine inched closer to the edge. Small explosions sounded as instruments burst. The searing metal of the panel's upper edge was glowing with heat. Johnny grabbed what slack he had on the flexi-rope and held it against the red-hot metal edge. The rope began to melt. It took all his willpower to hold his hands there. The flexi-rope dripped molten drops. The machine teetered. At any moment, the blade was going to go into vacant space to shoot the machine into thin air. The flexi-rope parted. Johnny went off the machine in a long dive and rolled. With a shuddering groan, the last support of the blade snapped. Flames geysered. As though shot from a catapult, the machine leaped into empty space. 
It struck far below on the slope, bounced, plunged to a stop, and was consumed in fire. Johnny pressed his burned hands into the cooling snow. Part 3, Chapter 7. Turl was looking for Zit. When the machine finally went over, Turl had looked around in sudden suspicion. But Zit wasn't there. The crowd had laughed, especially at the last part of it when the machine went. And their laughter was like daggers in Turl's ears. Numph just stood there, shaking his head. He seemed almost cheerful when he commented to Turl. Well, just shows you what animals can do. <laughs> Only then had he laughed. They pee on the floor! They had drifted back to their offices, and Turl was now searching the transport compound. In the underground floors, he walked past rows and rows of out-of-use vehicles, battle planes, trucks, blade scrapers. Yes and ground cars, some of them quite posh. It had not struck him before how villainous was Zitz pawing off on him of that old wreck of a Mark II. He searched fruitlessly for half an hour and then decided to try the repair room again. Seething, he stomped into it and stared around. His ear bones picked up a tiny whisper of metal on metal. He knew that sound. It was the safety slide being pulled back on a blaster. Stand right there, said Zit. Keep your paws well away from your belt gun. Turl turned. Zit had been standing just inside a dark tool locker. Turl was boiling. You installed a remote control when you fixed that motor. Why not, said Zit. And a remote destruct charge as well. Turl was incredulous. You admit it! No witnesses here. Your word, my word, means nothing. But it was your own machine! Written off. Plenty of machines. But why did you do it? I thought it was pretty clever, actually. He stepped forward, holding the long-barreled blast gun in one hand. But why? You let our pay and bonuses be cut. If you didn't do it, you let it be done. But look, if I could make animal operators, profits would come back. That's your idea. It's a good idea, snapped Turl. All right, I'll be frank. You ever try to keep machines going without mechanics? Your animal operators would have just messed up equipment. One just did, didn't it? You messed that up! You realize that if this occurred on your report, you'd be out of work. It won't occur on my report. 
There are no witnesses. Numph even saw me walk off before the thing went wild. He would never forward the report. Besides, they all thought it was funny. Lots of things can be funny. Zit motioned with the blaster barrel. Why don't you just walk out of here and have a nice crap? Leverage. Leverage, thought Turl. He was fresh out of it. He left the garage. Part 3, Chapter 8 Johnny was a mound of misery in the cage. The monster had pitched him in there before going off. It was cold, but Johnny could not hold a flint in his hands to start a fire. His fingers were a mass of blisters, and somehow, right then, he didn't want much to do with fire. His face was scorched, eyebrows and beard singed away. Some of his hair was gone. The old Chinko uniform cloth must have been fireproof. It had not ignited or melted, thus saving body burns. Bless the Chinkos. Poor devils. With their polite phrases and brightness, they had yet been exterminated. That was one lesson to be learned. Anyone who befriended or sought to cooperate with the Cyclos was doomed from the beginning. Turl had not made one motion in the direction of that burning vehicle to salvage him, knowing he was tied to it. Compassion and decency were no part of the Cyclo character. Turl had even had a gun and could have shot the flexor rope in half. Johnny felt the ground rumble. The monster was in the cage. A boot toe turned him over, slitted. Amber eyes appraised him. You'll live, grunted Turl indifferently. How long will it take you to get well? Johnny said nothing. He just looked up at Turl. You're stupid. You don't know anything about remote controls. Then what could I have done? Tied to the seat, said Johnny. Zip the bastard put a remote control under the hood and a firebomb. How was I supposed to see that? You could have inspected! Johnny smiled thinly. <laughs> Tied to the cab? You know now! When we do it again, I'll- There won't be any again. Turl loomed over him, looking down. Not under these conditions. Shut up, animal! Take off this collar. My neck is burned. Turl looked at the frayed flexi-rope. He went out of the cage and came back with a small welding unit and a new coil of rope. It wasn't flexi-rope. It was thinner and metallic. He burned off the old rope and welded the new one on, ignoring Johnny's effort to twist away from the flame. He fixed the far end of the new rope into a loop and dropped it over a high cage bar out of reach. With Johnny's eyes burning holes in his back, Turl went out of the cage and locked the door. Johnny wrapped himself in the dirty fur of a robe and lay in sodden misery 
beneath the newly fallen snow. Part 4, Chapter 1. It had been a very bad winter in the mountains. Snowslides had early blocked the passes into the high meadow. Chrissy sat quietly and forlornly in front of the council in the courthouse. The wind whined and moaned through the gaps in the walls, and the fire that had been built in the center of the room sent harried palls of smoke into the faces of the council. Parson Staffer lay very ill in a nearby hut. The winter had sapped what little vitality he had, and his place was taken by the older Jimson man they were now calling Parson. Jimson was flanked by an elder named Clay, and by Brown Limper Staffer, who seemed to be acting as a council member, even though he was far too young and club-footed. He had begun to sit in for Parson Staffer when he became ill and had just stayed on, grown into a council member now. The three men sat on an old bench. Chrissy, across the fire from them, was not paying much attention. She had had a horrible nightmare two nights ago. A nightmare that had yanked her, sweating out of sleep, and left her trembling ever since. She had dreamed that Johnny had been consumed in fire. He had been calling her name, and it still sounded in her ears. It's just plain foolishness, Parson Jimson was saying to her. There are three young men who want to marry you, and you have no right whatever to refuse them. The village population is dwindling in size. Only 30 have survived the winter. This is not a time to be thinking only of yourself. Chrissy numbly realized he was talking to her. She made an effort to gather the words in. Something about population. Two babies had been born that winter, and two babies had died. The young men had not driven many cattle up from the plains before the pass closed, and the village was half-starved. If Johnny had been here... When spring comes, said Chrissy, I'm going down on the plains to find Johnny. This was no shock to the council. They had heard her say it several times since Johnny left. Brown Limper looked through the smoke at her. He had a faint sneer on his thin lips. The council tolerated him because he didn't ever say much and because he brought them water and food when meetings were too long. But he couldn't resist. We all know Johnny must be dead. The monsters must have got him. Jimson and Clay frowned at him. He had been the one who brought to their attention the fact that Chrissy refused to marry any of the young men. Clay wondered whether Brown Limper didn't have a personal stake in this. Chrissy rallied from her misery. His horses didn't come home. Maybe the monsters got them too, said Brown Limper. Johnny did not believe there were any monsters. He went to find the great village of the legend. Oh, 
There are monsters, all right, said Jimson. It is blasphemy to doubt the legends. Then why don't they come here? The mountains are holy. The snow closed the passes before the horses could come home. That is, if the monsters didn't get them too. The older men looked at him, frowning him to silence. Chrissy, you are to put aside this foolishness and permit the young men to court you. It is quite obvious that Johnny Goodboy Tyler is gone. When the year has gone by, I shall go down to the plains. Chrissy, said Clay, this is simply a suicidal idea. Chrissy looked into the fire. Johnny's scream echoed in her ears from the nightmare. It was completely true what they said. She did not want to live if Johnny was dead. And then the sound of the scream died away, and she seemed to hear him whisper her name. She looked up with a trace of defiance. He is not dead. The three council members looked at each other. They had not prevailed. They would try again some other day. They ignored her and fell to discussing the fact that Parson Staffer wanted a funeral when he died. There wouldn't be much in the way of food, and there were problems of digging in the frozen ground. Of course, he was entitled to a funeral, for he had been parson and maybe even mayor for many years. But there were problems. Chrissy realized she was dismissed, and she got up, eyes red with more than smoke, and walked to the courthouse door. She wrapped the bear skin more tightly about her and looked up at the wintry sky. When the constellation was in that same place in spring, she would go. The wind was cutting keen, and she pulled the bearskin even tighter. Johnny had given her the bearskin, and she fingered it. She would get busy and make him some new buckskin clothes. She would prepare packs. She would not let them eat the last two horses. When the time came, she would be all ready to go. And she would go. A blast of wind from High Peak chilled her, mocked her. Nevertheless, when the time came, she would go. Part 4, Chapter 2 Turl was in a furious burst of activity. He hardly slept. He left the Cabango alone. The doom of years of exile on this cursed planet haunted him. Each time he slowed his pace, he collided with the horrible thought, and it jabbed him into even greater efforts. Leverage, leverage. He conceived himself to be a pauper in leverage. He had a few things on employees here and there, but they were minor things. Peccadillos with some of the cyclo-female clerks. Drunkenness on the job leading to breakage. Tapes of mutterings about foremen. Personal letters smuggled into the teleportation of ore, but nothing big. 
This was not the kind of thing personal fortunes were easily built from. Yet here were thousands of cyclos, and his experience as a security officer told him the odds in favor of finding blackmail material were large. The company did not hire angels. It hired miners and mining administrators, and it hired them tough. In some cases, particularly on a planet like this, no favored spot. The company even winked at taking on ex-criminals. It was a criticism of himself, no less, that he could not get more blackmail than he had. This Numph. Now there was one. He had potential leverage on Numph, but Turl did not know what it was. He knew it had something to do with the nephew, Nipe, in home office accounting. But Turl could not dig out what it really was, and so he dared not push it. The risk lay in pretending to be wise to it, and then by some slip, revealing he didn't have the data. The leverage would go up in smoke, for Numph would know Turl had nothing. So he had to use it so sparingly that it was almost no use at all. Blast! As the days and weeks of winter went on, a new factor arose. His requests for information from the home planet were not being answered. Only that one scrap about Nipe, that was all. It was a trifle frightening. No answers. He could send Green Flash urgents until he wore out his pen, and there wasn't even an acknowledgement. He had even become sly and reported the discovery of a non-existent horde of arms. Actually, it was just a couple of muzzle-loading bronze cannon some workmen had dug up in a mine site on the overseas continent. But Turl had worded the report in such a way that it was alarming, although it could be retracted with no damage to himself. A routine, essential report. And no acknowledgement had come back. None. He had investigated furiously to see whether other departmental reports got like treatment. They didn't. He had considered the possibility that Numph was removing reports from the teleportation box. Numph wasn't. Home office knew he existed, that was for sure. They had confirmed the additional ten-year duty stretch, had noted Numph's commendation affirmative, and had added the clause of company optional extension. So they knew he was alive, and there could not possibly be any action being taken against him or he would have intercepted interrogatories about himself. There had been none. So without any hope of home office cooperation, it was obviously up to Turl to dig himself out. The ancient security maxim was ever present in his mind now. Where a situation is needed, but doesn't exist, make one. His pockets bulged with button cameras, and his skill in hiding them was expert. Every picto recorder he could lay his paws on lined the shelves of his office, and he kept his door locked. Just now, he was glued to a scope, observing the garage interior. He was waiting for Zit to go to lunch. In his belt, Turl had the duplicate keys to the garage. Open beside him was the book of company regulations relating to the conduct of personnel, Security Volume 989 and it was open to Article 34A-4, Uniform Code of Penalties. The article said, Wherein and whereas theft viciously affects profits, and there followed five pages of company theft penalties. 
and whereas and wherefore company personnel also have rights to their monies, bonuses, and possessions, and there followed one page of different aspects of it. The theft of personal monies from the quarters of employees by employees, when duly evidenced, shall carry the penalty of vaporization. That was the key to Turl's present operation. He didn't say theft went on record. He didn't say a word about when it happened as related to when it was to be punished. The key items were when duly evidenced and vaporization. There was no judicial vaporization chamber on this planet, but that was no barrier. A blast gun could vaporize anyone with great thoroughness. There were two other clauses in that book that were important. All company executives of whatever grade shall uphold these regulations, and the enforcement of all such regulations shall be vested in the security officers, their assistants, deputies, and personnel. The earlier one included Numph. He could not even squeak. The latter one meant Turl, the sole and only security officer, or deputy, or assistant, or personnel on this planet. Turl had spot-watched Zit for a couple of days now, and he knew where he kept his dirty work coats and caps. Aha! Zit was leaving. Turl waited to make sure the transport chief did not come back because he had forgotten something. Good. He was gone. With speed, but not to betray himself or alarm anyone by rushing if met in the halls, Turl went to the garage. He let himself in with a duplicate key and went directly to the washroom. He took down a dirty work coat and cap. He let himself out and locked the door behind him. For days now, Turl had also watched, with an artfully concealed button camera, the room of the smaller Chamco brother. He had found what he wanted. After work, the smaller Chamco brother habitually changed from his mine clothes in his room and put on a long coat he affected for dinner and an evening's gambling in the recreation area. More, the smaller Chamco brother always put and kept his cash in the cup of an antique drinking horn that hung on the wall of his room. Turl now scanned the mine site patiently. He finally spotted the smaller Chamco brother exiting from the compound, finished with lunch and boarding the bus to the teleportation transshipment area where he worked. Good. Turl also scanned the compound corridors. They were empty in the berthing areas during work time. Working fast, Turl looked from a stilled picto-recorder frame of Zit to the mirror before him and began to apply makeup. He thickened his eye bones, added length to his fangs, roughed the fur on his cheeks, and labored to get the resemblance exact. What a master of skills one had to be in security. Made up, he donned the work coat and cap. He took 500 credits in bills from his own wallet. The top one, he marked good luck very plainly. He scribbled several different names on it with different pens. He connected a remote control to a picto recorder that was registering the Chamco room, checked everything, and checked the mirror too. One more look at the live view of the garage. Yes. Zit was back, puttering around with a big motor. That would keep him busy for a while. Turl sped down the corridors of the birthing compound, 
He entered the smaller Chamco brother's room with a pass key. He checked the drinking horn on the wall. Yes, it had money in it. He put in the 500 credits. He went back to the door. Ready. He touched the remote control in his pocket. Imitating the rolling walk of Zit, he went over to the drinking horn and with stealthy movements took out the 500 credits, looked around as though fearful of being observed, counted the money, the marked bill plainly in view, and then crept out of the room, closing and locking the door. A berthing attendant saw him from a distance, and he ducked. He got back to his room and swiftly removed the makeup. He put the 500 credits back in his wallet. When the screen showed him Zit had gone for dinner, he returned the cap and work coat to the washroom. Back in his own quarters, Turl rubbed his paws. Leverage. Leverage. Stage one of this lever was done, and he was going to pull it. And good. Part 4, Chapter 3. It was a night that was long remembered by the employees in the recreation area of the mine site. They were not unused to seeing Turl drunk, but tonight, well, the attendant shoveled panful after panful of Kerbango at him, and he took them all. Turl had begun the evening looking depressed, and that was understandable since he wasn't very popular lately, if he ever had been. Char had watched him slit-eyed for a while, but Turl was obviously just bent on getting drunk. Finally, Turl seemed to rouse himself and did a bit of paw-gripping, a game whose object was to see which player couldn't stand it anymore and let go, with some of the mine managers. Turl had lost in every case. He was getting drunker and drunker. And now Turl was heckling the smaller Chamco brother into a game of rings. It was a gambling game, a player took a ring and put it on the back of the paw, and then with the other paw, snapped it off and sailed it at a board. The board had pegs with numbers, the bigger numbers all around the edges. The one that got the biggest number won. Then stakes were put up again and another round occurred. The smaller Chamco brother hadn't wanted to take him on. Turl was usually very good at rings. Then his drunken condition became too alluring and the Chamco let himself be persuaded. They started by putting up 10 credit bets, steep enough for the recreation area. Chamco got a 90, and Turl a 16. Turl insisted upon raising the bets, and the Chamco couldn't refuse, of course. The ring shot by the smaller Chamco brother sizzled through the atmosphere and clanged over a four-peg. The Chamco groaned. Anything could beat that. And lately, he had been saving his money. When he got home, in just a few months now, he was going to buy a wife. And this bet had been 30 credits. Turl went through contortions of motions, put the ring on the back of his paw, sighted across it, and then, with the other paw, sent it like a ray blast at the board. Three. Turl lost. 
As the winner, the smaller Chamco brother couldn't quit, and Turl had taken another pan of Kerbango, leering around at the interested gallery and up to the bets. The onlookers placed some side bets of their own. Turl was reeling drunk. He did have a reputation with this game, which made the odds lower. But he was so obviously drunk that he even faced the wrong direction and had to be turned in the right one. The smaller Chamco brother got 50. Turl got two. Ah, no! You don't quit now! Turl said. The winner can't quit! His words were slurred. I bet... I bet one hundred credits! Well, with pay halved and bonuses gone, nobody was going to object to winning easy money, and the smaller Chamco went along. The audience roared at Turl's bungling as loss after loss occurred, and the smaller Chamco brother found himself standing there with 450 credits. Turl reeled over to the attendant and got another saucepan of Kerbango. As he drank it, he went through his pockets, turning them out one by one. Finally, he came up with a single bill, a bit crumbled and marked all over. My good luck, money! Sobbed Turl. He lurched over to the firing position in front of the board. Chamco too! Just one more crap little bag. You see this bill? The smaller Chamco brother looked the bill over. It was a good luck bill. Mine employees taking off for far places after a final party sometimes exchanged good luck bills. Everybody signed everybody else's bill. And this had a dozen signatures on it. I'm betting my good luck bill. But you gotta promise you won't spend it. And that you'll trade it back to me on payday if I... If I lose it? The smaller Chamco brother had gotten money hungry by now. He was picking up nearly two weeks pay. And the wage cuts had hurt. Yes, he'd promised to do that. As winner... The smaller Chamco brother went first. He had never been very good at rings. He fired and... Ouch! It was a one. Anything but anything would beat it. Turl stared at it. He went drunkenly forward and looked at it closely. He reeled back to the firing line, faced the wrong way, had to be turned, and then zip! He got off a sizzler. It hit the blank wall. With that, Turl passed out. The attendant, helped by the Chamcos and Char and a couple of others, got Turl on a banquet serving trolley that groaned and bent. They wheeled him in a triumphal parade to his quarters, got the key out of his pocket, brought him in, and dumped him on the floor. They were pretty drunk too, and they went away chanting the funeral dirge of the Cyclos in a most feeling way. When they were gone, Turl crawled to the door and closed and locked it. He had taken counter Kerbango pills after dinner, and all he had to do now was get rid of the excess, which he did, tickling his throat with a talon over the wash basin. Quietly then, with great satisfaction, he undressed and got into bed and had a beautiful sleep full of beautiful dreams concerning the beautiful future of Turl.
Part 4. Chapter 4. Johnny heard the monster enter the cage and close the door. In the past few weeks, Johnny's hands and face had healed, and his hair, eyebrows, and beard had grown out. His reflection in the water from the snow he had melted in a pan told him that. He couldn't see any scars on his hands, but they still looked red where they had been burned. He was wrapped in a robe, facing away from the door, and he didn't look around. He had worked late with the instruction machine. Look over here, animal, said Turl. See what I brought you. There was something different in the monster's voice. It seemed jovial, if that were possible. Johnny sat up and looked. Turl was holding up four rats by their tails. Lately, the nearby rat population had been cut down, and Turl had been shooting rabbits and bringing them in. A very welcome change indeed. Yet here were more rats, and the monster thought it was a favor. Johnny lay down again. Turl threw the rats over by the fire. One wasn't quite dead and started to crawl away. Turl flashed his handgun from its holster and blew its head off. Johnny sat up. Turl was putting the gun away. Trouble with you, animal. You have no sense of appreciation. Have you finished the discs on basic electronics? Actually, Johnny had. Turl had brought the discs weeks ago, along with some discs on higher mathematics. He didn't bother to answer. Anybody that could be fooled by remote controls couldn't ever really operate machines, said Turl. He had harped on this before, omitting the truth that it was he who had been fooled. Well, here are some other texts. And you better wrap your rat brain around them if you ever expect to handle machines. Mining machines. Turl threw three books at him. They looked huge, but they were featherweight. One hit Johnny, but he caught the other two. He looked at them. They were cyclotexts, not Chinko translations. One was Control Systems for Beginning Engineers. Another was Electronic Chemistry. The third was Power and Its Transmission. Johnny wanted the books. Knowledge was the key out of captivity. But he put the books down and looked at Turl. Get those into your rat brain and you won't be sending machines over cliffs, said Turl. Then he came nearer and sat down in the chair. He looked closely at Johnny. When are you really gonna start cooperating? Johnny knew this was a very dangerous monster. A monster that wanted something that hadn't been named. Maybe never, said Johnny. Turl sat back, watching Johnny closely. Well, never mind, animal. I see you pretty well recovered from your burn. Your fur is growing back. Johnny knew Turl had no interest in that and wondered what was coming next. You know, animal, you sure had me fooled that first day. Turl's eyes were watchful, but he seemed to be just rambling along. <laughs> I thought you were four-legged! <laughs> he laughed very falsely. It sure was a surprise when you fell apart into two animals. <laughs> he laughed again, amber eyes very cunning. Wonder what happened to that horse? Before he could stop himself, 
Johnny experienced a wave of sorrow over Windsplitter. He choked it off instantly. Turl looked at him. Then he got up and wandered over to the cage door. To himself, Turl was thinking, the horse is a key to this. He had been right. The animal was attached emotionally to that horse. Leverage. Leverage. It came in many guises, and its use was power. <laughs> Turl appeared to be laughing. You sure had me fooled that first day. Well, I've got to be going. Get busy on those books, rat brain! He went out. That's a good one! Rat brain! <laughs> Johnny sat, staring after him. He knew he had betrayed something, and he knew Turl was up to something. But what? Was Wind Splitter alive? Uneasy, Johnny built up the fire and began to look over the books. And then he was gripped in a sudden wave of excitement. He had found uranium listed in the index of electronic chemistry. Part 4, Chapter 5. Turl was not at all surprised to see the smaller Chamco brother come nervously into his office. Turl, he said hesitantly. You know that good luck credit note you lost to me? Well, I won't be able to exchange... What are you talking about? Said Turl. That good luck credit note. You lost it to me and I promised to exchange it with you. I wanted to tell you... Wait a minute, said Turl. He fished out his wallet and looked into it. Hmm. Hey, you're right. It isn't here. You lost it to me playing rings, and I promised to exchange it back. Well... Oh, yes. I have some dim recollection of it. <laughs> that was quite a night. I was drunk. I guess. What about it? The smaller Chamco brother was nervous, but Turl seemed so open and pleasant, he was emboldened. Uh, well, it's gone. Stolen. Stolen? Barked Turl. Yes. Actually, the 500 credits I won and 165 more besides. The good luck bill was among... Hey now, slow up. Stolen from where? My room. Turl got out an official pad and began to make notes. About what time? Maybe yesterday. Last night I went to get some drinking money, and I found... Yesterday? Hmm. Turl sat back thoughtfully and gnawed at the top of his pen. You know, this isn't the first theft reported from rooms. There were two others. But you're in luck. How so? Well, you realize, of course, that I am responsible for security. Turl made an elaborate demonstration of searching through piles of junk on his back bench. He turned to the smaller Chamco brother. I shouldn't let you in on this. He looked thoughtful, then seemed to make a sudden decision. I can trust you to keep this secret. Absolutely, said the smaller Chamco brother. 
Old Numph worries all the time about mutinies. Mm, he should, after that pay cut. And so, well, you understand. I wouldn't do this on my own initiative, but it just so happened that your room was under surveillance yesterday. Along with several other rooms, of course. This did not much shock the Chamco. The company often put work areas and quarters under surveillance. Turl was fumbling through stacks of discs among the clutter. I haven't reviewed them. Actually, never intended to. Anything to keep management happy. Ah, yes, here it is. What time yesterday? I don't know. Turl put the disc on a player and turned on the screen. You're just lucky. I should say so. We'll just scan through this disc. It was on for two or three days. I'll give it a fast forward. Wait, said the smaller Chamco brother. Something flashed by. Turl obligingly reversed it. Probably just you going in and out. I never review these things. It takes so long and there's so much to do. Company regulations. Wait, look at that. Here? Yes, who's that? Turl brightened up the screen. That's it! Cried the Chamco. Look what he's doing! Searching the room. Ha! He found it. Crap! Look at that! There's your bill! Incredible. You sure are lucky there was a mutiny scare on. Where are you going? The Chamco had made an angry dive at the door. I'm going down and beat the crap out of that low! No, no. That won't get your money back. And it wouldn't, either, for the money was nestling in a wad under Turl's front belt. He had taken it from the room soon after the Chamco had hidden it. This has become an official matter because it was detected on an official disk during an official surveillance. Turl opened a book of regulations, volume 989, to article 34A-4. He turned several pages and then spun the book about and showed the Chamco where it said, theft of personal monies from the quarters of employees by employees, and when duly evidenced, and vaporization. The smaller Chamco read it. He was surprised. Hmm. I didn't know it was that stiff. Well, it is. And this is official, so don't go rushing off to take the law into your own hands. Turl took a blast rifle out of the rack and handed it to the smaller Chamco. You know how to use this. It's fully charged. You're now a deputy. The smaller Chamco was impressed. He stood there fumbling with the catches and made sure the safety was on. Hmm. You mean I can kill him? We'll see. This is official. Turl picked up the disc and a smaller portable screen and player and the book of regulations, then looked around to see whether he had everything. Come along. Stay behind me and say nothing. They went to the quarters and found an attendant. Yes, the attendant had seen Zit coming out of Chamco's room. Yes, he knew Zit by sight. He didn't recall whether it was the 13th or the 14th of the month, but he'd seen him. He was cautioned to say nothing, for it was official and had to do with mutiny surveillance. And the attendant obligingly signed the witness report vowing to himself to be sure to keep quiet. He didn't care much for executives anyway. And so it was that Turl, followed by the smaller Chamco brother with a blast rifle in ready position, came to the maintenance area of the garage. 
Turl snapped a small button camera on the wall and pushed its remote. Zit looked up. He had a heavy wrench in his paw. He looked at the blast rifle and the set faces. Fear stirred in him. Put down that wrench. Turn around and hold on to that chain lift rail with both paws. Zit threw the wrench. It missed. Turl's paws batted him across three dollies. The Chamco danced around, trying to get in a shot. Turl put his boot on Zit's neck. He waved the Chamco back. His body obscuring the Chamco's view, Turl knelt and, with a rapid sleight of paw, extracted the wad of bills from Zit's rear pocket. Turl handed them to the Chamco. Are these your bills? Zit had rolled over and stared up at them from the greasy floor. The Chamco counted. 650 credits, and here's the good luck bill. He was ecstatic. Turl said, You're witness to the fact they were in his back pocket. Absolutely, said the Chamco. Show that bill to the camera on the wall. What is this? Roared Zit. Back up, and keep that blast rifle ready, said Turl to the Chamco. Then, keeping himself out of the fire path to Zit, he laid the things he had carried on the bench. He opened the Book of Regulations and pointed it out to Zit. Zit angrily read it aloud. He faltered toward the end and turned to Turl. Vaporize! I didn't know that! Ignorance is no excuse, but few employees know all the regulations. That you didn't know it is probably why you did it. Did what? cried Zit. Turl turned on the disc. Zit looked at it, confused, incredulous. He saw himself stealing the money. Before Zit could recover, Turl showed him the attendant's signed statement. Do I vaporize him now? Begged the Chamco, waving the rifle about and fumbling off the safety catch. Turl waved a conciliatory paw. Chamco, we know you have every right, no, actually, the duty, to carry out the execution. He looked at Zit, who was standing there, stunned. Zit, you're not going to do this sort of thing again, are you? Zit was shaking his head, not in answer, but in dumbfounded confusion. Turl turned back to Chamco. You see? Now listen, Chamco. I can understand your anger. This is a first-time mistake for Zit. You've got your money back, and by the way, we'll exchange that bill now. I'll need it for the evidence file. The Chamco took the note Turl offered and handed over the good luck bill. Turl held the bill up to the wall camera, running on remote, and then laid it down on the statement. You see, Chamco, I can keep this file open, but in a safe place where it can be found if anything happens to either of us. It can be activated at any time and would be activated if further offenses occurred. His voice took on a pleading tone. Zit has been a valuable fellow in the past. As a favor to me, lay aside your revenge and let it lie. The Chamco was thoughtful, his bloodlust cooling. Turl glanced at Zit and saw no attack signals. He put out his paw to the Chamco. Give me the rifle. The Chamco did and Turl put on the safety slide. Thank you. 
The company is indebted to you. You can go back to work. The Chamco smiled. This Turl was sure a fair and efficient cyclo. I sure appreciate your getting my money back, said the Chamco, and left. Turl turned off the camera he had put on the wall and restored it to his pocket. Then he picked up the things on the bench and made them into a neat package. Zith was standing there, restraining the tremble that threatened to engulf him. The aura of death had gripped him all too nearly. Stark terror flared in his eyes as he looked at Turl. He was not seeing Turl. He was seeing the most diabolical devil ever drawn in the mythology of the Cyclos. All right, said Turl quietly. Zit sank slowly down on a bench. Turl waited a bit, but Zit didn't move. Now to business. I want certain things assigned to my department. A Mark III ground car executive. Two battle planes, unlimited range. Three personnel freighters, and fuel and ammunition without inventory. And a few other things. In fact, I just happen to have the requisitions right here for you to sign. Oh yes, there are some blank ones too. All right. Zit did not resist the pen as it was pushed between his claws. The thick sheaf of requisitions was slipped onto his knee. Lifelessly, he began to sign each one. That night, a very cheerful Turl, who said he felt lucky even though a bit drunk, won all 650 credits back from the smaller Chamco brother in a very narrowly contested game of rings. Turl even bought Kerbango for the whole crowd out of his winnings as a goodnight gesture. They cheered him when he happily rumbled off to a well-earned sleep. He dreamed beautiful dreams wherein leverage made him wealthy, crowned him king, and got him far away from this accursed planet. Part 4, Chapter 6. Johnny laid down his book and stood, stretching. There was more than a smell of spring in the air. The snow had run off and only lingered in shady places. The air was crystal, the sky a beautiful blue. There was a surging tension in his limbs and muscles. It was one thing to be cooped up in winter. It was quite another to sit in a cage in spring. He saw what had distracted him a few moments before. Turl drove up to the cage gate in a long, sleekly gleaming black tank. It purred quietly, hiding awesome power behind its gun muzzles and slitted ports. Turl bounded out and the ground shook. He was very jovial. Get your clothes on, animal. We're going for a drive. Johnny was dressed in buckskin. No, no, no. Clothes, not hides. You'll stink up my new ground car. How do you like it? 
Johnny was suddenly alert. Turl asking for opinion or admiration was not the Turl he knew. I'm dressed, said Johnny. Turl was unhooking the leash from the cage. Oh well, what's the difference? I can stand it if you can. Get your air mask. You'll be inside. And I'm damned if I'll drive around in one. Bring your clubs, too. Now Johnny was alert. He put on a belt and a pouch with flints and the bits of glass for cutting. He put the thong of the kill club over his wrist. Turl checked the air bottles and playfully snapped the elastic of Johnny's mask as he put it on him. <laughs> now get in, animal, get in! Some ground car, eh? Indeed it was, thought Johnny, as the gunner's seat engulfed him. Blazing purple fabric, gleaming instrument panel, and shining control buttons. I checked her all out for remotes, said Turl. He laughed and laughed at his joke as he climbed in. <laughs> you know what I'm referring to, Ratbrain. No over the cliff on fire today. He hit a button and the doors closed and sealed. He turned on the breathe gas louvers and the atmosphere changed in a blink. Crap, were you stupid? <laughs> he laughed some more. The ground car went hurtling toward the open, four feet above the earth, accelerating to 200 miles per hour in a breath, almost breaking Johnny's spine. Turl unsnapped his face mask and threw it aside. You see those doors? Don't ever hit a latch or try to open one when I'm not wearing a mask, animal. This thing would wreck with no driver. Johnny looked at the latches and buttons and noted the information carefully. What a good idea. Where are we going? Oh, just to drive, just to drive. Seeing the sights. Johnny doubted that. He was watching every control action Turl was making. He could identify most of the levers and buttons already. They sped north, and then in a long curve headed south of west. Despite the blur of speed, Johnny could see they were following some ancient, grass-overgrown highway. By the sun, he marked their course. Through the heavily-plated gunner's slits, he could see a mass of ancient buildings and a field. A high mountain lay beyond. A range lay to the west. The ground car slowed and drew up a distance from the largest building. Johnny looked at the desolate scene of ruin. Turl reached into the ground car bar and drew himself a small pan of Kerbango. He drank it off and smacked his mouth bones and belched. Then he put on his face mask and hit the door button. Well, get out, get out and see the sights. Johnny shut off his air and removed his mask. Turl flipped the leash to give it length and Johnny got out. He looked around. In a nearby field, there were some mounds of what had been machines, perhaps. The structures before him were impressive. Near where they stood was a sort of trench, long overgrown, curving. The grass was tall, and the wind from the mountains moaned lonesomely. What was this place? Turl stood with his elbow braced against the top of the car, indolent, very casual. Animal! You are looking at the primary defense base of this planet during the days of man. Yes? Prompted Johnny. 
Turl reached into the car and brought out a Chinko guidebook and threw it at him. A page was marked. It said, A short distance from the mine site lies an impressive military ruin. Thirteen days after the Cyclo attack, a handful of men stood off a Cyclo tank for over three hours using primitive weapons. It was the last resistance that was overcome by the Cyclos. That was all it said. Johnny looked around. Turl pointed at the curved trench. It happened right here, he said with a sweep of his paw. Look. He dealt out more leash. Johnny crept over to the trench. It was hard to see where it began and ended. It had some stones in front of it. The grass was very tall, moving in the wind. Look good, said Turl. Johnny moved down into the trench, and then he saw it. Although a great time had passed, there were scraps of metal that had been guns. And there were scraps of uniforms, mainly buried, hardly more than impressions. Suddenly, he was gripped by the vision of desperate men, fighting valiantly, hopelessly. He glanced across the field before the trench and could almost see the cyclo tank coming on, withdrawing, coming on, battering them at last to death. Johnny's heart rose, swelled in his chest, blood hammered in his ears. Turl leaned indolently against the car. Seen enough? Why have you shown me this? <laughs> Turl barked a laugh behind his mask. So you won't get any ideas, animal. This was the number one defense base of the planet. And just one measly cyclo tank knocked it to bits in a wink. Got it? That wasn't what Johnny had gotten. Turl, who couldn't read English, had not read the still plain letters on the building. Those letters said, United States Air Force Academy. Well, put on your mask and get in. We have other things to do today. Johnny got in. It had not been the primary defense base. It was just a school. And that handful of men had been schoolboys, cadets. And they'd had the guts to stand off a cyclo tank, outgunned, hopeless, for three hours. As they moved off, Johnny looked back at the trench. His people. Men. He found it hard to breathe. They had not died tamely. They had fought. Part 4, Chapter 7 Turl drove straight north, following the overgrown bed of an old highway. For all his joviality, he was thinking very hard. Fear and leverage. If you didn't have leverage, you could make fear work. He felt he had already accomplished a little bit. The animal had seemed impressed back there. 
but he had a lot to do to get both fear and leverage, and get enough of them to break this animal and cow it completely. Comfortable? asked Turl. Johnny snapped out of his daydream and became instantly alert. This was not the Turl he knew. Casual? Chatty, even? Johnny was on his guard. Where are we going? Just a little drive. New ground car. Doesn't she run well? The tank ran well, all right. The plate on the panel said, Mark III General Purpose Tank, Executive. The enemy is dead. Intergalactic Mining Company Serial, ET-5364724354-0. Use only ferro power cartridges and breathe gas. Ferro is the breath and power of life. Is ferro part of intergalactic? Said Johnny. Turl took his eyes off driving for a moment and looked suspiciously at Johnny. <sighs> then he shrugged. Ah, don't you bother your little rat brain about the size of intergalactic animal. It's a monopoly that stretches across every galaxy. It's a size and scope you couldn't grasp if you had a thousand rat brains. It's all run from home planet, isn't it? Why not? Something wrong with that? No. No, it just seems an awfully big company to be run from one planet. That isn't all Cyclo runs. There's dozens of companies the size of Intergalactic, and Cyclo runs them all. Must be a big planet. Big? And powerful, said Turl. Might as well add a little more fear. Cyclo can and has crushed every opposition that ever stood in her path. One Imperial checkmark on an order, and a whole race can go. Like the Chinkos? Yes. Turl was bored. Like the human race here? Yes! And like one rat-brained animal will go if it doesn't shut up, said Turl in sudden irritation. Thank you. That's better. Even becoming properly polite. Turl's good humor returned, but it wouldn't have had he realized that the thank you had been for vital information. Abruptly, their headlong pace swept them into the outskirts of the city. Where are we? They called it Denver. Aha, thought Johnny. The great village had been named Denver. If it had a name to itself, that implied that there were other great villages. He reached for the Chinko guidebook of the area and was just reading about the library when the ground car came to a stop. Where's this? inquired Johnny, looking around. They were at the eastern edge of the town and slightly to the south. Knew you had a rat brain. This is where you... <laughs> he laughed suddenly, and that made it hard to talk. Where you attacked a tank! <laughs> Johnny looked around. It was indeed the place. He looked through all the slits, taking in the area. What are we doing here? Turl grinned in what he was quite certain was his most friendly grin. We're looking for your horse. Isn't that nice? Johnny thought, fast. There was more to this. He had better be very calm. He saw no bones, but that meant nothing, for wild animals would have been at work. He looked at Turl and realized the brute actually believed a horse would wait around. 
Wind Splitter most probably had trotted on after them a while, and then wandered back toward home in the mountains. There are countless animals out in the open here. Picking out those two horses... Ratbrain, you don't have a grip on machines. It shows. Look here. Turl turned on a large screen set into the instrument panel. The immediate vicinity showed up on it. Turl turned a knob, and the scene was viewable from different directions. Then Turl pushed a button, and there was a dull pop, like a small explosion in the top of the car. Looking up through the overhead port, Johnny saw a spinning object fly up in the air a hundred feet. Turl pushed a lever up, and the object went up. Turl pulled the lever down, and the object came lower. What it was seeing registered on the view screen. That's why you can't get away. Look! He changed a lever on the screen, and the image became enlarged. He pushed a button marked Heat Search, and the screen and spinner above went onto automatic. Johnny watched as groups of animals were zeroed in, enlarged, reduced. Other groups found and inspected up close. More animals spotted and examined. Just sit and watch that, and tell me if you see your horse. He laughed. <laughs> Security chief of Earth running a lost and found department for an animal owned by an animal. <laughs> he laughed more loudly at his own joke. There were cattle and cattle and cattle. There were wolves, small ones from the nearby mountains and huge ones down from the north. There were coyotes. There was even a rattler. There were no horses at all. Well, we'll just drive along to the south. You keep your eyes open, animal, and you'll get your horse back. They drove at a leisurely pace. Johnny watched the scope. Time went on. Still no horses, none at all. Turl began to get irritated. Leverage, leverage. His luck was out today. No horses said Johnny, and he knew very well that if he had seen Windsplitter, he would have kept still. Turl finally looked at the scope. Ahead of them was a small hill, rocky on top, with a lot of trees distributed around it and darkness in among the trees. There were cattle, some with rather big horns just to the north of it in the open. Fear, then. The day wouldn't be wasted. He swerved the car into the trees and stopped. Get out, said Turl. He put on his breathe mask and hit the door buttons. He threw out the leash and then reached into the huge compartment under the seat and drew out a blast rifle along with a bag of grenades. Johnny stood in the open and took off his mask. He switched tanks before he put it on the seat. It had been a long drive. Turl took a position at the edge of the trees, the rocks behind him, the open plain in front, Come here, animal. The leash was trailing. Johnny walked over to Turl. He wasn't going to give the monster a chance to gun him down. I'm going to give you a little exhibition. I was top shot in my school. You ever notice how neat the rat heads were blown off? Some of them were 50 paces away. You're not listening, animal. No, Johnny was not listening. He had caught a whiff of something and he looked at the rocks behind them. There was an opening in them. A cave? There was the whiff again. 
Turl reached down and jerked the leash, almost snapping Johnny off his feet. Johnny got up from his knees and looked again toward the cave. He gripped the kill club in his fist. With an expert motion, Turl snapped a grenade onto the end of the blast rifle. Watch this! There were a half dozen cattle about 80 paces out on the plain. Two of them were heavy-horned bulls, old and tough. The other four were cows. Turl lifted the blast rifle muzzle-high and fired. The grenade soared in a long arc over the top of the cattle and landed well beyond them. It exploded in a bright green flash. One cow went down, hit by a fragment. The others leaped and began to run. They ran away from the sound and straight toward Turl. Turl leveled the blast rifle. Those hoofs are moving, he said. So you won't think it's an accident. The bulls were coming on in a headlong rush. The cows behind them. The ground shook. The distance was closing quickly. Turl began to fire in quick single shots. He broke the legs of the following cows, and they tumbled to earth, bawling. He broke the right front leg of the farthest bull. The other was almost upon them. One final shot, and Turl broke the right front leg of the nearest bull, which skidded to a crumbled heap mere feet in front of them. The air was shattering with the balls of pain from the cattle. Turl grinned as he looked at them. <laughs> Johnny looked back at him in horror. That grin behind the faceplate was of pure joy. Johnny felt revulsion for the monster. Turl was... Johnny suddenly realized there was no word for cruel in the cyclone language. He turned toward the cattle. Walking out in front with his kill club to put them out of their agony, he heard a new sound, a rustling rumble. Johnny whirled, coming away from the cave, awakened and angered by all the racket, charging straight at Turl's back was the biggest grizzly bear Johnny had ever seen. Behind you! He yelled, but his voice was drowned in the bawling of the cattle. Turl just stood there grinning. A moment later, the bear roared. Turl heard it and started to turn, but he was too late. The grizzly hit him in the back with an impact that sent out a shockwave. The blast rifle, driven from Turl's paws, soared into the air toward Johnny. He caught it in his left hand. But Johnny wasn't thinking of the blast rifle as any more than a club, and he had his own kill club up and striking before the bear could aim a second blow at Turl. The kill club caught the grizzly square on the brain pan. The bear staggered, distracted, and stunned. Johnny sailed in again. The bear struck out with a massive clawed blow. Johnny went under it. The kill club hit again on the brain pan. The bear reared up and struck at the kill club as it came in again. The thong snapped. Johnny grasped the rifle by the barrel. The grizzly came at him with gaping jaws. The rifle stock crashed into the bear's teeth. Johnny struck again on the brain pan. With a dwindling roar, the bear went down. It stayed down, its limbs twitching in death. Johnny backed up. Turl was lying on his side, conscious. His mask was in place. His eyes behind the faceplate were wide and staring. Johnny backed up farther. 
Thank God the leash hadn't caught on anything and tripped him during the fight. He snapped the leash to him. Then he turned his attention to the gun. It had little labels on its controls. The safety catch was off. There was a charge under the trigger. It was scratched, but not otherwise damaged. Johnny looked at Turl. Turl looked back, his claws flexing and unflexing, waiting. He was certain the animal would level the gun and kill him. His paw stole down to his belt gun. If Johnny saw the movement toward the belt gun, he ignored it. He turned his back on Turl. He located the sights on the blast rifle and then, with six shots, put the crippled cattle out of their misery. Johnny put on the safety catch. He reached into his pouch and got a piece of sharp-edged glass and walked over to the bear and began to skin it. Turl lay and looked at him. At length, he realized he had better check himself out. A pain in his back, a rip in his collar, a bit of green blood on his paw. He tested his back. It was nothing serious. He went over to the car and sat down on a seat with the doors open and hunched there, still looking at Johnny. You're not gonna carry that hide inside this car, said Turl. Johnny didn't look up from his skinning. I'll lash it on top. At length, Johnny bundled up the hide and went over to the youngest cow. Working deftly with the sharp glass, he took out the tenderloin and tongue, cut a haunch, and wrapped them in the bear hide. Johnny took some thongs from his pouch and lashed the hide with its meat to a gun mount on the car top. Then he handed the blast rifle to Turl. The safety is on. He was cleaning himself up with handfuls of grass. Turl looked at him. Fear? Fear be damned. This animal had no fear in him. Leverage. It had to be leverage. Lots of it. Get in. It's getting late. Part 4, Chapter 8 The following day, Turl was again a blur of activity. He was getting ready for another interview with Numph. He rushed about doing mutiny interviews, recording each one on a type of tape that could be cut and spliced. It was a very artful task, requiring the greatest care. He approached numbers of employees on the job, inside the compound and out. The interviews went very smoothly and rapidly. Turl would ask, What company regulations do you know concerning mutiny? The employees, sometimes startled, always suspicious, would quote what they knew or thought they knew concerning mutiny. The security chief would then request, In your own words, tell me your opinion of mutiny. The employees would of course get long-winded and reassuring. Mutiny is a very bad thing, 
Executives would cause vaporizations wholesale, and no one would be safe. I sure never intend to advocate or take part in any mutiny. The interviews went on and on through the day. Turl rushing about, mask on outside, mask off inside. Recording, recording, recording. He always wound up an interview shaking his head and smiling and saying it was just routine and they knew how it was with management being what it was and he, Turl, was on the employee's side. But he left a bit of worry in his wake. Employees vowing to themselves to have nothing whatever to do with any mutiny, pay cut or no pay cut. From time to time, passing through his office, Turl would look at the image of the cage where the high-button cameras still performed their guard duty. Curiosity and a vague unease made him keep checking. The animal seemed very industrious. It had been up with first light. It had worked and worked, scraping the bear hide clean, and had taken old ashes and worked them into it. The hide was now hanging, pinned to the bars. Then the fire had been built up and an odd network of branches, sort of racks, had been made around the fireplace. The beef was cut into long, thin strips and hung on the racks near the fire. Leaves from the chopped up trees kept being put on the fire, creating a great deal of smoke, and the smoke was winding around the meat. Turl could not quite make out what the animal was really doing, but toward the end of the day, he thought he knew. The animal was observing some kind of religious ritual having to do with spring. He had read something about this in the Chinko guidebooks. They had dances and other silly things. The smoke was supposed to carry the spirits of slain animals to the gods. Yesterday, they had certainly slain enough animals. The thought of it made Turl's back twinge. He had never believed any of these earth creatures could actually hurt a cyclo. But that grizzly bear had shaken his confidence slightly. It had been an awfully big bear. It weighed almost as much as Turl himself. Probably come sunset, the animal down there in the cage would build the fire up and begin to dance or something. He concluded it wasn't up to anything dangerous and kept on with his headlong interviewing. That night, the recreation hall saw nothing of Turl. And he also forgot to see whether the animal danced. He was too busy with his tapes. Working with an expertise only a trained security chief cherished, Turl was editing tapes, slicing out single words and even phrases and juggling them about. By his readjusting of word positions and scrapping of whole paragraphs, employees began to say things on the reels that were building up that could hang them. A typical answer would become, I intend to advocate mutiny. In any mutiny, it would be safe to vaporize executives. It was painstaking work, and the reels built up. Finally, he copied them onto new, clean disks that would show no sign of editing or splicing. And with the east graying, he sat back, finished. Yawning, he puttered around, cleaning up, destroying the originals and the scraps, waiting for breakfast time. He realized he had forgotten to keep an eye on the animal, to see whether it danced. Turl decided he needed sleep more than breakfast, and laid himself down for a short nap. His appointment with Nump was not until after lunch. Later, he was to tell himself that it was because he had missed both breakfast and lunch 
that he made the blunder. The interview began well enough. Numph was sitting at his upholstered desk, sucking at an after-lunch saucepan of Kerbango. He was his usual bumbling self. I have the results of the investigation you requested. Turl began. What? I interviewed a lot of local employees. About what? Mutiny. Numph was immediately alert. Turl put the disc player on Numph's desk and made ready to play the interviews, saying, These are all very secret, of course. The employees were told that no one would hear about it, and they did not know the interviews were recorded. Wise, wise, said Numph. He had laid the saucepan aside and was all attention. Turl let the disc spin one after another. The effect was everything he had hoped for. Numph looked grayer and grayer. When the discs were finished, Numph poured himself a saucepan full of kerbango and sucked it down in one whoosh. Then he just sat there. If ever he had seen guilt, Turl decided, he was seeing it now. Numph's eyes were hunted. Therefore, I advise that we keep all this secret. We must not let them know what each is actually thinking, for it would lead them to conspire and actually mutiny. Yes. Good. I have prepared certain papers and orders about this. He put the sheaf on Numph's desk. The first one is an order to me to take what measures I deem necessary to handle this matter. Yes, said Numph and signed it. The second one is to strip all arsenals of all mine sites and keep all weapons under lock and key. Yes, said Numph and signed it. This next one is to retrieve any battle planes from other mine sites and localize them under seals, except those I might need. Yes, said Numph and signed it. Turl removed that which had been signed and left Numph staring at the next one. What's this? Authority to round up and train man-animals on machine operation so that company ore shipments can be kept rolling in event of deaths of company employees or refusals to work. Uh, I don't think it's possible. It's only a threat to force employees back to work. You know, and I know, it's not really feasible. Uh, no. Numph signed it doubtfully, and only because it said, Emergency Plan, Strategic Alternative Ploy, Objective, Employee Dissuasion from Strike. And then, Turl made his blunder. He took the signed authorization and added it to the rest. It permits us to handle forced reduction of employees. He commented. Afterward, he realized he need not have said a thing. Oh? Said Numph. And I am sure... Turl had gone on, confirming his blunder. I am very certain that your nephew Nipe would heartily approve of it. Approve of what? Reduction of employee numbers. Turl rattled on. And then Turl saw it. There was a relieved look on Numph's face. A knowing <laughs> look. A look of realization that gave Numph great satisfaction. Numph gave Turl an almost amused glance. Relief seemed to soak into him. Confidence took the place of fear. Turl knew he had messed it up. He had had only a hint of the leverage connected to Nipe. 
and right now he had been guilty of exposing that he was only pretending he knew. Numph knew that Turl really didn't know, and Turl never had really known what Numph was up to. A real blunder. Well, said Numph, suddenly expansive. You just run along now and do your job. I'm sure everything will work out just fine. Turl stopped outside the door. What the blast was the leverage? What was the real story behind it? Numph was no longer afraid. <laughs> Turl could hear him chuckling. The security chief threw off the black cloud that threatened. He moved off. At least he had the animals, and he could carry on. And when he had finished with them, he could vaporize them. He wished he could also vaporize Numph. Leverage. Leverage. He had none on Numph, and he had none at all on the animal. Turl would have to get busy. Part 4, Chapter 9. The transshipment air was a loud clatter of hurtling shapes under the spring sun. A freighter had just roared in, and the ore it spilled was racketing onto the field. The blade machines were nudging about, hurrying the ore to the conveyors. The giant buckets clanked and rattled, halting jerkily to spill their contents on the conveyor belt. Huge fans roared to blast dust in the air. A fall of ore flowed onto the transshipment platform. Johnny sat amid the din, chained to the controls of the dust analyzer, sprayed with fanned dirt and half-deafened from the clamor. What he was doing was cross-testing the consecutive loads on the belt for uranium. The fans beat a fog of ore particles into the air at this point in the progressive steps. It was Johnny's job to throw a lever that sent beams through the whirlwind, check the panel to see whether a purple or a red light went on, and throw levers that sent the ore on for transshipment, purple, or dumped it to the side and sounded an alarm, red. When the red came on, it was urgent to dump. He was not operating independently. He was closely supervised by Kerr, the assistant operations officer of the mine site. Kerr was protected by domed headgear. Johnny was catching the hurricane of dust and din full in the eyes and face. He did not even have goggles. Kerr walloped him on the shoulder to indicate that this bucketful could be sent on, and Johnny thrust at the levers. Kerr had been carefully chosen by the security chief as the very fellow to instruct the animal in the operation of mine site machinery. And Turl had his reasons. A midget for a cyclo, Kerr was only seven feet tall. He was a geyser mouth, as they called it, since he chattered incessantly. Nobody bothered to listen to him. He had no friends, but tried to make them. He was reputedly dim-witted, even though he knew his machines well. If these reasons were not enough, Turl had leverage. 
he had caught Kerr in a compromising situation involving two female cyclo clerks in an out-of-bounds operations office. Turl had picto-recorded, but not reported it, and Kerr and the females had been very grateful. There were other things. Kerr was a habitual criminal who had taken employment on Earth one jump ahead of arrest, and Turl had fixed up a name change. Before the animal idea had occurred to Turl, he had tried to work out something involving Kerr, but it would have been impossible for a cyclo to go into those mountains, and he had been forced to abandon taking Kerr into his confidence. But Kerr had his uses. He was chattering away now, voice dimmed by the helmet he wore and by the din. You have to be sure to detect every scrap of radiation dust. Not one isotope must get through to the platform. What would it cause? Shouted Johnny. There'd be a spark flash on the home planet, like I told you. The teleportation platform there would get disrupted, and we catch blazes. It's just the dust. You have to make sure there's none in the dust. No uranium. Has it ever happened? Blast, no! Roared Kerr. And it never will. Just dust? Just dust. What about a solid piece of uranium? You won't detect that. Would anything detect it? We never ship it. They got along pretty well. At first, Kerr had thought the animal was a peculiar thing, but it seemed friendly, and Kerr didn't have any friends. And the animal asked questions constantly, and Kerr loved to talk. Better an animal audience than none at all. Besides, it was a favor to Turl and staved off possible disclosures. Turl brought the man-thing down each morning, tied it up to the machine it would operate, and picked it up each night. Kerr, much cautioned and threatened with the consequences if Johnny got loose, had the right to untie the animal and put it on another machine. The regular operator this morning was glad of a break. The post was extremely dangerous and had killed several cyclos in past decades. One usually got danger pay for it, but that was now suspended with the economy wave. The freighter load was handled. The last bucketful went by on the conveyor belt position, and the whole area drifted down to momentary idleness. The regular operator came back, looking suspiciously at his equipment. Did it break anything? Said the regular operator with a talon jerk at Johnny. It hasn't broke anything around here yet, said Kerr defensively. I heard it blew up a blade scraper. Oh, that scraper was one that had already blown up. You know, the one a few months ago that got Whaler. Oh, that one. The one that got a hairline crack in its canopy? Yeah, that one. I thought this animal blew it up. That's just that zit making excuses for lack of maintenance. Nevertheless, the regular operator carefully checked over his uranium detection station. Why are you so nervous about it? Hey! said the regular operator. It talks cyclo. He could have a leak in his helmet, explained Kerr to Johnny. Or you could have left some dust on the controls. Johnny looked at the regular operator. You ever have a helmet blow up? Blazes, no. I'm still alive, ain't I? And I ain't gonna have any breed gas blow up around me. Get off my machine. Another freighter's coming in. Kerr untied the animal and led it over to the shade of a power pylon. Ah, that about completes you on the transshipment machinery. 
Tomorrow, I'm gonna start you on actual mining. Johnny looked around. What's that little house over there? Kerr looked. It was a small domed structure with a bunch of cooling coils on the back of it. Oh, the morgue. Company orders require all dead cyclos to get returned to home planet. Johnny was interested. Sentiment? Families? Oh, no, Blazes, no. Nothing silly like that. They got some dumb idea that if an alien race had dead cyclos to fool around with, they could work out the metabolism and get up to mischief. Also, it's a sort of nose count. They don't want names writing on a payroll after a guy is dead. Somebody else could collect the pay. It used to be done. What happens with them? The corpses? Oh, we let them collect and then schedule their teleportation back, just like any other package. When they get them home, they bury them. The company has its own cemetery on Cyclone. Must be quite a planet. Kerr glowed with a smile. You can say that. None of these damned helmets or canopies. Unlimited breathe gas. The whole atmosphere is breathe gas. Wonderful. Good gravity, not thin like this. Everything, a gorgeous purple. And females are plenty. When I get out of here, maybe, if Turl fixes it so I can, I'm gonna have 10 wives and just sit all day chomping Kerbango and rolling the females. <laughs> Don't they have to import all the breathe gas here? Yes, indeed. You can't make it on other planets. It takes certain elements that seldom exist off Cyclo. I should think the home planet would run out of atmosphere. Oh, no! The elements are in the rocks and even the core, and it just makes more and more. See those drums over there? Johnny looked at a pyramid of drums that had evidently just come in on reverse teleportation from Cyclo. Trucks with lifts were loading them, and just as he looked, truck was shifting some barrels aboard the last freighter in. Those drums are going back overseas. How many mine sites are there? Kerr scratched where his dome met his collar. Uh, 16, I think. Huh, where are they located? Said Johnny, being very casual. Mm. Kerr started to shrug, oh, and then uh, had a happy thought. Yeah. He reached into a rear pocket and brought out a sheaf of papers. He had used the back of a map to make some work assignment notes on. He unfolded it. Although it was covered with creases and dirt, it was quite plain. It was the first time Johnny had seen a map of the whole planet. With a searching talon, Kerr counted. Ah, yep. Sixteen with two substations. That's the lot. What's a substation? Kerr pointed up at the pylon. Other pylons marched southwest into the distance until they were dwindling specks. That power line comes in from a hydroelectric installation several hundred miles from here. It's an ancient dam. The company changed all the machinery in it and it gives us all our power here for transshipment. It's a substation. Any workers there? Oh no, all automatic. There's another substation on the overseas south continent. It's not manned either. Johnny looked at the map. He was excited, but showed none of it. He counted five continents. Every mine site was precisely marked. He reached over and took a pen out of Kerr's breast pocket. How many machines do I still have to be checked out on? Asked Johnny. Kerr thought about it. Uh, there's drillers, hoist. Johnny uh, reached over and took the map and folded it so there was a fresh blank space on the back. 
he began to list the machines as Kerr called them out. When the list was finished, Johnny gave Kerr his pen, but casually put the map in his pouch. Johnny stood up and stretched. He hunkered back down and said, Tell me some more about Cyclo. Sure must be an interesting place. The assistant operations officer chattered on. Johnny listened intently. The data was a valuable flood, and the map in his pouch crackled comfortingly. When just one man was taking on the whole empire of the Cyclos in the hope of freeing his people, every scrap of information had value beyond price. The engulfing roar of company operations thundered around them in enormous power. Part 5, Chapter 1 Eyes on the sky of an evening, noting the slow yearly wheel of the constellations, Johnny knew he would have to escape. In about three weeks, the year would be up. He had a horrible vision of Chrissy coming into the plains and, if she survived there, blundering onto the mine site. There were many obstacles. It would be almost insurmountably difficult given the search tools of the Cyclos. But he set about planning his road to freedom with stubborn relentlessness. Complicating his plans was the self-set goal of an Earth free of Cyclos and the resurrection of the human race. Lying awake, he saw the cage revealed in all its ugliness by a rising moon, and he almost ridiculed himself for his own timidity. Here he was, collared like a dog, chained up, locked behind bars, subject to swift detection and swifter pursuit. Yet he knew that even if he died trying, he would more than try. First, he must escape. A key to possible freedom came to him only two days later, freedom at last from his collar. For some reason, Turl had insisted that he be trained in electronic repair. The explanation Turl gave was thin. Sometimes the controls of a machine broke, Sometimes the remote control systems went awry, and the operator had to handle it. That Turl had done the explaining was enough to disqualify the reason. But more than that, in all the time Johnny had been training on machines, he had never seen an operator touch electronic repair. When something went wrong, somebody came screeching in on a tri-wheeled cart from the electronics section and fixed it fast. That Turl insisted that Johnny know how to do it, Kerr had not objected for an instant was one more piece of the puzzle that was Turl. Whatever Turl wanted of him eventually would happen somewhere where there were no electronics repairmen. So Johnny sat, dwarfed on a bench, learning circuits and diagrams and components. They didn't give him too much trouble. The electrons went here, got changed there, and wound up doing something else over at this place. The little wires and components and pieces of binding metal all made pretty good sense. It was the tools that mystified him at first. There was a thing like a little knife that had a big handle 
big to Johnny, small to a cyclo, that did the most remarkable thing. When you turned a switch to the proper number in its heel and put the blade down on a piece of wire, the wire fell apart. And when you reversed it and touched it to the wires you were now holding together, they became one piece once more. It only happened when you were splitting or binding the same type of metal. You had to use a binding substance when handling two different types of metal that you wanted to join. When Kerr wandered off for one of his frequent snacks, and Johnny was tied up alone for the moment in the electronics shop, he tested the tool against the frayed end of the leash. It came apart, cleanly cut. Johnny reversed the switch, held the cut pieces together, and touched the tool to it. They went back together, with no trace of the cut. Johnny knew without trying it, that it would do the same thing to his metal collar. He looked at the door to make sure Kerr was not coming back and no one else coming in. Then he swept his eyes over the rest of the room. There was a tool cupboard at the far end. He knew better than to have the knife he was using vanish. Johnny parted his leash, raced to the tool cupboard and opened it. It was a messy pile of parts, wires and tools. He rummaged in it frantically. Seconds sped by. Then he saw what he was looking for at the bottom, an old tool of the same kind. From far off, he could feel the rumble of returning feet. He rushed back to his bench and with the newly found tool, put his leash ends back together again. It worked. Kerr returned, lazy and disinterested. Johnny had already slid the tool down into the cuff of his moccasin. You're doing pretty good, said Kerr, looking at his work. Yes, I'm doing pretty good, said Johnny. Part 5, Chapter 2. Turl was deep into the puzzle of Numph. Somehow and some way, Turl knew he had gotten onto something, and then somehow and some way, he had messed it up. The thing kept him awake nights and gave him a headache. For some of the things he was now going to be seen doing, he had to have the insurance of big leverage on Numph. He had lazied along with the fake mutiny measures. They weren't important anyway. He had caused the few battle planes on the other mine sites to be flown in and parked. He had picked up their arsenals and had them under seal. He had taken over control of the single remaining recon drone. On its last pass over the high mountains, he had gloated. The beautiful vein was still there, naked to